Hello and welcome once again to the Raw Attitude Podcast, where we chronologically take you through episodes of Monday Night Raw from the Attitude Era. I am, of course, your host, professional wrestler Henry Hugepex, the suplex-throwing human duplex. As always, thank you for listening, and we welcome your feedback at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com or reaching out to us via Twitter at rawattitudepod. Also, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play as well, just like our new friends in the African country of Kenya did recently. Glad to have you on board. And of course, if you write a five-star review for us, I will be sure to read it on this very show and give you full credit for doing so. Or even if you don't write a review, giving us five stars on iTunes also helps out greatly. And finally, don't forget that we have the Patreon page set up as well, patreon.com slash rawattitudepodcast, where you can get lots of free stuff like bonus episodes, my over 700-page Attitude Era Encyclopedia, and even the option to pick your own episode. All great choices there. And this week, folks, we have a very special treat for you. Not only will this episode cover the January 4th, 1999 episode of Raw, but it will also cover the opposing episode of WCW Monday Nitro. So why are we covering two shows? Well, let's just say that both the WWF and WCW put on historic episodes of television on this night, and the ensuing fallout completely changed the Monday Night Wars forever. And for such a monumental episode of this podcast, I needed to enlist the help of a special guest co-host. Joining the Raw Attitude Podcast for the third time, he is the host of the New Blood Rising Podcast and the author of the cinematic novel, The Rumors of My Demise. He is none other than Mr. William Rankin. So, William, would you care to remind the fans what the New Blood Rising Podcast is all about and maybe share some details about your book as well? Sure, yeah, man. The uh, New Blood Rising Podcast, we've now been around for about three years and, uh, and counting. We started off as a podcast that covered like the tail end of WCW, which would be about, uh, let's see, about eight, nine months from where we're at in your timeline with Vince Russo coming mm-hmm. into WCW and, uh, and basically to the end of it. And then we just, we decided to keep it going. You know, we became what I call a timeline based podcast. We like to create seasons based around certain timelines and and wrestling. So next logically we did the invasion and then all the way through WrestleMania 18. Then season three we decided to go back a little bit and do all of ECW from the very first pay per view all the way through <laughs> all the way through November uh or not November December to dismember <laughs> in oof, uh in oof. in two thousand yeah in two thousand six it was a fun time and then you know we done some interesting ones we did a whole season on the undertaker wrestlemania and then right now what we're in is we went even further back in time to uh, it's called from uh, from sting to hogan and it chronicles wcw from around mid-1990 through about mid-1994 and it's a very interesting period where you see the company start with one star and by the end of it has shifted to another star so that's kind of where we're at with the pod it's like i said it's a timeline-based podcast we try to just Break down these shows a little bit, you know, look for, look for, you know, what are, for the most part, what are the hidden gems, the things we weren't expecting that are really cool, and sometimes what are the things that kind of disappoint us now that didn't back then, so, in terms of the book, the book is, 
the rumors of my demise was originally a screenplay, and I was like, you know, I can't make this movie now. I I don't have the money to do it, and the time <laughs> is a little bit dicey. So I decided to rework it into what I call a cinematic novel. It is a it is a different. It's written in a different kind of style than your normal book. And how we've always read books with quotation marks and he said, she said, with this and that, blah, blah. It's written a lot like a stage play or a screenplay, but it's mixed in with a lot of prose for descriptions and backstory and things of that nature. Just to try something different. For some people it may work, for some people it may not. It's it's kind of, it's a nice throwback to the summer of 1999, working in a movie theater and all the kind of debauchery, the craziness that is... A, that was associated with it, with, you know, being in a movie theater, working in a projection booth, the late nights, and all the kind of insanity that kind of went with it and everything. So it's available in both Kindle and in paperback form for you to catch up on. Again, it's something new and different. It may not necessarily be the thing that works for you, but it was a it was an attempt to try something new and something hopefully that can work in the future because I'm, I'm trying to work through another one, see if they can get it out there through kindle as well and then eventually into paperback so i think it's a fun read i think if nothing else if you enjoy the nostalgia of the 90s especially movies music i think you'll dig it awesome yeah and and to be quite honest i have read it and i did dig it so it definitely worked for me i think i i told you that i purchased it um i read the book for me i thought it was yeah, it was it was really good. And for me, someone who doesn't have any sort of insight into the film projectionist world, you definitely made it seem like a very interesting place to be for sure. I can say that much. It is, um, yeah, and it's wild because man, that's that stuff's gone now. You know, like that's that's not that that is truly now a throwback. Like we can go to the cinema still, but when you look up there, there isn't somebody hitting start anymore. It's just a computer doing it, and that's right. It's wild, man. It's wild to think that, like, and I was invo- I was involved in a craft that has basically been retired for the most part now. So, it's it was an interesting process, that's for sure. So the point I was going to make was for somebody, if you're wondering what's this book all about, in my opinion, what it kind of came across to me was sort of like, a, and you can let me know if you think this is fair. It's kind of like a dazed and confused for the film projectionist world. Would you would you say it's kind of like an apt? Yeah comparison it is i think i you know to to be in the same breath as it would be really cool because the one thing i didn't want it to be was clerks in a movie theater and not to say i love (laughs) clerks we just did a podcast on that for the the real change movie podcast me and charlie did and but there many of us after we saw clerks became obsessed with oh man man, I could do that. And then everybody started to apply clerks to their jobs. Like, oh man, we work in a movie theater. We could make a, or we could do a story or whatever about a movie theater. And guess what? Like within five seconds, you can tell you guys just want to do clerks in a movie theater. And it's like, that's not going to work. It's got to be a little bit more than that. And that's, and, and that was the thing. Like I I wanted to really avoid that in, in the rumors of my demise. Daisy Confused was always fascinating to me because also I, I wish I could do something. I love things that take place over like one night. And that's what was cool about Daisy Confused. And I think like, the th- the the elements of of youth transitioning to adulthood and everything those are things that are really neat and I for the most part doesn't matter the decade they're universal and those are fun themes to explore because may like it's it's some way shape or form you're going to relate to it I think absolutely so again that's the rumors of my demise and of course also the new blood rising podcast I know you've advertised new blood on this podcast before but I can never I can never advertise new blood rising podcast enough because I'm I've, I've been a big fan since. Um, I'm not going to say day one because I probably joined like 20 episodes in, but close to day one, you know. Oh, um, hey man, so. It's likewise, brother. That's what I mean. I constantly love to talk because it's 
where you're at, and I said this, we record, what's funny is our last episode was a year ago, just about a year ago, we recorded uh, the SummerSlam, uh, a SummerSlam Highway to Hell episode. Yeah, yeah. And I still maintain this, like, you're in, like, the coolest part to me, the coolest time period. So I can't talk about what you're doing enough just because it's, it's, it really is like going back in time to when, like, I was really energized about, about wrestling. Yeah. Well, I'm sorry that you probably had a huge come down when you saw one of the particular angles involving Terry Reynolds on this show, but um, we can get into that. Um, basically, oh, yeah. it's not all good, but a lot of a lot of it is good. But uh, on this particular show, that one that one stood out for me as being something not very good. Again, we'll get into that. But with that being said, are 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 you ready to dive in? Would you like to dive into the show? Yes, let's do it. Fantastic. Now, I will say that. Nitro actually went on the air about an hour before Raw did on this night, as was customary at the time. But because Nitro features a very famous spoiler of sorts, uh, you and I both thought it would make more sense to start with Raw and then transition over to Nitro. And if that doesn't make sense to you, the listener, well, uh, tough shit. My show. So it is Monday, January 4th, 1999, and Monday Night Raw is pre-taped six days in advance from the Worcester Centrum in Worcester, Massachusetts. And for those of you listening at home, you may want to remember that part about this episode being pre-taped, because let's just say that little tidbit is going to come into play later in this podcast. As for the Worcester Centrum, currently named the DCU Center, some of the other noteworthy events which have taken place in this same venue include WCW's Slamboree 1998 pay-per-view, a.k.a. the show where Eric Bischoff challenged Vince McMahon to a match, Backlash 2003 where Goldberg won his first ever WWE match against The Rock, and (laughs) more on Goldberg later, by the way, six episodes of Raw, and also six episodes of SmackDown, including the July 2016 WWE Draft episode, where they once again split the rosters, and fun fact, I was actually in attendance that night when they did that. The uh, the DCU Center, only about an hour from Raw Attitude Podcast headquarters here in Boston, so yes, I was there that night. And Henry, I'm, cu- show- I'm, cu- I'm curious hmm. about one thing. For- I just want to ask one, because you've been there, and that's I'm glad you mentioned that, because I was going to ask you. How loud is it? Because it sounds like everything I've ever seen in that venue, especially there's another, I think, I'm pretty sure Wor- Worcester had the, um, it's the, it's the, I want the old Stone Cold back uh, moment. Oh, wow. And I, and that's, I've heard, I have heard that some of the loudest pops people have ever heard are in that building. Could you, is that, was it loud there? Would you say? Yeah. I mean, well, <laughs> the, the episode I was at wasn't that loud. It was the, that draft episode. I honestly yeah. think, and I'm not even joking about this. When we were there that night for the draft, um, the loudest pop that anyone got was Darren Young when he was under the tutelage of Bob Backlund putting the cross-faced chicken wing on someone. That really popped the DCU. Again, this was early on in that angle where they were doing the make Darren Young great again. Yeah. So this was very early on. The cross-faced chicken wing got a huge pop um, before the angle completely went to shit. But um, in honesty, it wasn't that loud that night. But I do make a point later where it sounds like you know, like fucking 50,000 people in the arena on this night yeah. because, you know, normally it's a, it's an arena that seats 13,000 people, but you, you would never guess that from, from this show on this night. But yeah, that's definitely something I'm going to dive into. Uh, but for the record though, the DCU center is a uh, complete dump just so we're clear. Gotcha. <laughs> it's not as good as the, uh, the TD garden where the Bruins and the Celtics play. Okay. But you you'd probably expect that anyway. You know, they're not really – the DCU Center isn't really a uh, – it's not set up for, like, the pro – you know, like a pro environment like uh, like the TD Garden is. So, no. But anyway, so we open the show with a clip from last week on Raw where Vince McMahon fired Shawn Michaels from his commissioner position 
to which HBK responded by super-kicking Vince in the face. We then get a montage of HBK's tenure in the WWF, beginning with his tag team days in the Rockers and progressing through his singles career, and then... Amusingly, while the video is still playing, we hear Vince McMahon yelling at someone to, quote, Get that sentimental crap off the Titan Tron. And from there, we immediately cut to the arena, where Vince McMahon has a microphone, and he's leading the entire corporation to the ring. And so, because of this, we do not get any of the obligatory pyro or scanning of the crowd, but of course, I am still obligated to point out some of the noteworthy signs in the audience, so here are some of them. Socko is my dad... Burn in hell. Take the hose, moron. Billy Gunn, the next icon. I bet that fan probably wants to have that one back. <laughs> Impeach <laughs> Impeach Clinton, mankind for president. Amy, I'm here and you're not. Suck it. <laughs> and, wait, nice, nice to taunt your friends. And amusingly, a little girl held up a sign that said, I fought Shamrock and only got this black eye. And I'll just point out, yeah, I'll just point out it didn't actually look like that girl had a black eye, but maybe she did. They just got a bad angle. I don't know. But still, points points for originality there. So, William, did you see any that I happened to miss? I'm not – I see – I am terrible at this. Like, I'm terrible at it on our own podcast. Like, Jason has got the eagle eye for signs and for stuff in the crowd. I am just <laughs> like the, okay, let me get my notes ready for the uh, the opening segment here. Like, I always am just like – I, I, I just – I never see that stuff unless it's, like, really obvious – Charlie right. and Jason both like find things in the crowd that are incredible, but no, I'm sorry, man. I don't have anything else. I did see, like I, I saw your screen cap. That Shamrock thing's awful. Like that's, yeah. that's awful. I mean, that's yeah. Number 1001 things that have not aged well. Uh, yeah, I know. And it, it, it makes ever, me think like they're terrible. Yeah, that one actually made me think, like, did the father, like, I, I was legit thinking, like, was the father beating the kid and made the kid hold up the sign so it would be, like, cute, you know? That's that's the place it kind of took me to. I was like, why does this little girl have a black eye exactly? That's, uh, I don't know if that's okay. So, I, I mean, I don't know. It, they didn't really, again, it didn't really look like she actually had a black eye, so it could have just been a cute thing. But if she actually did and she was holding up that sign, that's, uh, that's, that's kind of messed up. Oh, kind of yeah. messed up. Yeah. But anyway... So getting back into the show itself, all the members of the corporation are now in the ring. And for those of you scoring at home, this is the debut of The Rock wearing his full tracksuit with shirt and pants, which we now know is a direct result of him having had male breast reduction surgery. Now, the official reason they later give for him having the procedure done is that people of Samoan lineage tend to have more... Uh, pronounced man boobs, I guess. But the cynic in me, of course, also needs to point out that this same surgery could also be used to correct the effects of gynecomastia, which can be brought on by steroid abuse, so feel free to make the call for yourself. Another thing to note is that Pat Patterson and Gerald Briscoe are continuing their mockery of Kane, this time taping a sign to his back which says, Briscoe Brothers Body Shop. Cruel, but admittedly kind of a, kind of a funny visual. So Vince begins by telling the fans not to hold their breath that Shawn Michaels will show up tonight because he knows HBK doesn't have the guts. However, if he does, the corporation will quote-unquote dismember him, and hopefully they don't mean that literally. However, shortly after Vince says that, we do indeed see Shawn Michaels backstage entering the building, and he then proceeds to head out into the arena and stand at the top of the ramp. It would seem that HBK has left himself quite vulnerable coming out all by himself, but he quickly informs us that he brought the cavalry with him, 
and D-Generation X shows up at the top of the ramp to provide him with some backup. Yes, after all those weeks of Commissioner Michaels screwing over DX, it appears that they're willing to let bygones be bygones. HBK then continues his promo, so let's pick it up from there. John is brought back up! Now Vince, according to my overpriced lawyers, my contract as WWF Commissioner is ironclad. What? In fact, it was you, Vince McMahon, who said on national TV that this commissioner would answer to no one, including Vince McMahon. He did say that, King. Oh, no! You heard it. So guess what, Vinny? You can't fire me. In fact, the only way that Shawn Michaels would be incapable of being the WWF commissioner would be if I were to resign. And Vince, there is no way in hell that is ever going to happen. Oh my gosh. We got a lousy president, now we're stuck with a lousy commissioner. So you may safely assume that you will be singing to the tune of sweet chin music for a long, long time. I can't believe this. So now that I'm back in office, let's get to business. Vince, you yourself have said that you can make dreams come true. Well, Vin Man, you've made mine come true, so now I'm gonna make your dreams come true. B-roll the footage! What's what, he talking about? What is he doing? Now then, just to show you that this luck of the draws on the up and up, Shane, I wanna know what number I'll be entered at, and I just hope it's number two. That was the Royal Rumble drawing. Now, Vince, as you know, I have say-so over all WWF competitors, with the exception of Stone Cold Steve Austin. Oh, wait just a minute Well, now. Vinny boy, when you entered the 1999 Royal Rumble, you yourself became a WWF competitor. That's right. Well, what's he driving at here? Wait a minute. So, Vince, it is I that has control over you. Uh-oh. What? Vince McMahon will not be entering the Royal Rumble as the 30th competitor as he picked. No, 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 no. Stone Cold Steve Austin will be the first man to enter the Royal Rumble. Uh-oh. I don't like the sounds of this. And the second man who will be entering the Royal Rumble will be Vince McMahon. Whoa! Mr. McMahon will enter the Royal Rumble. 
So as best I can tell, that ought to give old Stone Cold all night to open a can of whoop-ass on you. Now, Vince, before I leave, I want to leave you with just one small detail. There's more? Sometime this evening, sometime within the next two hours, the heartbreak kid is going to leave this building and go out and get you a surprise. What? Late Christmas present. And Vince, I guarantee you that this surprise is going to drive you stone cold crazy. So there you have it. Shawn Michaels is still the commissioner. He's got DX backing him up. He has now changed Vince McMahon's spot in the Royal Rumble from number 30 to number 2. And by the end of the night, he's promising a stone-cold surprise. Quite the eventful promo for sure. So, William, what did you think of this opening segment? It's all, I mean, now from this, after this opening, the opening opening with like the video and the interruption... Pretty much from this point on, every time I saw like one of these videos, even the true like in memoriams, I'm ready for. I'm just bracing myself for somebody to interrupt because of this. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's so funny that he cut it off halfway. Get that crap out of here. That's so it's awesome. Good. Um, my son was in the room and he started laughing after Vince got put to number two. Like I don't know nice. why he happened. Like for whatever reason that popped Wyatt, and I thought that was really funny. But this is really fascinating because you're right. Like this month is. By the time, like, and I guess I kind of count, like, December, I pretty much after Rock Bottom, through where we're at, is an insane month. Because... Oh, yeah. You are you just nailed it. Like, DX has not really, has unfortunately been getting the crap into the stick from, from Shawn Michaels, and then now all of a sudden they're back out there, and it's like, huh, so that's nice, uh, <laughs> I, I guess. But I like how, yeah. you know, there'll be more to this later, obviously, but it was interesting at the time, I was like, hmm... I wonder what's going on with this, but you know, I mean, the cool thing is, like, obviously, moving him. It's a heck of a promo by Michaels, and he doesn't, you know. And you're, I think you've mentioned this in the previous episodes. Like, it's hard to tell when or how bad the substance abuse is during some of these pop-ups on Raw, because we yeah. had heard, we've heard that that might have been a thing. And I think when you get to 2001, like, it's definitely a thing when he was supposed to come back for X7. That was definitely a thing, but. He gets through this promo. There's a lot of stuff he has to get through. It's in yeah. It's really like this is really a testament to how good of a promo sometimes Shawn Michaels is. It's not talked about a ton, but he has to get through like you know him having the ironclad contract, then Vince McMahon being number two, and then the Stone Cold you know Stone Cold Crazy, which the crowd goes nuts because I think you've mentioned this in like your previous episodes. It's been how many weeks now since we've seen Stone Cold? Four weeks. It's a long time. Four weeks. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and I agree with you, yeah, because HBK in this promo, he does, he, you're right, he has to hit a lot of beats, and the, the funny thing also, too, is that, you know, he's been this complete dickhead heel for the past month, but 
already, just by virtue of him being such a, a consummate performer, the crowd is already back on HBK's side like 100% on this night, even before he says Stone Cold Crazy, which obviously is going to, you know, just oh, yeah. just teasing Stone Cold obviously gets a huge pop. But I mean, just when he comes out, the reunion with DX, the crowd's like, yeah, fucking A, yeah, they're back together, all right, you know, right. they're totally up for it. Although I guess you can't really say back together because HBK was never part of that, uh, he was never part of the New Age Outlaws X-Pac DX, but... Uh, yeah, it was it was interesting though. It's it's a fun little time capsule to see all of those guys together. Where you do see the outlaws with Shawn Michaels, where you see X Pac with Shawn Michaels, um, basically as part of like a full DX unit. And you know, spoiler alert, it doesn't last very long. But yeah, this is a, I thought it was a pretty fun little time capsule there. And as you said, uh, HBK did a fantastic job with the promo, where he's pretty, it was pretty much just him talking for about five straight minutes, putting yeah. Vince at number two. So yeah, a def- great start to the show. And uh, definitely got me amped to see what was going to happen. Obviously, you know, there was one thing I certainly knew was going to happen going in. But, yeah, definitely, definitely great start to the show. So after a commercial break, it is time for our first match of the evening. WWF Intercontinental Champion and one half of the WWF Tag Team Champions, Ken Shamrock versus Steve Blackman in a non-title match. And as if Shamrock and Blackman wasn't enough testosterone for you, just about a minute into the match... Dan the Beast Severn makes his way to ringside. And as I mentioned in the previous episode, Severn is still wearing a neck brace from when Owen Hart kayfabe broke his neck back in September, and he actually ended up costing Owen and, Jar- oh, excuse me, Owen and Jarrett their match last week on Raw 2. So eventually Shamrock realizes that Severn has arrived, and he starts talking trash to him. Severn then jumps up on the ring apron, so Shamrock punches him in the face, knocking him to the floor. Severn tries to enter the ring, but referee Tim White prevents him from doing so. Meanwhile, however, badass Billy Gunn sneaks into the ring, hits Shamrock with a rocker dropper, and scampers off backstage. When Tim White turns back around, Blackman has covered Shamrock, and he gets the one, the two, and the three. Your winner of this non-title match, Steve Blackman. I have to say, I find it interesting that they're seemingly teasing yet another Ken Shamrock versus Dan Severn rivalry, playing off their UFC past. They put the same thing in motion last summer and didn't deliver on it, so maybe they will this time? Uh, No, no, they definitely won't, actually. But, William, what did you think of our opening Shamrock versus Blackman match? This is this one's kind of slow. It's kind of clunky. I mean, like that's why, like you, you, it's it's kind of good the interference happens when it does because this is a match like in '98, like like a few months back, seemed to probably be a little bit hotter, like a little bit more fun to watch. I don't know. It just this mm-hmm. these are two really badass dudes, and they had such good chemistry together. Like I felt like as a tag team, it just, I, and I mean, like I understand. Like part of the thing is. When you're coming off an opening segment like that, it's hard to really like. It's, I, I think it's hard to follow it even with a match. It's very difficult. And Agreed. I just, I, I just, I always wish I, there there had been a better match with these guys. And you're right. I love how they keep teasing this Shamrock Severn thing. And it's like, dude, the ship sailed on that. Like, yeah, like you, if you were gonna do that, it had to be in June of June of this year, not not or June of '98, not you know 1999. It's. It's just way past. Like Shamrock is just kind of a goon now in the in the corporation. You needed to do this when he was a mid card face, and it's just, eh. You know, I this is this is fine. I mean, it's the the one thing I'll give it is it's furthering still the corporation DX thing. You know, you got a, a run in by DX on the corporation, so mm-hmm. for that it works. It's a it's a good if the function of it works. Yeah, it's also a bit perplexing, I will say, because ever since Dan Severn, since September when Owen Hart, you know, quote unquote, broke his neck. 
Severn has only been feuding with Owen in the times when he's popped up, including last week when, as I said, he cost Owen and Jarrett their match. And then one week later, he's still wearing the neck brace, so you would think he would still harbor that grudge toward Owen. But then just one week after costing Owen and Jarrett that match, now it's like, okay, we're pivoting back to Shamrock versus Dan Severn like we kind of did over the summer, which we're, again, not going to to pay off. I don't know if this was a thing where... I would say they were like maybe thinking of a Shamrock versus Severn match at the Royal Rumble, but by the same token, they've been doing that Shamrock Billy Gunn rivalry for several weeks now. Right. So it's like, who? It's it's very um, it's very ADD booking in a way what they're doing right now. Yeah, this is this one hundred percent is we don't know what to do with Dan. Just keep him out there as Shamrock in some way, shape, or form, and people will somewhat care about him. Like this, this just really this really does feel like we're kind of just waiting t- for the clock to run out on the contract. I think yeah. I th- I think they if they were going to do something, they knew they had their chance in the summer and it didn't happen and now it's just a matter of waiting it out. And I mean it's the same thing they were trying to do with Mark Henry. It's like, all right, we signed this guy to a ridiculous contract. We kind of need to we, we realize like he's kind of run the ship's run its course. So let's just do these put him in these ridiculous things. Hopefully he'll quit. But then this amazing thing happens where he becomes better. So that's that's one case where yeah. it, it kind of turned around. But with Severn, you're right. And it's now that you're in January and the road to WrestleMania 15, the mid card is really it's it's all over the place. It feels like for the next yeah. few months, like there's a I think they know what they want at the top and they'll and you'll get there like they'll they'll get exactly what they want. But it does get shuffled around. That's why, like, when you start getting these papers, you're getting these multi-man matches when it's, yes. and I mean by multi-man, like I'm, I'm talking about more than one-on-one, you know, like that's, and, and this first match kind of speaks to that. It's like, we've got all these guys that are involved in this match, but it just, there, there does seem to be that lack of clear direction. Like the intercontinental title, like in 98, it felt like it meant something. Even in early 99 here, it's starting to feel like it doesn't mean all, as much already, you know? I would agree. I would agree with that too. And that, a lot of that is also since Shamrock won the Intercontinental title. It's kind of what you see these days with the modern WWE, because I can't even count how many times Shamrock has jobbed, not necessarily cleanly, you know, there could be interference, but on this show, he lost his non-title match, and he's lost quite a few non-title Intercontinental matches since he won it back in October. So it's it's just kind of strange booking, too, especially when you have Vince Russo right now, who is clearly no stranger to doing DQ finishes. So, you know, things kind of stay in place and nobody jobs, nobody loses. But Shamrock has lost quite a bit in a non-title capacity over the past couple of months. So it's it's really very peculiar how they treat this guy who you put the Intercontinental title on, presumably to give him a rub. And yet, you know, once again, here he is losing to, to Steve Blackman, who's not exactly high up on the totem pole right now. Right. So, yeah, right. it's really... Kind of, kind of strange, but is what it is. So after that, Michael Cole informs us that The Rock and Vince McMahon are currently featured on the cover of Southwest Airlines Spirit magazine. And here Stone Cold thought he was a big deal because he got the cover of TV Guide and a write-up in Rolling Stone, huh? Well, guess what, Austin? The Rock will be seen by every Southwest passenger who reaches into that seat compartment for a barf bag and mistakenly pulls out a magazine. Very prestigious stuff. And after a commercial break, we get the WWF Rewind, presented by 1010220. And I think this is actually a first, William, because the segment they're rewinding 
is literally from moments ago when Billy Gunn interfered and cost Ken Shamrock his match. Never seen that before. Usually those rewinds are from at least a week prior. However, it does provide a fitting segue because we then cut backstage where Billy and Shamrock are brawling with each other, and eventually referees and WWF officials arrive and separate them, but it certainly appears as though the rivalry between these two is showing no signs of letting up, despite the the random Dan Severn involvement. So from there, we head back to the arena where Mankind is walking to the ring. While he's coming down the ramp, we get a replay of two weeks ago on Raw when he put the testicular claw on Pat Patterson, which he references at the beginning of his promo here. And this segment's actually about seven and a half minutes long, but I think it's a perfect setup for what happens later tonight. So you know what? I'm going to go ahead and play the whole thing for you right here. It's been a crazy couple weeks, and I think I've learned a little bit about myself. I've done a couple things for the first time. Maybe you saw it on Raw, but I swear it was the first time I'd ever grabbed a man's testicles in my life. What? Patterson, I gotta tell you, in a rugged, manly type of way, I kind of enjoyed it. Oh, come on. This guy's an idiot. Poor Pat Patterson. It was also the first time that Mick Foley has ever used the words, suck it, without a please in front of them. Hey, and I just found out. You like that, huh? No, I don't like I that. I just found out that I've got a new hobby that I like best of all, and it's called kicking the McMahon family's asses. <laughs> what? How dare him? He's done it for a couple of straight so weeks. Vince McMahon, although you hate my guts and I hate every single inch of you, I guess I've got a little favor to ask. You see, I would like a shot at the Rock's title at the Royal Rumble pay-per-view. Oh, oh, he wants a favor now, huh? And I think I deserve it. Not because I made your son Shane cry and whimper like a two-year-old with a poop in his pants. Oh, you're going to get it. Not because I bounced your head off those beer kegs like Ricky Ricardo playing Babalu on the bongos. Now he's a comedian. But because I see all these signs out here that say Foley is God... But I think they got one letter wrong. You see, Foley is not God, but he is pretty damn good. And I beat The Rock. I shoved a sock down his throat. And I deserve the shot at the Royal Rumble. King, he did beat The Rock at rock bottom, only to have it ripped away from him. What I humbly am asking you right now is to get your... Can I say ass on television? No! Get your ass out here now, Dad! He said it! Mankind demanding Mr. McMahon come out! I'm waiting for you, Mr. McMahon. He's asked Mr. McMahon for a favor. And even calling Dad. A shot at the... Uh Uh-oh. And there he is. The owner of the World Wrestling Federation. Will he grant Mankind his favor? 
least anybody think uh, I'm going to be surprised. I won't be. The corporate team is right behind me. Of course. No as calls far as you go, mankind, you're nothing but a disillusioned, decrepit, disfigured monster. Right. You asking to be the number one contender for the World Wrestling Federation title simply stains that sacred honor. Your name connected with the WWF title stains indeed the World Wrestling Federation itself. You see, you've had your opportunities in the past and quite frankly, you blew it. You didn't listen to me. Had you listened to me, you may be the WWF champion now, but no, you had to do what you always did. You listened to them. What is it with you? All the cheap motel rooms, all the bad food you eat, all the sacrifices you put your physique through, and, and for what? Just for the roar of them. Yeah. They love it. God, how pathetic. How pathetic. I like that roar. You see, you crossed over the line. Because in essence, what you did was you stained, you soiled the good McMahon name when you put your filthy, slimy hands on my son Shane. And you've got the guts to ask me to be the number one contender against The Rock for the Royal Rumble. I'm amazed. Let me say this. You know, and everyone in this building knows, you don't deserve the right to be the number one contender. That's true. No, it isn't. You haven't paid your dues, Mankind, Mick Foley, Cactus Jack, Dude Love, whatever the hell your name is, if you even know, you haven't paid your dues. That's Maybe not true. one day you might come back up the ladder to attempt to take the hardcore title away, but you've even failed in that as of late. You, the number one contender for the WWF? <laughs> no, no, that's not even funny. That's not laughable at all. You see, Mick, not only will you not have an opportunity to win the World Wrestling Federation title at the Royal Rumble, as far as I'm concerned, you will never, ever again have that accolade. Thank goodness. However, being the benevolent individual I am, Mick, I'll tell you what I will do for you, and I'll do it tonight. You will have the opportunity to enter the Royal Rumble. You see, you can get close to the title, but no cigar. Story of your life. Tell you what I'll do. You and Triple H, Hunter Hearst Helmsley, can go at it in that very ring tonight. Whoever wins the match is entered into the Royal Rumble. However, just one other thing, and, and I'd like to direct your attention to uh, the Titan Tron. I have a little piece of footage I'd, I'd like to remind you of. Shane, look, look at this. But keep in mind, this was a challenge Shane laid out to Mankind two weeks ago. He challenged Mankind, King. 
All right, get it off. Get it, get, get it off the screen. The match tonight, you versus Hunter Hearst Helmsley. The winner gets to go to the Royal Rumble. There's only one thing. There will be a guest referee, and that guest referee will be impartial. That guest referee will call it right down the line. Indeed, that guest referee will be my son, Shane. Oh, come on. That's not fair. Yes. That oh, great. Just one other thing. Have a nice day. So Vince McMahon has refused Mankind's request to be the number one contender for The Rock's WWF Championship at the Royal Rumble, but he has booked Mankind versus Triple H tonight on Raw in an attempt to further drive a wedge between Foley and DX. The winner of that match will be entered into the Royal Rumble, and the special guest referee for it will be Shane McMahon. Clearly, Vince has no desire for Mick Foley to ever again ascend into number one contender status, so the deck is certainly stacked against him. So with that in mind, William, what did you think of this promo duel between Mankind and Vince McMahon? It's great. This this is the most important month for Mankind and Mick Foley as a performer. This, this December-January run here, when Austin is out of the picture, it's really important. Every time he has been on, and I think you can vouch for this based on your previous weeks, he is getting more and more over. And the good thing is he's not getting over by doing the stunts, or as they would be called. You know, like, oh, he's not doing these, he's not diving off the cage or getting thrown through this or being put through that. He's getting right. over with his mic, his mic skills. And that's what's really, really cool about this. And that's what's really fun to watch. It's fun to watch Vince, too. Like, It's fun to watch him start playing off of different people, more people really helping him round out this Mr. McMahon character because it really hasn't been a year yet since he's really gone all in on it. And it's fun to see him just work it out still with other performers. Now, I told you I don't notice signs. I noticed one sign. When I saw a Mankind for President that spelled M-A-N-D-K-I-N-D, I I was like... Yeah, I did see. I saw that, Well done, sir. Well done. Mankind. Yeah, but it's it's a good point that you're making. So with with Foley's promo here, when he's speaking, we get kind of a, a range... Of emotions because we get the intensity at the beginning where he talks about wanting to kick the McMahon family's asses. We get the humor where he's saying the talking about the testicular claw and how he likes putting it on Pat Patterson in a manly way. And of course, my favorite line of the promo had to be where he said last week when he was hanging out with DX, it's the first time he said the word the phrase "suck it" without the word "please" in front of it, <laughs> which I think that's a fantastic line. And he says you can actually hear the crowd react to it; they laugh because he plays off and he's like, "Oh, you like that, huh?" And then the third thing that I notice is when Vince is running him down and he's saying, you do this all for the people just to hear that roar. And we actually get a little bit of sentimentality from Mankind where he's like, I like that roar. And, you know, I, I just think it's it's a great promo from Foley. It's a great promo from Vince, too. Uh, particularly what jumped out at me was when he does that, like, fake laugh where he's like, you as the number one contender, haha, and he immediately cuts himself off. He's like, no, you know what? That's not even funny. That's just pathetic. So, yeah, this is – and again, I, I don't want to use necessarily the phrase brilliant for a setup to what happens later tonight, but I think this is – a pretty brilliant way of how they go about getting to where they eventually get yeah, tonight. Because you don't because, see it coming. Yeah, not at all. Absolutely not at all. Not you have no clue. It follows those sorts of uh, wrestling beats that we're used to, where it's like, oh, he wants a title shot at the Royal Rumble. Okay, and it seems like that's exactly where this is going. Mankind wants to be the number one contender at the Royal Rumble. We've seen this a million times. It's the next pay per view. You're setting up your next feud. It's a hundred percent in character with what they would do at the time and what they still do to this day. So, yeah, it just makes it that much more 
surprising and that much more amazing when they finally get where they're going at the end of the night. So, yeah, again, another another great promo. I know it was a bit long, but um, I don't mind playing it because, again, I think it's hugely important to take that oh, yeah. into context when you get to the to the ultimate destination. When you one last thing on the, like Patterson must have liked it a little bit because he's dressed exactly like mankind tonight. <laughs> He's dressed in the brown pants, point. the, the button-down shirt with a tie, or what? I don't know if I forget if he had the tie or not, but he looks he looks almost exactly like mankind. Well, well, quite frankly, those brown pants will serve him well later oh, when yeah. uh, when what happens to him happens. Because yeah. Uh, yeah. Anyway, so after the conclusion of that segment, we cut backstage where we see China talking with a um, girlfriend of hers who is wearing a tight black dress and black gloves. Last night on Sunday Night Heat during his match with Triple H, Mark Henry was distracted when China and this same special friend of hers showed up at the top of the ramp, and that distraction allowed Hunter to hit Sexual Chocolate with a pedigree and secure the victory. And at this point, William, the main thought going through my mind was that this episode of Raw was a gift that just keeps on giving. But more on China and her special friend in just a moment, though. So after the commercial break, we go back to the arena where it's time for our next match, the aforementioned Mark Henry versus Goldust, and when I saw that this was the matchup, I couldn't help but think that, in theory, we could have still been getting this very same match on Raw as recently as last year before Mark Henry retired. That's my first note. That's exactly my first note, is that these are two technically active wrestlers. (laughs) Yeah. So when's Goldust going in the Hall of Fame? Come on, Mark Henry got to go in. Exactly. I'm sure it'll happen eventually. Oh, yeah. It's it's definitely going to happen. No question. So early on in the match, Mark Henry hit Goldust with a power slam, and he then yelled at him, quote, This is my house, so I think a six-year-old page was taking notes. <laughs> and after a few minutes of some relatively mediocre action, Mark Henry then hit Goldust with a pretty impressive-looking leg drop. He got some really nice height on it, I have to say. For a, for a big guy, that was a pretty high leg drop. However, at that point... China and her special friend appeared at the top of the ramp. And I also have to note that China's friend was wearing a black dress when we saw her backstage, but she is now wearing a cheetah print dress. So it's almost like they taped that one segment ahead of time or something. Ah, strange. Probably just, probably just me nitpicking. So just like on Sunday Night Heat, the appearance of China and her friend distracts Mark Henry, which allows Goldust to hit him from behind with a rear sit-out slam. Goldust then props Henry up in the corner, gets a running start... And hits him with the Shattered Dreams. And strangely, we don't actually get a bell signaling the end of the match, but they do play Goldust's music after he kicks Henry in the balls. So for those of you scoring at home, Goldust loses by disqualification, but they play his music anyway. Okay then. So Goldust heads backstage, and when he does, China and her special friend make their way to the ring. Mark Henry is still doubled over in pain from getting kicked in the dick, so China plants a kiss on his cheek, grabs a microphone, and says this. A kiss! That'll help him back to his feet. I hope you're not hurt too bad, Mark, because there's something I need you to listen to, okay? Now listen. I have a little confession to make. The other night with you was incredible. Whoa! The other night! No, I'm serious, it was. But I'm afraid that I'm not enough woman for you. What? No, I'm serious. Because the fact is that you're way too much man for one woman, sexual chocolate. Well, everybody knows that! You are. 
So I want you to meet my friend Sammy. Sammy? Now I know you like tall women. Hello, Sammy. And I know that you like exotic dancers. So I have a little proposition for you. I thought that I only if it was okay with you that Sammy and I can help you take a load off your mind. Timber! Wait a minute, he's famous! Mark Henry has faded! Okay, so a couple things here. Number one, why does Mark Henry faint at the possibility of a threesome when two weeks ago on Raw, he literally thought he was about to have a three-way with Terry and Jackie before they turned the tables on him? It should be second nature for sexual chocolate at this point. And number two, it's incredibly obvious to anyone watching that China's friend Sammy is quite clearly a man wearing a dress. And the problem here is that pretty much anyone can see this coming a mile away, except for Mark Henry and the commentators. It kind of reminds me of Unforgiven 2002, when Eric Bischoff brought out what he thought was a woman named Hildegard, who was quite clearly Rikishi in drag. It's a segment where, it's like one of those segments where literally everyone can figure out what's going on, except for the on-camera talent. And in my opinion, it doesn't really make for a very satisfying reveal. It just kind of makes the people involved look incredibly stupid. But I don't know, William, what did you think of Mark Henry versus Goldust and the subsequent threesome proposal by China and Sammy? I mean, the match is what it is. It's it's not designed to be very much. It's really just a setup for this this little bit that we're going to get here. Uh, when yeah. you said it's a gift that keeps on giving, like, I was astounded. Like, there are, there are a few of these little things like this that come up. I'm like, my God, this happened on this night, or this was set up on this night. It's wild. Yep. Like, what a nexus this episode is. I know. It's of- like the it, – this episode is like the best of one world and, like, also the worst oh, of yeah. one world. It's like It's like the best of Raw and the worst of Raw combined in the same episode. Yeah. You're absolutely right. Like, I mean, this is truly where we're getting into this this phase with Mark Henry where it's like – his in-ring stuff doesn't matter. Like that's why, like you know, he has that. He does have that awesome leg drop that he breaks out. But it's like his in-ring stuff is pretty much like on the back burner. All his he's he's in that same mode as like the Godfather, where it's like you have as like everything you do is on the way to the ring or after the match. Everything else is just kind of eh. We don't really care. Yeah, you're just entertainment, Absolutely. Mark. So uh, yeah, I mean. Uh, what I would have loved is if Mark had not they they had told him backstage like okay this is the segment China or China's gonna come out with a friend and blah 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 but he doesn't see who it is and <laughs> I, I think it would have been awesome to see his reaction like genuine like when he saw Sammy just to see how he would have to react right not, <laughs> that would have been so much fun I wouldn't put it past Vince Russo quite frankly. Um, the other thing, too, is, like, it's supposed to be, you know, it's it's going to be, again, spoiler, a revelation that obviously Mark Henry doesn't know Sammy is a man. But, like, number one, you're calling her Sammy, which is not hiding anything at all. You know what I mean? It's like, who? I've never met a woman. I've met a couple Samanthas in my time. I'm related to one. And none of them have ever gone by Sammy. You know, Sam, maybe, but it's like they're being pretty overt with this and basically saying, like, you know, yeah, if you don't get what's going on. Um, you're kind of an idiot in this case because which is not which is really not the intention of it because they try to set up a surprise reveal but it's like no we can we can quite clearly see where this is going and you're not doing a good job disguising it you're not even disguising the name you're giving her a guy's name so props to china though i give her some props because this is 
like we we focus on like what the what the joke is of the segment, but I think she's she's starting. Well, she's already been, but she's further and further coming into her own as like a her own kind of character, like not just a DX standby. Yes, and that's that's what's kind of neat to watch. Like this is again like in terms of acting and performance, this is hard. Like the the to have to like do this and do it completely serious with a little bit of subtext is is not an easy thing to do, and you know. She pulls it off really well. Yeah, she's been getting a lot more mic time recently because up until pretty much that date that she had with Mark Henry back in, uh, I think it was like the the late November episode of Raw, she hasn't really spoken very much at all. We had like you know the moment over the summer where she did the DX split thing where she's like, if anybody's going to do the DX split, it's me, and she kind of like mooned the crowd. But she was not getting much mic time at all until just the past couple weeks. So, yeah, they're, they're really um, getting more confidence in her, kind of letting her uh, you know, speak in front of the live crowd a lot more, which ultimately I think proves to be a pretty, a pretty good thing in this case because, uh, yeah, China, you know, she, she does a damn good job. The, the fans absolutely love China. So, yeah, and clearly, clearly Mark Henry is a, a pretty big fan as well. But, yeah, so I, I, uh, I can't complain too much. This is one of those moments where, like, for me, the whole Sammy thing and, and what happens next week – it's you watch it at the time, and like I remember when this happened back in 1999. Like there are moments on this show where like at the time I can just remember like cringing, like oh, like why are you doing this, you know? But in retrospect now, I can kind of go back and actually enjoy it from like a camp perspective to be like, okay, well they they really went for this, they swung and they missed, but they certainly went for something there, so you know, good for them. Right, but. Although when we get to a moment later, there's a it's just a cringeworthy moment that still remains cringeworthy for me. But yeah. that's a whole other thing. Oh yeah. But yeah. So yeah, was there anything else you wanted to add about China and or Sammy? No, I mean next week is when you really get to because uh, I is it is it just a one week payoff? Like is that is this pretty? I think this is resolved next week, right? Pretty sure. Yeah. yeah. Pretty sure next yeah. week is the reveal. Yeah. When when I believe Mark Henry's mother is in attendance as well. So yeah. Good times. Good times. Now, after that segment ends, if you're watching on the WWE Network, we get a very quick cutaway once the Sammy segment ends, and that's because they have indeed edited out a portion of the show. And what was removed from the initial broadcast was a segment where they showed footage from another network's coverage of Jesse Ventura being sworn in as the governor of Minnesota, and of course, because they won't miss the opportunity to remind you that Jesse got his start in the WWF, they then segued into a plug for their new home video, Jesse Ventura, the mouth, the myth, the legend. Just had to capitalize on that publicity, you know? But yeah, that's what they edited out if you're wondering why there's that sort of like quick cut there. Probably probably C-SPAN footage, I don't know what network it was, but one of those, one of those networks. And after a commercial break, we then cut to what appears to be some sort of dungeon where Dennis Knight is chained to a ceiling somewhere and yelling for someone to help him. Now, remember last week, Knight said that, quote-unquote, he told him to be at the arena, which appeared to be a setup because the Acolytes ended up jumping him in the parking lot, throwing him into the trunk of his car, and driving away with him. So clearly, we have a situation here where someone has been kidnapped and tortured, but no time for that because we segue back into the arena where the Godfather and his hoes are heading to the ring. So Godfather's opponent this week is Test, and William, were you as thrown off as I was when Test not only came to the ring wearing short tights, but also that his theme song was goddamn harmonica music? I didn't know. I, that's my first note. What is this music? Like, what? <laughs> 
Like, what is this? Like, it. I don't remember, uh, Henry. Is this a? Ne- is that a network edit? You think, or is that an actual? Was that actually what it was at the time? That was actual. I went back and found the original footage. Okay. That is the the tune they use. Potentially, I guess some some blues man. They said, "Hey, have at it." You know, wow. play play wail away on that fucking harmonica that's, for test theme song. God, that's a playlist somebody needs to create. Is just like the one off like theme songs of the night of ninety eight ninety nine. Like the Undertaker, Undertaker's got like five, I swear. Yeah, he they, does. They, yeah, they just kept experimenting. I, you, I think you said The Rock had one. Mankind has this one that he's using right now on this episode. So it, yep. it's wild the one-offs that they give these guys. Yeah, The Rock has actually had two one-off theme songs where, um, like, they were literally used just one night and then they completely got rid of it for obvious reasons. And yeah, this Mankind theme. Again, I completely forgot he ever had this theme where it's kind of like the remix of his um, his classic, you know, yeah, yeah. Um, schizophrenic mankind theme yeah. song. But yeah, again, I, I had no recollection of him using this theme song for so long, uh, particularly given what happens tonight when they play the song. So yeah, and now what I'm going to do here, actually, I'm, I'm just going to go ahead and I'm going to play the clip of test entering to that harmonica music okay. just in case just in case people don't believe that it happened uh, here's a quick clip of test entering to that strange theme song that will never be heard from, well may, might be heard from again i don't know i guess we'll see So, William, by the way, this is also Test's first ever one-on-one match on Raw. So he tag-teamed with The Rock two weeks ago to face Triple H and X-Pac, but they now apparently have enough faith in Test to send him out there solo. And also in another first, I believe this is also the first time we see The Godfather execute what becomes one of his trademark moves, waving his arms around and imitating a train, then executing a running splash into the corner. And charmingly, obviously, he ends up calling this move the Ho Train, but since it hasn't been named yet, Michael Cole simply refers to it as the choo-choo train, as though he was five years old. And once Vintage God- Godfather. <laughs> yeah, right. Vintage Godfather with that choo-choo train. And once Godfather hits that move, Val Venus shows up at the top of the ramp. Now, Val should have a rooting interest in this match for a couple reasons, since he had been teaming with the Godfather until recently, and also because Test jumped him from behind last week on Raw. And then, in a perplexing finish, while both men are brawling outside the ring, Test Irish whips Godfather into one of the turnposts, and the referee calls for the bell. So once again, the WWF gives us a disqualification for something which is almost never a disqualification. So Val then runs to ringside and starts brawling with Test as referees and WWF officials attempt to get between them. So, William, what did you think of Test versus the Godfather and the subsequent shenanigans with Val Venus? Not too much. I mean, this is, again, just kind of a, uh, you know, just a kind of a quick thing here. Like, it, it's going to be interesting to watch Test come into his zone because he really does. Like, he becomes a better worker. Uh, yeah, he does. Over the, Absolutely. Over the next few years. And, geez, like, I mean, when he resurfaces in ECW, like, in the mid-2000s, it's like, I mean, he's, oh. he's gassed beyond, like, <laughs> beyond his gills at that point. Oh, yes. He's on so He, he would not... Points. He would not pass a wellness test at that point. He would, yeah. He'd never. Yes, you're right. Absolutely. Ha- him and Val Venus having a bit of a feud. It's fine. It's okay. It's weird. Like the tough thing in this time period is like when Val isn't doing like the promos. Like because that's he's another guy. It's like 
it's all it's it's the promo. It's, yeah, it, that that that's kind of all Val is, and that you know is he a good worker? Oh yeah, definitely. I'll give him credit for that. He's a good worker. Uh, that the finisher, the money shot, great. He's got a couple good setup moves that are fun, but. I mean, man, this is another one of these. This is another one of your your typical raw matches where it's like we're not really throwing two guys together, but we're basically throwing two guys together. But we're gonna let their storylines kind of dictate the match for then the match itself. So, right, um, yeah, not a lot to it, man. Like you said, like the finish is kind of goofy. You know how they again like kind of changing up rules on the spot. Yeah, like, why why not? Like get thrown into a post and just ring the bell, man. We gotta go home. We gotta go yeah. home. <laughs> Well, we we don't want either guy to job. We want to kind of keep them both relatively strong. So we'll just we'll just do a DQ finish. Why not? Yeah, pretty pretty much a common occurrence on most episodes of Raw. If you've been listening to the, to the past, like I don't know, three months worth of episodes, this is the the DQs have recently become like completely overboard on Raw. Like you can you can pretty much count on at least two or three DQs every single show at this point, which may not sound like a lot, but they're doing like probably five or six matches per show. So it, it really is about half the, the matches lately have been ending in DQs. So yeah, Vince Russo, that, uh, that creative genius. So from there, we cut backstage where Shawn Michaels is joking around with all five members of D-Generation X. It appears as though the Heartbreak Kid is back together with his pals, so that should certainly spell trouble for the corporation if he and DX are back on the same page. And speaking of DX, that segues us into our next match, and it is for a spot in the Royal Rumble match. Triple H, accompanied by China, versus Mankind with special guest referee Shane McMahon. Wait a second. Mick Foley and Triple H going head-to-head? I can see why they put that on free TV, since that, that's never going to draw any money. No, sir. No, sir. Now, before the match, they showed the Slam of the Week, which is, of course, presented by the classic Nintendo 64 game, Glover. The clips of the show are actually from two weeks ago, where Shane put himself into a match against Mankind, and Foley proceeded to beat the crap out of him. So will Shane be able to put that aside and referee a clean, impartial match? I suppose we shall see. So the match only ended up going for a couple minutes, but the finish was rather interesting. So Triple H had been thrown out of the ring by Mankind, so he climbed back up on the apron, and from there, Triple H leaped over the top rope and attempted a sunset flip. I honestly had no idea that Hunter had that in his repertoire at this point. However, Mankind was able to grab the rope to prevent himself from going down, but Shane kicked Foley's hand, causing Mick to fall into pinning position, and Shane then did a very fast count for the one, the two, and the three. Your winner, and now the third confirmed man to enter the 1999 Royal Rumble, Triple H. And after the match ends, Shane raises Hunter's arm in victory, and Triple H has a microphone, so let's listen to what he has to say. Business. That's right. Business is business. A win is a win. And when it comes to the WWF title, I'll take it any way I can get it. You got it. Well, Triple and, H. But I will say one thing. Happy New Year. <laughs> Wait a minute. Triple H. He's got Shane. No way. Wait a minute. No. Pedigree. Triple H delivers the pedigree to Shane He's all yours. No! Help! Help! We need help out here! 
So, as you heard there, Triple H was willing to accept the tainted victory, but in order to pay it forward for Mankind, he hit Shane with a pedigree to incapacitate him. That left Mankind alone in the ring with Shane, and from there, Mick Foley proceeds to take advantage of that scenario. I'm going to show you a little move that Jim McGonagall taught me back in Ward Melville. What's he doing? Shane's already hurt from the pedigree. Shane, I'm going to break your shoulder. Over here in Worcester, wants to hear Shane scream. Hold it right there, Vince. I'll break it off. I'll break it off. God help me. I'll break your shoulder. Vince, I've changed my mind. You see, I no longer desire a title shot at the Royal Rumble. Do I say? Please, let him up! I want a title shot tonight. What? Tonight? Just let him up! What'd you say? Okay? Yes. Yes. Let me think it over. Let him go! Not good enough, Dad! Let him go! I want a stipulation. What do you say, Shane? Let him go! Damn it! Let him go! No DQ! What do you say, Dad? All right, no DQ! What'd you say, no DQ? You got it. I guess we've got ourselves a little deal. So what you heard there was Mankind saying that he was going to show Shane a move that he learned at Ward Melville, which is a reference to Ward Melville High School in East Setucket, New York, where Mick Foley went to school. And from there, Mick proceeds to start stretching Shane as though he was Stu Hart until Vince McMahon, Pat Patterson, and Gerald Briscoe come out from backstage. And as you heard there, instead of a title match at the Royal Rumble, Mankind demanded one tonight instead. And even better, he also made the stipulation that the match would have no disqualifications. Certainly, that's a refreshing change of pace for these episodes of Raw lately. So not wanting his son's arm to be snapped in half, Vince accepted the terms of Mankind's proposal, so it is now official. Tonight, here in Worcester, it will be The Rock putting his WWF Championship on the line against Mankind in a no-DQ match. Mankind then escapes through the crowd, and an angry rock emerges from backstage to yell at Vince for conceding to Foley's demands. So, William, what did you think of Mankind versus Triple H and Mick Foley's subsequent turning of the tables on the McMahon family? The match is pretty good. It doesn't last long, like you said. What's fun to watch with, particularly a, 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 when you have two guys going head-to-head like Triple H and Mankind, is the evolution of their matches. Like, you go back a couple years back when, you know, it was Blue Blood Triple Eight or Hunter Hearst Helmsley versus, you know, classic Mankind, like the first incarnation of Mankind. And it's interesting where they'll go here and then in a year where they're at again. Yeah. It's, it's fascinating to watch that. Rock and Austin are the same way, watching the evolution of their matches. Now, clearly, the match itself is not really the focus of this, although it's fine. That finish is awesome. It comes out it, yes. it comes out of nowhere, although you should be kind of primed for it based on the fact that Shane's there in the first place. But what I love is that what they do comes out of nowhere. It's really, really good. And then right. just the I this is you can see Triple H starting to make the turn. He is slowly mm-hmm. starting to make the turn into what he'll be full on in a year. 
especially when he's like business is business like that yeah. that's a very triple h the game kind of line um, especially nowadays i would say he still says that yeah, probably I bet he does <laughs> and then he pedigrees people and they're going out the door yeah um one thing i love it's a li- nice little nugget here with the the mankind then stretching of shane is that he just was talking about in the promo how he's kind of corny and you know i've only when i said suck it i usually have a please in front of it or whatever yeah he says, I'm going to break his goddamn shoulder. Like, yes. And that's awesome. That's a great little piece to show you that, like, he's been pushed too far. Like, you can only push a man so far. If Mankind could have been in a movie during this time, it would have been falling down. Him instead of Michael Douglas. That would have been awesome. <laughs> nice. And and that that's, that's, again, like, man, like, there's so many little things that make this episode really brilliant. Little things. Like, I mean, well, not all the little things. Some of them make it pretty bad, but... Yeah. Little things coming like, up next. Golly, the little things like this are really cool, and the fact that as if you're watching this on TV or you're in the crowd, like you just saw this, like oh, mankind got screwed, and it's like no, 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 mankind's taken over, and yeah, and now you're set up for this main event, so you're like, I just went like from an eight now to a ten, but actually I'm gonna go even higher than that, really, by what we get obviously at the end. But golly, man, this is a really, I mean, it it really gets you pumped for that last hour. It really does. No question. You don't get that feeling a lot nowadays. Maybe you get it night after Mania on Raw or something, but when you get this feeling, dude, I mean, like, it doesn't matter how many times you watch it. Like, you get goosebumps, you get pumped to get to that main event because it's something really oh, yeah. exciting. Yeah, this, the whole thing, I, I agree with you. It's it's fantastic. Uh, one thing that stood out for me was the fact that I don't think we've ever seen Mankind use any sort of submission other than the Mandible Claw. But I was like, oh, he's fucking stretching Shane like he's going to break his shoulder. He should do that in matches. That might make more sense, too. Oh, yeah. But regarding regarding Shane, I was wondering what he was thinking because he obviously helps Triple H win. But, I mean, the corporation is also feuding with DX. So what exactly did he think was going to happen? The Triple H was just going to be like, yeah, thanks a lot, buddy. It's like, you, you, you should have seen that one coming, Shane. But yeah. Again, again, like we said before, this is a, a fantastic setup for what happens later on. It's a complete, it's a completely brilliant turning of the tables where it's just like, yeah, like you said, oh, mankind got screwed. Okay, he's not going to be the number one contender, and he's not going to be in the Royal Rumble. Oh, wait a minute. Not only is he now the number one contender, that shit's happening tonight in this arena. So it's just absolutely amazing. It was fantastic stuff. And again, I'll, I will, I'll just flat out say it. I think the setup really is brilliant. I think this is one of... The combination of factors where it, you come in not basically expecting any sort of title match, and now we've got a title match halfway through the show, combined with how they also play up whether or not somebody is going to show up at the end of the night, uh, absolutely amazing. I, I do really think this is a brilliant setup think for Think about this. Think about this for a second. What if you would never watched, you were one of the people that were being, because there were tons of these people that were coming into the product. Because they were hearing, they were seeing the shirts, they were hearing things about these shows that are on Monday. They're like, what's this suck it thing? What's this too sweet thing? <laughs> Imagine if this is your very first night watching. Oh. It would have been incredible. Like, this, you you almost wish that you didn't know anything about wrestling and this was your first night. Because your reaction, I mean, I think it would even be more surprised because you definitely wouldn't see any of this stuff coming. Oh, it's, Absolutely. It's really cool. And again, just looking back on this, the fact that they do this all in Worcester, of all places, like, again, they're not in Boston. They're not in, like, a major arena. They're not in MSG or Chicago or L.A. They're in friggin' Worcester, Massachusetts, and they're pulling off a show like this. It's just absolutely insane to me. Just in retrospect, it's like, wow, we're going to 
pull out all the stops for fucking Worcester, Massachusetts. It's just kind of surreal. It reminds me of when, like, uh, I think Samoa Joe beat Finn Balor at an NXT house show in, like, Lowell, Massachusetts a few years ago. Yes. I was like, I was like, really, what the hell? In front of a thousand people in Lowell in a non-televised show, you're going to do that. Okay, well, it, it's clearly, it's it's just Massachusetts where they, they busted need, all these special things. Go to every house show in Massachusetts because you're bound to see something crazy happen. Yeah, that's right. And also, actually, going back to 92, remember when the Mountie won the Intercontinental yeah. title over Bret Hart? Yeah. I remember, I distinctly remember that was in Springfield, Mass, because if you watch the 92 Royal Rumble, as I have on quite a few occasions, because it's fucking amazing, they say Springfield, Massachusetts a billion times because the Mountie goes into that show as the defending champ. And yeah, so that, again, uh, clearly just any show in Massachusetts, you got to go. Although I certainly don't live by that rule because I've skipped many of them over the past few years. But, you know, is what it is. So now, actually, before we move on, though, now, William, do you remember how I said that uh, Mankind escaped through the crowd after he stretched Shane there? Yes. So will you indulge me for just a moment when I read a passage from Mick Foley's 1999 autobiography, Have a Nice Day, A Tale of Blood and Sweat Socks? Absolutely. Fantastic. So... In terms of Shane escaping through the crowd, here, or rather, excuse me, in terms of Mick escaping through the crowd, here is what he has to say in his book. I decided to take off. No, sorry, I won't do that. <laughs> I decided to take off through the people, as I'd seen so many wrestlers do before. I almost didn't get out in one piece. I had neglected to tell security of my grand exit scheme, and as a result, there was no one to block the fans from reaching out and touching me, and slapping me, and tearing off my clothes. For anyone who wondered why I showed up for battle with a shredded garment, now you know. So there you go. If you ever go back and watch the main event of this show, as you should, be sure to remember that little tidbit when you see Mick's torn apart business shirt revealing his Job Squad t-shirt underneath. Fun little piece of history there, as the fans apparently almost tore him apart before the main event. So, good times. So after a commercial break, it's time for our next match. Edge versus D'Lo Brown. And I just want to note that before the match begins, they replay the angle from last week where D'Lo was talking smack to PMS, and the clip they show prominently features that sign that says, Your pussy must stink in the background. I mean, they couldn't have... <laughs> couldn't have gotten a different angle, shown a different part of the segment. So, oh, well. And I will say... Even though this is essentially a relative throwaway match between two mid-carters, apparently Edge didn't get that memo, because early on he hits D'Lo with a Hurricane Rana, and then he follows that up with his over-the-top rope plancha onto D'Lo, onto the arena floor. Edge is refusing to be ignored, folks, and that's probably going to serve him pretty well throughout his career. And what progresses from there, in my opinion, is actually a really entertaining match. Edge eventually went to the top rope and hit D'Lo with a cross-body block, and then... Uh, the aforementioned Terry Runnels and Jacqueline emerge from backstage. And this week, Terry is holding her stomach as she walks to the ring in order to helpfully remind us of her pregnancy. And from there, Terry actually gets up on the ring apron to yell at D'Lo. He starts walking toward her, and then, well, let's just pick it up from there. Terry's still not telling who the father is. She's up on the apron now. She doesn't know. Look out, dude. She climbed up on the apron, a verbal confrontation with D-Lo. 
And apparently she, she slipped off the stairs. We need some help. Now, as you heard there, when D'Lo walked toward Terry, she slipped and fell off the ring steps, landing on the arena floor and helpfully giving us an upskirt shot because, you know, attitude era. But then from there, I know a lot of you listening right now are probably thinking, I, I must have misheard what was going on in that clip. Surely they didn't just do a miscarriage angle on a wrestling show, right? Right? Oh, they did. So paramedics eventually come to the scene and they put Terry onto a stretcher, from there, they wheel her backstage, and then, after the commercial break, to further drive the point home, we see a doctor with a stethoscope listening to her stomach, and, well, I guess I might as well play that clip, too. Terry clutching her stomach. Of course, Terry Runnels a few months pregnant, and this is live now in the locker room area. They must be afraid to move her. D'Lo Brown in the background, obviously distraught. As Terry Reynolds says she's pregnant, she's obviously concerned about her baby. This, this king is tragic. It is just tragic. It appears that the doctor listening through his stethoscope can't detect any sort of pulse, so it seems that Terry Reynolds may indeed have lost her baby. Jesus H. Christ. So, William, in terms of tasteless angles in the history of professional wrestling, how high would you say the Terry Runnels miscarriage ranks on that list? I mean, I mean, it's got to go pretty high. I mean, the number one is one that didn't happen is that is the Vince Stephanie incest angle that they never did. Oh. That's got to be, even though it never happened, like even the fact that that was batted around as an idea is the most is is the worst. Uh, probably although just they did eventually get there, are they? They have yeah. done incest angles, though. I think, um, what was it, the Paul Burchill and Katie Lee, I think, was initially teased as an incest angle, right? Yeah, I guess, yeah. The fact that it's Vince... I feel like there was another one, too. Yeah, you're right. I mean, like, this is probably high up there. Only be... And I look at this from all the angles of it. Like, is it tasteless? Yes. I feel like part of the problem is the, the pregnancy thing was this way to kind of get Val away from her or whatever. Like, that's what it was designed to do. But then, like... You know, somebody need, somebody reminded Russo or whatever and was like, hey, man, you still got Terry pregnant. And what are we going to do with this? Like, what are we going to do? They said, <laughs> oh, God. And then it became, yeah, we're going to have to do a miscarriage angle. And it sucks yep. because, like, cause, like I, feel, I, I feel awful because, like, Terry Runnels, like, she's fairly convincing in terms of, like, the, like you know, 
of being in pain or you know what I mean? Like I'll give her, right. th- that's why I really give her credit. Like she does, she, she sells this. She really, she sells, does. She sells this a lot. I She's actually kind of convincing. Yeah. Which is like, a little bit scary. Yeah, exactly. And it's wild because right now in our timeline, she's Alexandra York. She's really uptight with like a computer oh. and doing that whole thing. And like, there, it's it's hard to figure out like what's the end game with this kind of character. But to see like you know, segments like this, like as awful as it is, like it does show that like the lady knew how to sell. Like she knew wrestling and understood how to be able to sell under the worst circumstances. Um, who I don't know who the hell this doctor is. This is one of the worst doctors I've I've, I've ever seen. Because I think that's um, that that doctor. He's uh, he's like a real backstage WWE doctor. I think his name is like Francois Petit or something or, like that. I thought you were going to say I thought you were going to say Doctor Amen. I was like that's just fitting this week. Yeah. His name is <laughs> his name is Doctor Phil Aston. I think Doctor uh, Doctor uh, Zahorian. No, he's um I think he's actually he's not even a real doctor. I think he's like a physical therapist, but they call him like Dr. Petit or something like that, but I'm pretty sure it's that guy. And I think you can also see him um when Mick Foley goes off the top of the cage at King of the Ring. I think he also comes out from backstage when there's all that commotion going on. But uh yeah, so I will apparently... tell you I, I will tell you from first hand experience. So when we were having our second child, our midwife was doing the stethoscope and mm. couldn't hear anything. And it, it's extremely like it it is it it freaks you out but here's the thing like they don't call it they don't just make a call there what they do next is you go through an ultrasound you go do some other things first before we jump to yeah i can't there's no baby i don't know what to tell you like i love his reaction it's yeah it's so perfect he's just like i we don't you've lost the baby i don't know what to tell you yeah yeah he's literally (laughs) he literally says like the one thing you probably don't want your doctor to say because there is one point where she's like she's like my baby and he's like i i don't know Because that's that's what you want to hear. <laughs> Am I going to be okay, Doc? I, I I don't know. I don't know. Uh, what what do you think? I'm you think I actually earned this degree? This is completely fake. I got that thing. I printed that. You know, down the street. So can you imagine? Yeah. Can you imagine, Henry, if they pulled this with the billion dollar Fox deal? If they ever did attempted something like oh. this? <laughs> oh man. Yeah. Well, we were gonna we were gonna finalize. We were gonna put pen to paper for that billion dollar Fox deal, and then we went back and watched the January fourth, nineteen ninety nine Raw, and we were like, I don't think this is the company we want to hitch our wagon to anymore. These miscarriage angles, cross dressers. It's just it's not a good it's not a good place to be. So, and also by the way, the fact that both Sammy and the miscarriage happen on the same night is another thing where I'm like, Jesus Christ! Not to mention the stuff with Dennis Knight, which is just completely oh, absurd as well. Oh, yeah. It's like this is a this is a fucking cartoon that that we're watching right now. This is like the inmates running the asylum. That's like, what the fuck is happening on this show? So for me again, I think the Terry Runnels, in terms of ranking some of the worst angles of all time, I would definitely put this near the top. Katie Vick, like you said, also sometimes I think in terms of the Hawk suicide angle, oh. I, I, yeah, I tend to put that up there because that is actually playing off real. I mean, Hawk didn't commit suicide, but it's playing off his alcoholism yeah. on TV, which is also kind of like, oh, why you don't need to do that? You know, that's like a little too personal. So Triple H Booker T is another one. Triple H Booker T is a horrible angle. Like, and it's not, I mean, they, they don't go as far as like what, what the, the, that would have been funny. Like Triple H gets Booker T pregnant and then he has a miscarriage. (laughs) And then really, really something. But no, like the kind of, well, let's call it what it is. Like it's pretty racist. It's pretty racist. And 
Yeah, it, it's, it's it's infuriating to go back and watch that because uh, yeah, it's just uncalled for. It's not needed or whatever. And yeah, that's another one that I kind of put. I, I mean, it's this is this is way worse than that, but it's up there. I put it up there yeah. still. I agree with you on that angle because that's the literally the build up is Triple H saying to Booker T, "Your kind of people don't win titles." And then what happens at WrestleMania? Uh, Triple H wins. So, and also the fact, I don't know if you've watched this WrestleMania recently, but that match, when Triple H pins Booker T, I'm not lying, he hits the pedigree, and there's literally about a 30-second gap in between, yeah. where, Trip, where Triple H like crawls over slowly, and he drapes one arm over Booker T. And again, think of this, both guys are down on the mat for about 30 seconds after the pedigree, Triple H slowly crawls over and pins Booker with one arm over his chest, and gets yeah. the three count. It's like, it's the one of the worst finishes I've ever it's, seen to a you match. You nailed it's, it. It's insane. Absolutely. That's what kills that match. Like I mean, everything leading up to it is what it is, but... If you're going to have Triple H go over, fine. But don't do that. Don't yeah. do that. Because that, that, that kind of buries Booker. You know, that really does kind of Huge. bury that. Like, like everyone else who takes a pedigree, like, they get a three count. They're like, oh, man. And they just kind of roll out of the ring and they're out of the way. No, he has to take it like an atomic bomb hit him and just yeah, lay there forever. Oh, yeah, that, that's terrible. What is that? Is it WrestleMania 19? Yeah. Is that the one? Yeah. Yeah. So so don't go back and watch that match. But yeah, again, I would say yeah this this Terry Runnels miscarriage Terry Runnels miscarriage that's tongue twister. That's it's top three in terms of most tasteless angles for me. It's it's that it's Katie Vick and maybe the Hawk suicide, maybe something else. But yeah, it's it's just bad stuff. Bad 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 stuff. It's one of those things where like Vince Russo gets in his head. We could do this, but he doesn't think. Should we do this? You know, coulda, coulda does not mean shoulda. Yeah, you're doing the Jurassic so. Park argument. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> Jurassic World in theaters in a few weeks. Uh, so, yeah, but yeah, I, I agree. It's it's just like, what the hell? You know, it's just so bizarre. And uh, the other thing I will say, too, is like when you go back, the thing, like I was saying earlier, you can go back and you can watch Sammy you know, 19 years later and be like, ah, oh, that's pretty funny. That's a pretty, you know, bizarre angle they're doing there. But, you know, I can I can appreciate they were swinging for the fences. With this angle, like, I go back and I watch it and I still cringe because it's just like, who does this? This benefits, like, nobody. This just makes people uncomfortable. It still kind of made me uncomfortable watching it 19 and, years later. And, and Henry, I, I think they honestly, like, they kind of forgot about it. They knew they needed to do something. And, like, I knew they wanted – they knew that they had something in mind for Terry to do next. And it's like, uh, wait, you have her pregnant. By this point, a woman would be <laughs> starting to show or whatnot, you know, something like that. Yep. And they were like, all right, we're just going to have to do this then. We're going to have to – I I can't imagine they were really comfortable doing it either. But it was one of no. those things where it's just like, god dang it, we we just have to do – otherwise we kill, we kill kayfabe, which at this point it's like – yeah, man, we do everything to hold up kayfabe, don't we, man? We go through bad miscarriages yeah. to just keep the kayfabe alive. Yeah, and on that note, actually, Terry Runnels, according to Terry, she did a shoot interview a couple of years ago where she was, uh, she basically talked about this angle, and according to her, she said she begged Russo, like, please, like, can we not do this? And her reasoning, of course, was she has um, a child. You know, she had Dakota, who was, I think, like, five, six years old at the time, and she was basically saying, like, I don't want my daughter going into school and having kids be like, what happened to your mom's baby? Yeah, but yeah. obviously her, her attempts to you know dissuade Russo from going through with it certainly did not work because fast forward to January 4th and she's holding her stomach in pain on the ground after slipping on a fucking banana peel. So yeah, it's, it's bad stuff all around. Bad, bad stuff. So from that, from that friggin' gem of an angle, 
We then head back to the arena where the lights go out, signaling the arrival of Kane, and he's accompanied by Pat Patterson, Gerald Briscoe, and surprisingly Shane McMahon, who is now favoring his right shoulder after Mankind stretched him a little while ago. So Patterson and Briscoe are still amusing themselves by taping the Briscoe Brothers body shop signed to Kane's back and making faces at him while he isn't looking, so they're certainly having a bit of fun. So Shane grabs a mic and says that Kane is about to compete in a handicap match, and his opponents tonight will be... Pat Patterson, and Gerald Briscoe. The Stooges protest, but then Vince McMahon comes out from backstage and lets them know that because they were responsible for Shane getting beaten up by Mankind a few weeks ago when Vince left them in charge, they have to pay for it. And really, that's that's a bit of a stretch because Shane booked himself into that match, and presumably the Stooges would have had no way of getting him to go back on it, but sure, whatever, they gotta pay the price. So amusingly, it appears that Briscoe tries to bribe Kane with money from his own pocket, a move that Drew Carey will also later attempt at one point, but Kane shoves him to the ground. Patterson then tries to think fast and dig into his own pockets as well, but what he ends up pulling out are cigarettes and a condom, and as you can imagine, that strategy shockingly does not work on Kane. So Kane proceeds to chokeslam Briscoe, and while he's doing that, Patterson rolls out of the ring and grabs a chair. We then get a pretty funny spot as Kane turns around and sees him holding the chair, so Patterson unfolds it and sits it down on the mat as though he was providing Kane with a spot to sit down. It actually sounded like you could hear the fans laughing in the background when he did that, so they also got a chuckle out of that. But unfortunately for Patterson, Kane didn't buy it, and he ended up kicking the chair, and I think when he kicked it, it might have actually landed in the crowd, because you can hear like an ooh from the fans as soon as he does it. Yeah, pretty, pretty sure it landed in the crowd. So Patterson then got a choke slam as well, but Kane turned his attention to Shane and then grabbed him by the throat. But before he could choke slam Shane as well, Vince reminded him that he would have him committed to the insane asylum again if he did that. So Kane relinquished the hold. Vince then announced Kane as the winner of the match, and they played his music despite the fact that there was no actual pinfall at any point. Well, at least I guess at least it wasn't a DQ, huh? So, William, what did you think of this uh, quote-unquote match? It's fun. It's fun to see, because I I hated seeing them make fun of him as he walked out. It just looks so goofy and stupid. Like, you know, like, every time he turns his head, you see Patterson doing something dumb. So, whatever. Making some face or whatever. To see Kane just trash these guys is fun. I mean, that's that's pretty much been their utility over the last year, is just Patterson Briscoe just get trashed by the talent. Which is kind of it's it's kind of funny because they yep. they were both like really accomplished WWF wrestlers and their day and they just get savagely beaten by by the talent. It's funny like his kid he has some good comedic timing with some of the like pulling out cigarettes. <laughs> then the yeah. condom, whatever like it's it's uh it's fun stuff and yeah like you said man when he punted that chair I even did it I even did it oh god I I hope I hope, yeah. didn't, hope someone didn't get hurt by that. But yeah, it's yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, the spot too with the with the chair where um yeah, I was going to say where Patterson like, you know, does the thing where it's like, "Oh, you caught me. I was just clearing off this chair for you to sit down." Yeah. I thought that was just you know, a fantastic little bit of so, like, you know, it's another one of these things where you're set up for this and then they turn it this way. And that's fun. Like it was and this was to a very small degree, but you know, I feel bad for Kane because, like, you really wish he was doing something a little bit more. Like, granted, because by virtue of being in the corporation, like, he's in, like, that that main picture. You know, he's in the semi-main event picture, it seems like, just by being in the corporation. But it's just sort of like, what are we doing here? Like, what is this doing, right. you know, for him? But 
you know, that's just the thing. Like, that top is pretty clogged up because, and we'll see, like, by virtue of, by the end of tonight, we'll see why it's pretty clogged up with, with the guys that it's got up there. But, um, it, again, man, it's fun. This is a fun little bit for Kane just to throw around these guys. Yeah, I think what you're talking about, Kane, is correct because it seems like at this point they're like, well, we can't we can't keep having him feud with The Undertaker, and now The Undertaker's not even going to be on camera for the next couple of weeks, so what do we do now? Well, let's let's put him in the corporation, you know, just kind of like throwing stuff at the wall to see what sticks. So You could have, though, here's yeah. the thing, though. And Kane, what, what, you could have face Kane versus heel Undertaker. That's what they missed the boat on here. You could, true, that, true. That would have been a nice little wrinkle in it because that maybe they could have had a different match because I think that was kind of we had a very much Undertaker Kane fatigue by this point. So that would have been something a little bit new and different, especially when whatever point the Undertaker's gonna come back. Spoiler alert, very soon. Very, very soon. <laughs> and that's actually a fitting segue because after commercial break, we cut back to that dungeon area where Dennis Knight is shackled to the ceiling. So he's yelling for help, but instead the Acolytes show up. Farouk says, quote, It's time. He's ready for you. And they begin to remove his chains. Oh, that's right, folks. This craziness is happening sometime soon. You just wait to see where this shit goes. And from there, we go back to the arena where it's time for a hardcore title match. Champion, the Road Dog versus challenger, Al Snow. And just like last week, we can see that Al is still wearing that blood-soaked t-shirt from when the brood gave him a bloodbath on Raw two weeks ago. So early on, we got a really entertaining spot where Al Snow jumped off the ring apron toward Road Dog on the arena floor, but Road Dog countered by picking up a chair and throwing it into Al's face while he was in midair. I'm sure that hurt, but it did look pretty funny. And after that, we got another great spot as Al put Road Dog on a table and then attempted a springboard moonsault off the guardrail, but the D-O-double-G moved out of the way, causing Al to put himself through the table. Gotta say, it looked really good, and it actually got a really nice reaction from the crowd, too. And from there, both men began walking up the ramp, and they eventually started brawling in the area to the side of the stage. Road Dog managed to stand up another table, and he then hip-tossed Al right through it. So only a couple minutes into this match... And Al Snow has already gone through two tables. I imagine the Dudley boys were probably watching this match over in ECW and thinking the WWF was killing their gimmick. So they then continued brawling to the backstage area where the following weapons were used. A broom, steel poles, potted plants, beer kegs, a cardboard box full of toilet paper, and Al Snow even managed to find a hose and spray Road Dog with water. Eventually, Road Dog attempted to get some payback and spray Al with a fire extinguisher, but, of course, it wouldn't go off, so he just hit him with it instead, causing Al to fall through the emergency exit, and, amusingly, we could hear the alarm going off as soon as he went through it. Very chaotic match so far. So both men brawled outside, and it was at this point that I started to remember the finish of this match because when they leave the arena, we can see that they're actually fighting outside while it's snowing, which is a pretty damn cool visual. Both men are slipping and sliding on the snowy ground, but Road Dog finally manages to pick Al up, hit him with a pile driver onto some wooden pallets, and from there, referee Jack Doan managed to count the one, the two, and the three. Your winner and still WWF hardcore champion, the Road Dog Jesse James. And surprisingly, the guy named Snow does not end up winning the match in the snow. So Road Dog then runs back into the arena to grab his hardcore title, and the fans give him a standing ovation, which was actually really cool to see. Clearly, they were very impressed by two guys having a wrestling match in inclement weather. So, William, what did you think of this hardcore title match? 
this is awesome. This is a great TV <laughs> match. This is and this is kind of laying the template for what we're going to be seeing over the next year when it comes to the, this WWF's version of the hardcore match. Cuz we know what mm-hmm. it we know what it looks like in ECW. You know, it's very it's extremely violent and it does it does go out into the crowd and everything, but this is that next level where it's like we're going to go through the arena, the entire arena. And this is going to become like a, a, a this is going to be used in even non-hardcore matches, it seems. But pretty much with these hardcore matches, this is probably my favorite Road Dog match ever. And I, I mean, I think yeah. most of us can go through and look. Like there aren't a tremendous amount of Road Dog outside of the Outlaws matches that are super memorable, but this one certainly is. This, you nailed it, man. With all the stuff leading up to the snow, like going out into the snow is fine, but it just goes that next level once they're outside there because. I mean, you can see that temperature that that temperature drop from the arena out there must have been incredible, and these guys are having to go for it out there. And that that pile driver through the pallets, man. Like, I mean, yeah, it's not the best looking pile driver I've ever seen, but man, it's nasty. Looks fun. Looks just. It's like you said, man. That visual of it is really, really cool. And I love Road Dog running all the way back in the arena. The camera stays with him into the ring to get the belt. Man, that's cool. Like, that's a good TV match. Wrestling purists, you know, totally. are, are not going to agree with that necessarily. But as a, for wrestling on TV in 99, this is absolutely perfect. This is exactly what you would want. And by God, like, this is setting up the main event. Like, that's, that's incredible. Like, yeah. when do you see that? Like, usually, like, with main events of Raws or pay-per-views, this is a dumping ground slot is what this <laughs> is. Like, this is where you would get... One of the matches we've already seen, you know, like getting thrown in there. But this is really, really good. Really good stuff. Yeah. I, I didn't realize until they went outside in the snow that I was like, oh, shit, this is this match. Because I definitely remember, as far as I know, maybe the only match that we've ever seen on TV where two guys actually fight outside while it's snowing, which is an amazing visual. But again, also, this is the early days of the hardcore title, the early days of hardcore matches. It gets... I dare say pretty played out over time. Yeah. But yeah. like this is this is yeah, this was like a new the next novel two concept months here, like, like yeah. January, February here is really good. Of course, like the other one that's really awesome is Hardcore Holly, I think in it's I think is it Holly in uh, It's the Maybe one it's in the river. gets tossed it's in the, the river, yeah. Yeah. yeah, man, like that's another that's in Memphis. That's a really good one. Like but you're right. Like it does find its it it does kind of hit its ceiling pretty quick. But for this you know, these couple months here, January, February, maybe a little bit of March or whatnot, this is fun. This is some good stuff to watch. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you, well, you can hear it from the reaction to the crowd when he runs back into the arena. The crowd's giving him a standing ovation. They're like, holy shit, that was pretty fucking cool because it's something you're not used to seeing in the WWF at that point in time. And, yeah, it, it, for for their to their credit, they did bust out a lot of crazy spots. They bust out a lot of ridiculous weapons even before they went outside with, again, like I said, a potted plant and a fucking box of toilet paper for some reason. So, yeah, it was yeah. complete ridiculous zaniness, but it worked very very well and it was fun to watch it was a it was a great as you said a great setup to the main event uh just just good good old-fashioned hardcore fun before it became uh completely played out and ridiculous and again if you want to see two guys fight while it's snowing outside pretty pretty cool stuff and from there we go somewhere random where we see the acolytes shove dennis knight through what looks like an old-timey castle door and I'm pretty sure we even get a Wilhelm scream when they push him through. And William, as a cinephile, I'm sure you appreciated that. Absolutely. Yep. And so the Acolytes then stand guard outside the door as it appears that Knight is about to meet with him, whoever he may be. 
It's Sammy. <laughs> <laughs> Gee, don't don't spoil next week. Come on, man. You've got to spoil it. Now, frankly, I think the only thing missing from this segment was JBL exclaiming dilly dilly because it certainly appeared as though they just tossed – they just tossed Dennis Knight into the pit of misery, I'm pretty sure. And by yeah. the way, if you're listening to this episode of the podcast after the year 2018, feel free to Google that reference because no one will care about it roughly three months from now. <laughs> Although then again, the, the Dudley boys are still using what's up when they pop up, so who knows. But after a commercial break, we see Shawn Michaels chatting with D-Generation X. So Triple H gives HBK the keys to his rental car so Sean can go retrieve the Stone Cold Surprise. Before he exits the arena, Shawn Michaels gives Triple H a hug and says, I'll be right back. See you guys. However, once he leaves, Triple H ominously says, quote, maybe, maybe not. And X-Pac responds by saying, what goes around comes around. And we then cut to Shawn Michaels in the parking lot, and he's trying to open the door to the rental car, but it appears that Hunter gave him the wrong key. He yells for Triple H and bangs on the door so he can be let back into the arena, but then he hangs his head as though he realizes what just happened to him. From there, we hear a voice yell, Hey, Shawn! And we cut to commercial. And when we return from break, we see that Shawn is now lying face down on the smashed windshield of the car covered in his own blood. We then get footage from during the break where it is revealed that Kane, Test, Ken Shamrock and the Big Boss Man were the ones who basically murdered HBK in the parking lot, but the cameraman puts down his camera so we don't see the actual act of Sean being put face-first through the windshield. When we come back live, the paramedics are now putting HBK on a stretcher and helping to load him into an ambulance, and Jesus, first the EMTs have to deal with a miscarriage, now an attempted murder. These guys are they are working overtime tonight. But okay, William, a couple I have a couple thoughts here. Number one, are we basically to assume that DX and the corporation conspired together to take out HBK? And number two, if they did indeed work together, doesn't that kind of make DX into complete dickhead heels for doing that? I mean, the crowd was loving Shawn Michaels earlier tonight when he was working together with DX to stick it to Vince. And then number three, now that HBK has been taken to the morgue, does this mean that there will be no Stone Cold surprise after all? Lots of questions. William, what are your thoughts here on this segment of Shawn Michaels being jumped in the parking lot? This is one of the weirdest things. And I always, I remember this at the time because I remember watching at the time and I saw what Triple H said and I saw what, and I, and I heard what, what Xbox said and I was like, what is this? Because mm-hmm. what's wild is, and I'm, and this one I'm curious with your upcoming shows, I don't think this is ever touched again. <laughs> I'm not sure, but I'm pretty sure at the same time that I I don't think they acknowledge this at all. Right. Because, well, for one thing, I don't think we – we we don't really I, – I know there's at least one more time we see Sean for something later on. Yep. Um, in the, like the coming month or whatever. But I don't think it's ever brought up again. And you're right because – and I'm also thinking because there, there's some things that happen with Mania, post-Mania and stuff that involve – DX members, corporation members, things like that. And I'm like, all right, does this tie back to that? And the only thing I can think of is like, you know, yeah, they were buddy-buddy, but they didn't forget about the last few weeks where Sean was kind of sticking it to him, Right. And Triple H definitely didn't. I mean, dude, when you ran through those promos that they were doing at each other, like, there was some thick stuff there, some real thick stuff they were laying down that went, that blurred that line between, you know, what was really going on what was you know stuff that was just amplified for the promo and things like that it's a weird 
weird bit. It's one of those things like I put up there, like not not completely up there, but like who raised the briefcase, you know, when Austin reaches for it, you know, stuff like that, where it's like unanswered things in wrestling. And I I, I guess the only thing we're really left to, I I think the only thing they were driving at was like, yeah, DX didn't forget about being screwed around. And I, I do, man, again, like my props to Shawn Michaels, like when that moment when he, tr- he he tries to open the door and he can't, and he just lowers his head because he knows he's been had. I love that he immediately th- must think, though, that, oh, I'm locked out. I'm going to get jumped by the corporation, aren't I? Shit. Yeah. <laughs> but I love the, hey, Sean! <laughs> and then we come back and it's like fucking lethal weapon. Yeah. Like, it's I, like Jingle Bell Rock through the fucking windshield, man. This yeah. is the most grotesque thing. <laughs> up to this point I think I'd ever seen like it yeah. is it is gruesome man. yeah because like, again mean, yeah he's he's outside in the snow covered in his own blood it's like watching Fargo oh, or some shit yeah man like th- I, this level of violence is something like just I would have loved to have seen how they did this in the break because clearly they didn't like you know really they, they're like alright just tear sh- just tear the shirt up you know throw us, uh, let's get let's get some color here let's just do some quick gigging and, and yeah. alright Crunch the window, put them through it, or they already had it crunched, they rolled it out or whatever. But, yeah, yeah, man, busy paramedics, and yeah, definitely, like, what does it mean for the Stone Cold Surprise? You're like, oh, no, is he going to have to Uber 1998-style or 99-style to the uh, <laughs> to the <laughs> arena? Is he going to get on a bike? How's he going to get there? Yeah, will he even get there? Right, right. Because so, they do yeah, a good yeah. job teasing that, too. Because, I mean, yeah, like, they, they say that Shawn Michaels is going to be the one to present the Stone Cold Surprise, and now he just gets murdered in the parking lot. So it's <laughs> like, well, he was supposed to be the one to get him. So is is Stone Cold going to know to show up, or what's going to happen? And, again, like, like we talked about, Stone Cold hasn't been on Raw in four weeks. And remember, this is a pre-taped episode, so... Literally, this is one day removed from the previous episode of Raw. Last night, they were doing Raw in, I think it was Albany, and now it's a Tuesday night there in Worcester. So, I mean, if Austin wasn't in Albany, you're probably not expecting him for Worcester either if you're in that crowd. You're like, oh, okay, this is, you know, they did a tease, and now this is how they get out of it because Shawn Michaels got, you know, got nearly decapitated in the parking lot. So, I mean, going in, they probably think now, like, oh, okay, yeah, this is this is their way of getting out of it. All right, we're not getting stone cold. So, yeah, but that that does provide a fitting segue into our main event of the evening, does it not? Absolutely. So here it is. The no-disqualification WWF Championship match. Champion The Rock, accompanied by every member of the corporation except for Patterson and Briscoe, versus Challenger Mankind, who is accompanied by all five members of D-Generation X. Now... I normally don't do the full sorts of like recaps of matches, but I think this one kind of warrants it, so I'm going to go ahead and give the blow-by-blow. So right off the bat, Mankind gets distracted by the corporation lurking outside the ring, which enables Rock to jump him from behind and put the boots to him to start the match. And interestingly, when Mankind rolls outside the ring and Ken Shamrock starts getting in some cheap shots, for some reason, Rock actually tells him to hold off, despite the no-DQ stipulation. I thought that was kind of random because it doesn't really come into play at all later, but interesting. So both men brawl around the ring for a little while until Rock gains the upper hand by whipping Mankind knees first into the steel steps. And fun fact, William, by his own admission, Mick Foley wouldn't wear knee pads during his matches in the later years of his career. So I'm amazed the guy can even walk these days after doing that spot so many times. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's wild. Yeah. And at this point, we get a rather interesting moment on commentary as Jerry Lawler says, 
it's not going to end up in some wild schmoz out here. Someone's going to win this match, and somebody's <laughs> going to lose it. To which Michael Cole responds, quote, not like the other league, clearly referencing WCW. Now, I bring that up because Cole is openly saying that WCW has a habit of cheating their fans, so stay tuned for later on in this podcast. But also, um, about that part where it doesn't end up in a schmoz, uh, yeah, well, I, I guess we'll see. So from there, The Rock picks up the steel steps and literally just drops them onto Mankind's back. And holy shit, that looked brutal. And as if that wasn't bad enough, with the top part of the steps now lying on top of Mick, Rock then takes the bottom part of the steps, drops them on the top part, and pretty much just crushes poor Mankind. And again, I repeat, how is Mick Foley still able to walk in the year 2018? So Rock brings Mankind over near the commentary table, where he then hits Foley with a suplex onto the arena floor, because at this point, it appears that seemingly nothing can cripple him. Rock then does his custom of grabbing a headset and joining the commentary team, but that proves to be a mistake, as Mick jumps over the table and starts punching him in the face. Mick then grabs the headset himself and tells the world that he has a lot of, quote, testicular fortitude, and honestly, I, I can't say I disagree, he really does. Unfortunately, as soon as Foley puts down the headset, Rock smacks him in the face with the wooden part of the ring bell, but that doesn't stop the WWF from going back and inserting a dinging sound effect. Note to wrestlers, if you're going to do that spot, do it on a pre-taped show, because they can go back and put in some entertaining noises. And fittingly, William, as you know, someone who works on sound effects in TV and movies is known as a Foley artist, so... Nice. Very nice. Makes a lot of sense for this match. It all comes full circle is what I'm saying. So from there, Rock proceeds to put Mankind on top of the announce table and hit a rock bottom right through it. Well, I mean, maybe not through the table. It kind of looked like Foley barely grazed the side of it. So I get the feeling he absorbed most of that rock bottom directly onto the concrete floor because, you know, he needed to take more punishment in this match. But it did look great, though. It looked like a great rock bottom. After that, Rock finally manages to roll Foley back into the ring hit him with a few punches, and pin him, but he only gets a two-count. He then chokes Mankind on the middle rope and hits him with a side Russian leg sweep, but again, only a two. With Mankind in one of the corners, Rock then Irish whipped him over to, the, to another buckle. He charged at Foley, but Mankind got an elbow up, then hit Rock with a clothesline to regain the momentum. However, it only lasted for a moment as Mankind went for an Irish, rip, Irish whip of his own, but Rock reversed it and hit Foley with an elbow to the face. From there, Rock scoop slammed Mankind right in the middle of the ring, so you know what's next after that. The corporate elbow. Rock nails it, referee Earl Hebner makes the count, and Rock gets the one, the two, and not the three. Mankind kicks out, so we must continue. From there, Rock Irish whipped Mankind off the ropes once again. He ducked down to go for a backdrop, but Foley countered with a swinging neckbreaker. It appeared Mankind was about to go on the offensive, but the big boss man grabbed his leg. Meanwhile, one of the corporation members rolled the WWF title into the ring. Rock picked it up, and he then proceeded to smack Mankind in the head with the belt. Rock pinned him again, and Hebner counted one, two, and still not three. Mankind kicked out yet again, and at this point, you can tell the crowd is really getting invested because they start reacting as though they thought for sure that was the spot that was going to end the match. So both men then get back to their feet, and Rock goes for another belt shot, but
but mankind ducks it. Foley boots Rock in the stomach, causing him to drop the belt to the canvas, and he then follows it up with a double-arm DDT right on top of the belt. Mankind drapes an arm over Rock, and Hebner makes the count. But that only gets two as well. And if you look at the crowd after that happens, you can see quite a few people with their hands over their heads. They totally bought that that was going to be the finish as well. So this is really great stuff. Both men get back to their feet once again, and now it's time for Mr. Socko. Mankind pulls out the sock, puts it over his hands, and sure enough, he does manage to lock the mandible claw onto the rock. And now, at this point, well, I just have to play for you what happens next. Now, at the beginning of the, of the clip here, what you're going to hear is Ken Shamrock running into the ring and smacking Mankind in the back with the chair to get him to relinquish the claw. And in response, Billy Gunn then blasts Shamrock with a forearm to the face, knocking him out of the ring. And crucially, when Billy hits Shamrock, he drops the chair in the ring, which ends up being a very important thing to note. So the Shamrock-Mr.Ass skirmish then touches off a brawl between DX and the corporation outside the ring, and, with that in mind, take a listen to what happens after that. Can't mess. 
feels pretty damn good. Ah! He's no longer the kids who ate worms in a schoolyard as a teenager. King, he is champion. He represents the WWF as champion. Listen, at the risk of not sounding very cool, I'd like to dedicate this match to my two little people at home and say, Mikario did it! This is the classic thing in the history of the WWF! My God, anything can happen in the WWF! Nick Khan's a champion! Nick Foley said he was going to walk out on top, and damn it, he did! So as you heard there, with DX and the corporation brawling outside the ring... Stone Cold Steve Austin's music hits. And Jesus Christ, you want to talk about a pop? Good Lord. Again, it's it's crucial to reiterate for this. Austin hasn't been on Raw for the past four weeks since the episode where The Undertaker crucified him. So it's been quite a while. And plus, of course, they did that angle earlier with Shawn Michaels getting murdered, making it very ambiguous as to whether or not Austin may show up. But oh, show up he did. So Stone Cold enters the ring, he picks up the chair that Ken Shamrock left behind, and he fucking nails Rock with a chair shot to the head. And by the way, Rock takes that chair shot like a goddamn boss. He doesn't make any attempt to block it, he just takes that motherfucker straight to the skull. And Austin then drapes Mankind's arm over Rock's unconscious body, Earl Hebner makes the count, and holy shit, ladies and gentlemen, your winner and new World Wrestling Federation champion, Mankind. From there, Austin amusingly throws his camouflage hat at Vince McMahon and flips off the corporation, and he heads up to the top of the ramp. And William, I don't know if you noticed this, but when Austin looks toward the ring, where Mankind is now holding up the WWF title, he can't help but muster a bit of a smile, which I thought was pretty cool. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Yep. And also to Austin's credit, with his job now done, he heads backstage because he knows that this is clearly Mick Foley's moment. So the corporation then starts walking back up the ramp, with Shane and Shamrock helping Rock to his feet. And again, to Rock's credit, he's doing a fantastic job selling the effects of that chair shot. We also get some great reactions from some of the corporate team here, particularly Shane, who just loudly screams in frustration at one point. And at the end, you can even hear Vince McMahon yell, That makes me want to puke! And also, and also, as you heard in that clip, Foley gets on the mic and dedicates the win to his children, Dewey and Noel, as we go off the air with Mick holding up the WWF title and running laps around the ring to celebrate. So, William, what did you think of our main event? So the match is, like, and it's hard, man, because like, I need to go through and rewatch all the Rock Mankind matches, but it's hard not to put this one right now at the top of the ones that they do. Like, clearly... You know, when they, they have a few more matches down the road, one's a really, really special event. Or, or, like, I don't think the one they've ever really done again since, that type of event. Mm-hmm. Um, but, man, going back to Rock Bottom and Survivor Series, like, this has not been played out, which is really cool. Like, a lot of times, a feud like this can be easily played out, but it's not. And as much as I think we sometimes talk about how the Rock Austin thing is, like, the ultimate, like, Rock feud... The Mankind feud is what makes him, I think, really makes The Rock. Like, makes him a better heel, a better wrestler, and a better just, like, overall, like, a a better main eventer. And in a way, I think it helps Mankind kind of step up, too. I think it does, like, you know, it it works both ways. Uh, This, like, you know, when you're talking about those spots, like, you have an out, you have a rock bottom through a table, you have the belt shots. This is what makes wrestling fun, is when you, as a... Whether you're a jaded fan, somebody you know who's kind of feels like you know every in and out of a wrestling match, 
when they start to you know play with that and they subvert those expectations that's what makes it really fun it makes made this incredibly fun because even i know the finish and when i still see it like i i have that moment like oh i i almost buy it that he he could have lost right there but he didn't and then man like just the the build up to it like once the and the crowd is the the crowd is seasoned enough to know like once they start brawling you know it's it's time for it's time for old stone cold to come out and uh <laughs> yeah man like that yeah that's that's one of those bits that i rewatch every now and then just to hear that pop cuz i and i don't know man you'll have to be the judge like which pop is greater when he comes out here or when he comes out to take on the like take on wcw ecw the alliance oh. i don't know which one's bigger cuz they're both pretty damn big this one though like at the time like this i don't know like man i I think it speaks to the bigger point, man. When they did this, when they did this title change, they didn't do this. They the last they they did this at what one time in '98, like night after King of the Ring, right? So it's not like they don't do this very often. And this couldn't have been executed better. I love to the uh, the DX like they they do a variation on the on Road Dogg's um, usual promo that sets up the tag team champions of the world, and he does it for mankind as the as the heavyweight champion of the world. Yep. It's so, so cool. And you're right, man. Like, that smile that Austin gives him. Because you hear the stories that Austin throws out on his podcast, how, like, they were road buddies. Like, they're really good friends, you know, coming up uh, through pro wrestling. And, you know, Austin's obviously had, like, 98's been his year. And it's kind of cool. Like, he's still the man. Like, it's not like, you know, he's been replaced by any means. But to have to be there for Mick's thing is really cool. Do you happen to have the passage from the book where Mick talks about this? Oh, I absolutely do. Perfect. That's a good segue, man. Just go right for it, man. Sure. I was actually going to end with that because I just want to touch on a couple things cool, um, cool. before before getting to that. But yes, absolutely. I'm, I'm going to I'm gonna end with that. I'll, I'll end the Raw segment with that. Um, just a couple things I wanted to note. Again, we touched on it a little bit at the beginning, but yeah, that pop for Austin, just how extended it is where it's not just like, you know, Austin's music hits and it's like, oh, okay, he's here. But like the the pop from him coming out and all the way through Mankind winning the title and even celebrating after he wins the title, it's one of it's not just one of the loudest pops I've ever heard. It's probably one of the loudest extended pops I've ever heard, where it, it really carries through for about probably a minute, two minutes, where the fans are just going absolutely apeshit. And to make the point again, this is the friggin' Worcester Centrum. This is not the TD Garden. This is an arena that holds 13,000, not 20,000. And it sounds like it's, you know, 50,000 fans. Sounds like it could be in friggin' WrestleMania or Gillette Stadium where the Patriots play. Absolutely insane. Um, another thing I'll point out, too, is I think, and it pains me to say this, I like Michael Cole's call when he when mankind wins i like the part where he's saying you know tonight and forever mick foley will simply be known as wwf champion where his voice is kind of cracking he's getting caught up in it i think he overdoes it a little bit later where he's like you know he keeps harping on like they used to call him mopey mick and blah he you know he, he kind of extends it a little bit too much but like when he's doing that call of just getting caught up in the moment and being like mick foley will be ever forever known as champion i think it actually is a really good call oh it yeah. does yeah. yeah, absolutely, man. That's a good call because Cole gets a lot of crap, you know, for the way he does calls. Absolutely. Uh, clearly. That's a great call out on your part. Yeah, and it does also kind of make me wish, uh, you know, we, we would know how JR would have called it. Um, but obviously this is that time frame when JR is not around. But, I mean, again, credit to Cole because he doesn't usually get credit and it kind of pains me to give him some credit. But, uh, yeah, th I think he does a good job there. I also think 
again, we touched on this a little bit too. Part of what makes everything so great about this night is how how basically how surprising everything was because if you're in Worcester that night you go in you have no idea you're getting a title match and in fact the whole the whole beginning of the show is not centered around Mankind it's centered around Shawn Michaels and then about 20 minutes in Mankind comes out and does the promo and we get that familiar scene like I said before where it's like okay we're setting up Royal Rumble here and then they take it away we've seen it a billion times but you know from there Shane screws Mankind Mankind takes Shane hostage now all of a sudden Instead of the Royal Rumble, like, holy shit, we have a title match tonight. And just brilliant how they set it up. And, of course, the cherry on the Sunday was the fact that they teased that Shawn Michaels Stone Cold surprise at the beginning of the show. Which, again, you don't necessarily know going in that the Stone Cold surprise is going to happen in the main event. You could probably guess it by the end if you thought Stone Cold was going to show up that he would show up during that main event. But they never, you know, flat out said it was going to be, you know, in that segment. So, Again, just just fantastic stuff. And, of course, when Austin shows up, I mean, my God, just, just this was like the perfect storm of booking where everything made sense. And that's why you get such a loud, sustained crowd reaction. And, you know, I, I slag Vince Russo a lot, but I'm sure, you know, I'm sure he probably had a hand in this. Ed Ferrara, too, and Vince, of course, I'm sure he had a hand in it, too. Whoever kind of came up with this sort of intricate um, way of getting the title onto Mankind on this night... I think they all deserve an immense amount of credit because this was just, you know, fantastic stuff where, again, you don't know until like 20 minutes, a half hour in, you're even getting a title match. And then by the time you get around to it, it's amazing. And I'll just end with this. This may be, you know, an an unpopular opinion. It's probably not the most common opinion, but this is uh, personally my favorite ever moment in the history of Monday Night Raw. It really is like mankind winning the title for how unexpected it was, for how much in my opinion, I was totally on board with a guy who has sacrificed his body more than any other wrestler in any of the major promotions being given that belt. You know, it, it's it's a consummate underdog story. You probably never thought Mick, – Mick Foley, as he says in the passage, which I'll, which I'll get to, he probably never thought that he was going to win the world title. But by the time he's been screwed over so many times by Vince and by The Rock uh, leading up to tonight, it just makes complete sense. And I just thought, you know, amazing moment. And again, the crowd, if the crowd wasn't as into it as they are, I don't know if it would have been one of my all-time favorite moments or my all-time favorite moment, I should say. But, I mean, just so many factors work about this to, to make that sort of perfect storm of just everything coming together. So, yeah, again, my personal favorite moment ever in the history of Monday Night Raw, still to this day, 19 years later. And again, it's a pre-taped show. Thankfully, I, I wasn't spoiled going in, but um, on a pre-taped show when I had, you know, not very high expectations because at this point, the live shows are definitely delivering more than the pre-tapes. Um, yeah, it just just fantastic all around. So I think uh, that's 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 my personal take. Is there anything else you wanted to add about uh, any of it? No, I mean, just to, to button on what you had, like, dude, the... It, it, this is the best booked raw, I think, of this time period, and I mean, man, I mean, it's it's hard to think about all the the, the episodes and and find another one that sticks out like this one. It's just the the staging of it, like the the various stages it takes you through to the very end. It's unprecedented to have that many like nice turns to keep you interested throughout that two hours. Like I, I don't. I don't. I can't really think of another time where they just nailed it this well. Where they subverted expectations. They they put you in one. They they set you up with this and then came around with something else instead. And nope. Vince Russo has a ton of duds, like a lot of duds. He also has <laughs> successes like these though are 
are not common with a lot of the the other writers. Like he can be saddled with all the duds and all the terrible things. He has this also. And that's one thing that kind of balances it out. Like one of these kind of cancels out some of that crap because there've been a lot of writers since Vince Russo in the WWF. I don't think any of them have nailed putting together a TV show like this particular episode. So he deserves okay. a lot of credit along with the guys you mentioned as well, because it's not just one guy, it's a team. But, uh, yeah, man, it's an excellent Raw. It's an excellent, excellent Raw. Absolutely. And, well, like you said, you, you were way ahead of me there. I think the probably the most fitting way to end part one of our, of our two-part episode here is to hear from Mick Foley himself. So will you indulge me for just a moment while I read from his autobiography, Have a Nice Day? Absolutely. Fantastic. And also note, actually, an important thing to note here is that this is actually the final chapter of Mick's book. So he literally ends Have a Nice Day at this very point in time. And here is what he has to say in his book. For years, I had never believed this could happen. I had been respected by my peers and even idolized by certain fans, as witnessed by the Foley is God signs that were gracing the Centrum in Worcester. I had shed blood on five different continents and taken part in what were arguably some of the finest matches ever seen. Still, I had wrestled for 15 years with the knowledge that I didn't look like a star, let alone a champion. I had learned to accept and even love my role as the lovable loser who somehow never wins the big one, and I can honestly say that before that day of December 29, 1998, remember it was pre-taped, I never believed that it would happen. But it had happened, and the reaction was heartwarming. The Worcester fans were on their feet, and I was on the shoulders of D-Generation X as they paraded me around the ring. Several pictures later showed the members of DX smiling broadly, and I know that the smiles were too bright to not be real. Much like the early dude, Mankind, or more accurately, Mick Foley, had made the people feel good about themselves. Ladies and gentlemen, Mick Foley. And so, we're going to hear a bit more from Mick in part two when we cover Nitro. So with that being said, William, after a quick break, are you ready to discuss what happened over on the TNT network on this very same night? Absolutely. Fantastic. Then we'll step aside for just a moment, and then we shall dive in. So stay tuned. On the plains of Africa, one would find the following. The herbivore, or plant-eater. The carnivore, or meat-eater. And the boyardivore, known as mankind of the WWF. Have a nice day! He's never without his overstuffed beef ravioli and his call... Mm. Beefy! Unmistakable. Chef Boyardee overstuffed beef ravioli definitely feeds the need. It's the perfect ravioli for all mankind. And we have returned. All right, so having now covered one of the greatest moments in Monday Night Raw history, I think it's time we found out exactly how WCW managed to counterpunch the WWF with their episode of Monday Nitro. So, William, shall we begin? Oh, yeah, man. Let's get into this because this is going to be fun. Fantastic. Oh, yeah. It'll, it'll be something, that's for sure. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so, it is still Monday, January 4th, 1999, and we are live from the Georgia Dome in Atlanta, Georgia, in front of a massive crowd of 38,809 fans. Now, remember that WCW is an Atlanta-based company, so this is quite literally their home base, and they've managed to bring in almost 40,000 fans for this show. That is no small feat for sure. They may be losing in the ratings, but they're still able to do some very big crowds, clearly. Some of the other noteworthy events which have taken place in the Georgia Dome include WrestleMania 27, where The Miz defeated John Cena in the main event, 
four episodes of Monday Night Raw and four episodes of Nitro, most notably the July 6th, 1998 episode where Goldberg defeated Hulk Hogan to win the WCW World Heavyweight Championship. And speaking of Goldberg, the Georgia Dome also holds a special significance for him, not just because he won the title in this building, but also because he used to play in this very same arena as a member of the NFL's Atlanta Falcons from 1992 to 1994. And prior to that, he also attended the University of Georgia on a football scholarship. So clearly, tonight's going to be a big night for a guy who is such a huge hometown favorite, right? Right? Uh, Well, I suppose we'll get into that. So we open the show with footage from the Goldberg-Kevin Nash match from last week's Starcade pay-per-view. In case you need a reminder, Nash defeated Goldberg thanks to Scott Hall electrocuting Goldberg with a cattle prod, which not only gave Nash the WCW World Heavyweight Championship, but also ended Goldberg's undefeated streak after 173 consecutive victories. Last week on Nitro, Nash challenged Goldberg to a rematch at tonight's Georgia Dome show, so remember... They've been selling tickets to this event based on the promise of a Nash-Goldberg match taking place. And without spoiling too much, you may want to remember that particular tidbit for later on in the show. So right off the bat, we do get our obligatory scanning of the crowd at the beginning of the show. And so, in the interest of fairness, I will also point out some of the signs I noticed in this crowd as well. I'm not wearing underwear. Beaver rules. Die, Mongo, die. Chris Jericho is our only hope. DDP is an old skank. <laughs> Want better ratings? Dial 1010 for horsemen. We... That's a, that's a sign of the times right there, the old 1010 numbers. <laughs> we escaped from the Heard County Jail. Steiner wants my arms. Hey, Flair, my Lanta is good for that heartburn. And two signs which were located in separate parts of the arena, but maybe somewhat related. I smell butt, and of course, who farted. So, William, did you notice any that I happened to miss? No, you know, those are all the ones uh, that I noticed too, at least most of them. Uh, especially <laughs> the, the 10 10 4 horsemen. That's, I mean, that really is just a beautiful sign of the times. That's one thing about Absolutely. watching these, and I'm sure on your end, like when you watch the Raws and those 10 10 220s, you're like, I forgot that was a thing. That was a big thing at the time, apparently. People still still paying uh, paying less money or trying to pay less money for those collect calls. Yeah, yeah. Dialing zero. Just, it's just not cool to dial zero anymore. <laughs> no. No, man. So as the camera pans the impressive Georgia Dome crowd, what are Tony Schiavone's first words on this broadcast? Quote, Ladies and gentlemen, we set the stage for the biggest rematch in professional wrestling history. Tony Schiavone always wanted to keep things low-key. So from there, we cut to the ring where the Nitro girls are doing one of their dance routines. Now, the only ones I recognized in this routine were Diamond Dallas Page's first wife, Kimberly, and Whisper, real name Rebecca Kirchie, who will go on to become Mrs. Shawn Michaels just under three months from now. And they're still actually married to this day, so good for them, I guess. So, William, were you a fan of the Nitro girls at the time? I mean, dude, we were, what, we were teenagers at the time watching this, so of course, I think we all, like, we're fans, even though we, if we weren't like fans, fans of the Nitro Girls, we were like, oh yeah, let's just let's just keep it on this for a while. But I'll tell you, going back and watching it and throughout the night, they're terrible at. They're, <laughs> I I mean, you know, one thing man, you can say you can say a lot of things about cheerleaders or whatnot. When you watch like professional sports, like cheerleaders, like 
they na- I mean, you can tell they practice their ass off and they work really hard. Like they they're in pretty good sync. These girls are the opposite. Like it's there's some <laughs> of them that are like dreadfully behind. Oh, and yeah. I mean like and what's funny is like no one at the time gave a shit about this. No one would have cared if they were out of sync. They just wanted to see you know them doing their thing. But it just really stuck out to me this time. I was like, wow, these guys were these gals were terrible. <laughs> they were awful. Yeah. Yep. Sorry, sorry, uh, Kimberly and Whisper, but uh, yeah, not good. Not good at all. And actually, I'm going to bring it up later. There's also a third Nitro girl uh, who shows up in one of the later routines who I'm going to single out because she's also someone who goes on to be uh, a little more well-known in wrestling circles, but I'll get to that in, in just a little bit. So once the Nitro girls wrap up, we do get some pyro above the ring, followed by a bunch of confetti and red balloons dropping down from the ceiling. Now, you'd think they would save that for the end of the show, but then again, well, I guess once you see how the show ends, you, you might understand why they did that early on. So we then go to one of the luxury suites where Jimmy Barron is hosting a Nitro party. Now, in case you're wondering who the hell Jimmy Barron is, William, he's a local Atlanta disc jockey, and somehow this appears to be a downgrade even from that, because he's tasked with interviewing a bunch of drunk, incoherent assholes, and for the record, the majority of them are rooting for Goldberg tonight. And they're all, we just say they're all white, too. It is all white. (laughs) There's there's no hint of diversity in this whatsoever. This is the biggest douchebag club I've ever seen. (laughs) <laughs> yeah and it gets it actually gets a little bit worse oh, later on i oh think when they're God. even drunker yes it does it thundersly worse i feel so bad who's this dude who's guy who's uh has to hold the mic up there yep jimmy Barron is his that's name. him okay that's jimmy because i was looking i was like i do not recognize this guy from wcw being in the back doing interviews or whatever but yeah this poor guy i feel bad for him I know. You, you'd think they'd put, like, Lee Marshall or somebody in there because he was always doing those road reports. I think he was still with the company at the time. I think so. But, uh, yeah. yeah, no, some some dude named Jimmy Barron. So uh, I don't know how many more times he uh, he does any WCW stuff because he's a local Atlanta guy. Maybe he's just tasked with the Atlanta shows. But um, I think after this segment, he'll probably be pretty thankful if he doesn't get the call again next time they're in town. And from there... We segue into our first match, and of course, for such a huge, monumental show, you have to put your best foot forward, and that's why the first wrestler we see come through the curtain is... Glacier. And William, since this is primarily a podcast dedicated to Monday Night Raw, I think I may need to provide some background information on Glacier for our fans who are not well-versed in WCW at the time. What do you say? Do you think that sounds like a plan? Absolutely. Excellent. So, back in April of 1996, WCW started running vignettes advertising the debut of Glacier with the infamous tagline of Blood Runs Cold. And in fact, I'll play one of those vignettes for you right here. Our world is about to change. Enter the realm. Blood Runs Cold. Each of us burns the fury of a warrior. Glacier. So essentially, Glacier, real name Ray Lloyd, is a ripoff of the character Sub Zero from the video game Mortal Kombat, a martial artist with all the power of uh, being cold or something. And to make the comparison even more overt, Glacier pretty much dresses just like Sub-Zero does, and the music in those vignettes is, shall we say, rather similar to that famous Mortal Kombat theme song. 
But honestly, such a gimmick wouldn't have been out of place in the WCW of April 1996 that was giving us the Dungeon of Doom at the time, but there was just one problem. Only a month after they started running the Glacier Vignettes, Scott Hall debuted in WCW, followed by Kevin Nash, and soon after that, Hulk Hogan joined with them to form the New World Order. The plan had been to debut Glacier in the summer of 1996, but now a cheesy, cartoony gimmick like that seemed rather out of place when contrasted with the realistic havoc the NWO was wreaking on on a weekly basis. And as such, Glacier's debut was held off until September of 96, a full five months after the vignettes initially began to air. With that much buildup, it seems inevitable that people would ultimately be disappointed with whatever they witnessed. Not that WCW didn't give it their best shot. Allegedly, Glacier's blue laser light entrance with synthetic snow may have cost up to $500,000 to create, plus an extra $35,000 just to create the costume. And to make things even more depressing, when it came time for his first match, they debuted him on WCW Pro. Not even on Nitro. Yes, Glacier's first match was shown at 5 o'clock in the afternoon on a Sunday. Well worth the wait. His first pay-per-view appearance? Not until Uncensored 1997 in March, a full six months after his debut. I guess what I'm saying is, he wasn't exactly thrust into the main event scene. He did, however, have a year-long undefeated streak, pretty much just defeating jobbers and mid-carders. The highlight of his tenure was likely his feud with Wrath and Mortis, two other characters who would not have looked out of place at a Mortal Kombat cosplay convention. But fast-forwarding back to where we are today in January of 1999, Glacier is now basically a jobber, and just over a month from now, they officially kill off the gimmick when Glacier just sells all of his gear to Kaz Hayashi and Ernest the Cat Miller. Quite the eventful end to what may be the most expensive wrestling gimmick of all time. So, William, do you now feel all caught up on Glacier? I'll take you one further, uh, Henry. There's Ooh. there's an awesome doc that's out there. It's like 15 minutes, and you can watch it all like on Daily Motion or something. And it's catching up with Glacier now. And it wow. really, like, you really feel for him. Because uh, oh. it's a guy who really loves, like, he, like he, has, he has no bitterness, which is incredible. You wow. just listed off that, that backstory is like, I mean... This is this guy is like set up to do one of those mega shoot interviews and just piss all over the product, but he right. doesn't, man. And he's still wrestling; like he still will get out there and get in the ring and do stuff. He's in decent shape, but I recommend. I don't. I forget what it's called, but you can Google it, and it's um, I, like I said, it's around fifteen minutes long, and it's almost one you wish was longer because you really. I, it made me think about him a lot differently, man. Because I'll tell you, man, I, what you just mentioned is one thing, like. I, course growing up playing the the wcw games i remember i think he was if i'm not mistaken like a, an unlockable character in wcw world tour like or something like that like it was a big deal when you got glacier or something like that i think he's in there but yeah i mean like mostly a joke because i mean it was simply you know this guy that was set up to be this thing and the company just completely shifted course right in the middle of it i mean you can't blame them in a way for what they did because the NWO, like once that thing caught fire, you can't get away from that. And I mean, oh yeah, it was just it's just bad timing, and it's just a shame because the it seems like a really cool dude. Yeah, I'm actually glad you gave that tip off there because I hadn't even heard of that. But that's uh, that sounds like a good uh, a good thing to check out a 15 minute Glacier doc. So I, I feel like if he were like 
to piss all over the company, that shoot would probably be called Yellow Snow, but oh, I guess yeah. we'll I guess we'll never know. But <laughs> but I'll, I'll check that out when we wrap up because it it really is a, a fascinating story. Just that the sort of uh, I don't know if the documentary touches on it, but that sort of tumult that happens within WCW, where April of '96 we have the Glacier vignettes, and one month later it's like okay, Scott Hall is now in the company. So uh, you know about that whole Glacier thing. Not not really going to fit where we're going at the moment, so just keep pushing him down the line. Uh, frankly, I'm surprised. Uh, I guess I'm not surprised they didn't abandon it entirely because they put so much money into it, but yeah, yeah man. But poor, the end poor of it's glacier. really sad, man. It, you see him like you see him start to cry a little bit, and I was just expecting the tears to freeze, but they didn't. But you know, <laughs> still, like, I mean, it was like, oh, man, this guy's getting emotional. I mean, oh, oh, man. Like, I mean, it. I, like I said, it's... It kind of alters perception of the guy, which I mean, I don't hear it to him. People like, man, screw Glacier, man, that guy's an asshole. It's like, you no, know, Glacier's pretty harmless. All right, he wasn't that good of a wrestler, but you know what? He had a pretty cool look. All right, so leave him alone. <laughs> that's what. Yeah. That's where I'm at now. That's you know, it, before then I was sort of like, eh, Glacier sucks. <laughs> I'm picturing now. I'm picturing him crying and like ice cubes just rolling down his cheek. But you, you know, cool super kick, man. He had a, you know one bad. I mean, that was about all he had was yeah, that kick. Absolutely. So I'll also say, I mean, it, I don't think they did him any real favors calling him Glacier, like no. one of the slowest moving things you can possibly imagine. <laughs> I mean, I, I know like like Sub-Zero, Sub-Zero, that's a cool name. You know, that's a, that's a pretty right. badass name because they're obviously ripping off the Sub-Zero character from Mortal Kombat. But you think they could have given him like a more intimidating snow related name. I don't know what they'd call him. Obviously not the Yeti. That one was off the table. But right, um, right. I, I don't know what they could have called him. But I feel like Glacier kind of sets him up to fail right away where it's yes. like, eh slow plotting you know <laughs> so anyway so his opponent tonight on nitro will be hugh morris who is accompanied by jimmy hart now hugh morris is of course a play on the term humorous because his initial gimmick was that he was the laughing man who would uh laugh a lot great stuff, hey, hey, Henry, great stuff. is that funny is that funny is that <laughs> humorous yes oh my god that's that's what 2001 when he does that yes yes it is awesome and he deserved it uh, yeah, so the character Humorous is played by Bill DeMott. Also, I, I said Humorous. I mean, they pronounce it. I feel like it should be Hugh Morris, but Tony Schiavone does flat out pronounce it as Humorous. He doesn't even say it as like Hugh Morris, even though it's two separate words. He's like, yeah, Humorous. That's, that's what we're going to call him. But the character is played by Bill DeMott, who somehow managed to land a gig as the WWE's head trainer from 2012 until 2015, when he ultimately had to resign due to allegations of misconduct. Some of those allegations include making trainees perform dangerous drills, physically assaulting trainees, bullying trainees, sexual harassment, using racial and homophobic slurs, and perhaps the strangest part, letting the wrestlers train while they were naked. And lest you think this was just one guy making an accusation against DeMott, these accounts were actually backed up by 11 wrestlers who trained under him, including current WWE employees EC3 and Kurt Hawkins. So basically, eh, fuck that guy. But yes, our first match on Nitro tonight is Glacier versus Hugh Morris, kicking things off with a couple of winners here. So this was actually a pretty short opener, lasting less than three minutes. At one point, Jimmy Hart jumped up on the ring apron, so Glacier got in his face and grabbed him by the lapel of his jacket. That allowed Hugh Morris to come, to come charging at Glacier, but he moved out of the way just in time, causing the two heels to collide with each other. However... Glacier's momentum was short-lived because Hugh quickly took control with a massive clothesline, and Glacier actually attempted to do that famous Rikishi bump where he spins himself around in midair. Didn't quite look as good as the Kishi's bump, but very solid. 
and from there Hugh went to the turnbuckles and hit his top rope moonsault, which he calls No Laughing Matter, and I will say it is a pretty nice-looking moonsault for a guy his size, and that allowed him to pick up the one, the two, and the three. Your winner of this opening match, Hugh Morris. So, William, what did you think of our opener? That match you said lasted, what, you said three minutes? About three minutes. I don't think they mentioned the wrestlers in the ring till two and a half minutes. They're busy talking <laughs> about everything else but the guys. And that's that's just a... And I mean, like, WWF's guilty of this, too, at the time. They're guilty of it now. Mm-hmm. But still, like, when you have two guys that have absolutely zero story, they have zero story going on. I think Hugh Morris is coming back. I think this is kind of a comeback after some time off for him. So mm-hmm. they're, it felt like they were trying to build him as kind of... Because he knows they were saying he was more serious... Uh, in a, in a, um, I can't remember if he had shaved the head already or if that was something new, some new wrinkle, but whatever. Mm. That I mean, that's all buried. Like this really sets the tone in a lot of ways. For what I, we're gonna come back to this, but this Nitro is a microcosm of why three-hour wrestling shows suck. They're just <laughs> yeah. not good. You get matches like this that are really short. They don't mean anything, and they're not particularly good. You know, like. That yeah. Hugh Morris moonsault's awesome. It's cool. Like, I loved it. And I actually kind of enjoy his match with Goldberg back when Goldberg was still coming up, you know? I think that was one yeah, of his yeah. first, you know? I th- Wait, was that his first match? I, it might have been his first match, whatever. I think it uh, was, yeah, you're right. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, you, you have the feeling, even without knowing what, like you said, he sells the stuff. And I think he even pops up in 2000. They reignite those vignettes in 2000 for him. They do a play on it, though, I forget. I think it's Blood Runs Cold Again or something like that. Oh, God. Blood Whatever. Runs Colder. Yeah, or something like that. It's something like that. But I think, like, they play it up like he's a joke, and it's even worse. So, Aww. But, like, you could feel even even in just this match without knowing about him selling off his stuff. It's like, I can't take this guy seriously, and I don't think I can take Hugh Morris seriously either. So, <laughs> you know, I mean, what's the title for these guys? What is it, the TV title? They feel miles away from the TV title, you know, at this point. So... It's it's just it's just not a good opener. It's just yeah, not. I agree. I like how you're you're right what they're saying about him being a more serious guy, but he's still calling himself humorous, still right. humorous, but he's a more serious guy. So maybe you should go with a more serious name, like I I don't know, General Hugh Rection. Maybe that's just just <laughs> spitballing there. So immediately after that match ends, we cut to Tony Schiavone, Mike Tenay, and Larry Zabisco at the commentary table. Schiavone, who, let's just say, ends up having a real banner night for himself here, informs us that Hollywood Hulk Hogan will be on the show tonight. And as a reminder, Hogan announced his retirement from professional wrestling on The Tonight Show with Jay Leno about a month and a half ago, so I guess he'll be uh, campaigning here tonight on Nitro? We shall see. <laughs> Quick quick thing, Henry. This is just funny. I've never seen... I like how Tony's talking and Larry's just like, you know what, fuck it. I'm going to go pose with the crowd. I'm oh, done. I was, was going to mention that. <laughs> so funny. I'm absolutely going to touch on that. And oh, also, in addition to that, Shivani says Ric Flair will give his, quote, state of the sport address tonight since he now has control of WCW for the next 90 days after beating Eric Bischoff in a match. <laughs> and yeah, regarding Mike Tanay, William, I have, I have a question on Mike Tanay. Has anyone ever seen this man outdoors in the daylight? Because I'm pretty convinced he's a vampire who's trying to hide the fact that he's an undead bloodsucker. Pretty, I feel, I feel very confident about this, that Mike Tanay is a vampire. I've seen the clips of, I think it's like in what, 01 or 02? I feel like it's in early TNA, like when Shivani like, plays heel against him. Like they have a little bit oh. of a, 
they have a little bit of a, a storyline. And it's like and it's like kind of a disheveled Tony Schiavone looking like Lebowski or something like that <laughs> in there. And he's talking all this shit to Mike Tanay about like how you know, he was bringing up B from WCW. So I always think about that when they're together on the show, just like a Tony Schiavone must really hate this guy. <laughs> I feel like he always had like a contentious relationship with Bobby Heenan too. Like he wouldn't, I don't know. It just seemed like he wouldn't necessarily go along with, with the brains jokes at times. Like there was, you know, unlike a uh, girl monsoon and Heenan, they obviously had, you know, a, like sort of a, a falsely, uh, contentious relationship where, you know, Monsoon would give it to Heenan and they'd give it back to each other. But it seemed like, like you know, Bobby Heenan would make jokes in WCW and, and Shivani would just be like, yeah, all right, whatever. Okay, let's, let's keep going. Shivani's got a rough night ahead of him. He's got a really rough night. And not even just the obvious. Just there was stuff in this. I was like, man, this is just rough. <laughs> yeah. This is rough. Him have, like, But we'll get into that. That comes a little bit later. But, yeah. Indeed. And I'm glad you mentioned Zabisco because, yeah, this is basically a tradition for him. When the fans start chanting Larry, he just abandons the commentary table while Shivani is speaking, by the way, and does his stupid little bow for the crowd before coming back, <laughs> putting the headset on. Now, I have to say, like, I used to watch a little bit of WCW. Clearly, I watched Raw much more than WCW, but he would do this pretty much on every show, and it pissed me off every single time he did it. So are, are you in the same boat there, or do you not mind it as much as I do? I, I, no, I mean, it's obnoxious. Like, it's just like, eh, you know what? I'm not going to partic- I don't. I really need to participate. Tony's got all of this. I mean, <laughs> I, people can say what they want about, like, the commentators today, but, like, you watch them, and, like, at least when they do those three shots, you can tell, like, all right, they're kind of pay attention to it, pay att- paying attention to each other. They're waiting for some cues. They're going to build off the other person and kind of, you know, springboard off of their last sentence into their own, you know, and stuff like that. And instead he's just like, I need to get my special up, I guess, if we're playing the game. He's like, I need to go pose <laughs> so I can get my special so I can deliver my, you know, arm bar to somebody or whatever. Crap. Yeah. Got to get my shit in. Yeah, it's it's just bad, man. I just think it's, it, I think it's poor manners. Like, I hate to say poor manners. That sounds so hokey. But it's like, as a performer, like, I just think it's rude. I agree with you. And also at the time, it also pissed me off because when I used to watch WCW back in the late 90s, I didn't know who the fuck Larry Zabisco was at the time. <laughs> so I was like, I was like, who the fuck is this guy to be taking a bow every time? Like, I knew nothing about that rivalry, that legendary rivalry with Bruno Sammartino. Right, I was just right. like, what? I was like, who the fuck? Why are they chanting Larry for? Who the fuck is this dude? <laughs> I thought he was a commentator. <laughs> oh, the pre-internet days. Well, not the pre-internet days. The pre-Google days, I guess, when I could just look that up. Uh, I guess at the time, you know, a web crawler didn't have as much info as Google does now. Yeah, those angel fire sites just weren't keeping up. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so Tony Schiavone then kicks us into a montage of some of the events from the Ric Flair-Eric Bischoff feud, which goes on for about six minutes. And I guess they can afford that luxury when they start an hour earlier than Raw. And holy shit, William, I forgot about one important moment from last week's episode of Nitro. They did a live satellite interview with Flair's cardiologist, Dr. Charles Brock Lesnar. And as you recall, <laughs> and as you recall, Flair suffered a kayfabe heart attack back on the December 14th episode of Nitro. Or did he? After further studies of Mr. Flair's electrocardiogram, chest x-rays, and blood tests, I have determined that Mr. Flair did not suffer a myocardial infarction. However, Mr. Flair's blood test did reveal a high level of a toxin called digitalis, which is extremely poisonous. The source of the toxin is still currently under investigation. 
So you see, it wasn't that Flair had a heart attack from getting himself worked up during his promo. It was apparently that Bischoff somehow poisoned him. Now, I had to look this up, William. Digitalis is actually a species of plant, which is more commonly called foxglove, and digitalis poisoning can indeed lead to heart complications. So props to WCW for doing their homework, I guess. But now I suppose the bigger question here is this. Was Walter White inspired by Eric Bischoff when he poisoned that kid with the Lily of the Valley plant? I think we all need an answer here. I think it's pretty obvious. <laughs> and so, after that montage of the Flair-Bischoff feud concludes, we finally get our opening credits 17 minutes into the show, so I'm assuming Martin Scorsese directed this episode since he does the same thing with The Departed. 17 minutes in, we get the credits. We then cut to the parking lot, where Arn Anderson is walking into the building, followed by your new WCW president, Ric Flair, and his children. And yes, folks, not only do we see Rick's sons, David and Reed, but we also get what I assume is the on-camera debut of a young Ashley, or as you currently know her, five-time women's champion, Charlotte Flair. Did you mark out for that like I did, William? Uh, you know, I mean, it's, uh, you know, we've seen all the, we've seen, you know, plenty of footage of her from the past. And I was like, oh, that's cool. That's cool to see her. Uh, and it's so funny how, like, it, she's just such in the background. It's like she's going to be she's gonna do way better than David ever could yes. in professional wrestling. So Absolutely. I mean, you're right about the time, man. It's like 20 minutes we're into this show. And it's just like we've got all we've gotten is like a two and a half, three minutes of Glacier and Hugh Morris. And now, of course, it's the Georgia Dome, so it's going to take an hour to get to the ring, even the Undertaker <laughs> two hours if he was there. And, you know, man, like... I mean, it's just, this is this is, this is how you manage time, I guess, on a three-hour show. Quick fun fact for you, though. So I did actually take a screen grab of Charlotte standing behind her dad on this episode, and I tagged her in it on Twitter, and she liked it, which was cool enough on its own. Yeah. But then, yeah, but then some dude made a comment about her being hot in the picture, and Charlotte actually wrote back to the guy and said, quote, I was also 13, bro. So I guess what I'm saying is Charlotte is the new favorite wrestler of the Raw Attitude podcast. <laughs> but anyway, so getting back to the show, we actually get a pretty nice tracking shot where the camera is following Arn and the Flair family into the arena, where they're eventually joined by the other horsemen, Chris Benoit, Steve Mongo McMichael, and Dean Malenko, who is unfortunately on crutches after injuring himself at a house show last night. So they all walk into the ring where mean Gene Okerlund is waiting to interview Rick. Flair says that Eric Bischoff has ruled like a tyrant over WCW for too long, and Gene asks him how he plans on dealing with him on his first night in office. And from there, Bischoff does indeed walk down to the ring looking rather sad. And I'm not just saying he looks sad as in mopey, although he certainly does, but at this point, it's now 1999, and he's still rocking a black and white NWO shirt under a leather jacket. I mean, dude... We're two and a half years into the NWO at this point. It honestly just kind of looks pathetic in retrospect. But, uh, oh, by the way, more on the NWO later on. So Ric Flair then proceeds to lay down the law on Eric Bischoff. And you know what? I'm just going to go ahead and play the clip for you here. Mr. Bischoff. You could probably call him Eric at this juncture. Eric, would you say that tonight... The shoes are on a different set of feet. What? I, I'm not, I'm not going to beat around the bush. You know, over the last five years, you have taken great pride, almost to the point of 
you know, some kind of self-dedication to making me feel very small on many occasions. Not only in the eyes of my contemporaries, Hogan, Savage, name a few, but in the eyes of my peers, you have humbled me many times. The easiest thing to do, Eric, would be to say, pick up your last paycheck. It's been nice seeing you. But that ain't it. I put a lot of thought into this, and since you had fun taking me out of the main event status and putting me on the opening match as of tonight, and it could change, but as of right now, you officially are working for Tony Schiavone over in the announcing booth. There you go, Tony! Oh, oh, oh. You can't do that! I got a list of things to abide by here. Yes, I can. Let me add some. And at the same time, I can cut your salary in half because you're not going to be visible on TV anymore. So get over there, Mr. Shivani. Yes, yeah. Here, you please get a headset for Mr. Bischoff. Yes, Mr. Flair. And we make sure that he knows how to do play by play. We'll teach him what? if he doesn't know. Oh, yeah. He's going hey, back to his hey, roots. He's done it a little bit. Mike, just for a second, you know, Mike, go ahead. No, no. We've got a place for him here. From there, Bischoff joins the commentators, and apparently Mike Tanay is now out of a job thanks to Flair because Easy e has now replaced Tanay on the headset. I mean, is it just me, or did Flair kind of let Bischoff off pretty easy here? I mean, the dude apparently poisoned you, and you're now allowing him, allowing him to have a forum to speak for three hours every Monday. I mean, shit, if I could get a commentary gig on Raw by poisoning the current GM, no offense, Kurt Angle, but I'd be pouring cyanide into your carton of non-fat milk. Oh, it's I'm true. true. It's damn true. Uh, Henry, that, he's dead at that point, my friend. I don't, I, don't know what <laughs> kind, <laughs> I don't know what kind of job you'd be looking for at that point. <laughs> Fair point. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Hail Hydra. Go get him. There you go. Maybe I should have just done uh, Digitalis, like I guess, uh, like Bischoff did. <laughs> also, I don't know if they ever pay off that angle as to explaining like how exactly Bischoff did poison Flair. I'd love to know if that I actually mean, gets explained. I, give, I mean, we we just talked about the we have Doctor Rosen Rosen backstage. We're all like, "Yep, I can't hear it. It's gone. Sorry, you know, yep, baby gone." Yeah. yeah. So I mean, the, <laughs> it's not the worst thing, but it's just sort of like, well, we got to find a way to explain explain ourselves out of this because there's really no way a guy with a heart attack yeah would be doing any of this right now so eh, exactly it's exactly. Still pretty, it's silly though man you're right it's still silly yeah we, we couldn't clear him for starcade if he actually had a heart attack so there there's our explanation so we then get footage from two years ago where bischoff fired referee randy anderson after he counted the deciding pinfall against the outsiders that sold out giving the wcw tag team titles to the Steiner brothers. We also get a clip of the awesome moment where Anderson brought his wife and children over to Bischoff and his daughter begged him to give her father his job back and Bischoff said to tell him that he was still fired. And I have to admit, that's some pretty quality heelishness right there. So Flair then invites Randy Anderson to come to the ring and he proceeds to reinstate him as a referee at double the salary. I love how in storyline, Flair is not just the face of Nitro for 90 days, but he now apparently has actual power over all the finances as well. I mean, shit, he might as well just take the gate from tonight's show and just bet it on a horse while he's at it. And Flair then concludes by booking himself into a match at Sold Out in two weeks, and, well, 
Let's just say that this takes an interesting turn. So let's listen to what the Nature Boy has to say. Now, the only act on a selfish note, Mean Gene, that I am going to actually not act, but the only decree that I'm going to make is that sold out, as we know, is a big pay-per-view event put on by World Championship Wrestling, not the NWO, but World Championship Wrestling. It's in two weeks. It's going to be a huge event, and I'm booking myself. I what do they call those? We used to call them gimmick matches. Handicap match. I'm, I'm booking myself in a handicap match with Kurt Henning and Barry Wyndham. Two against one. Wow. That means I kill one of you or you kill me. And that's the way it's going to be. Sold out is going to be a huge event. We want the world to know the World Championship Wrestling, not the NWO, is putting it on. That's a pretty big fight uh, to, to take out there, yes. Uh, David, David Blair. Yeah, you know, Dad, I've been watching you, you know, you and the Four Horsemen for, since I've been real young, and I want to be your partner at Sold Out. Wow. <laughs> oh, man. Well, hey. What about a Dad? What about a President? I love him. He's my son. He's not ready for this. I'll know when the time is right. He knows what he's doing. <laughs> you hear that from the enforcer? Huh? You and me? Ready. I'm ready. <laughs> All right, man. All right. Okay. All right. Thank you. Everybody, it's the greatest wrestling program in the world enjoy yourselves tonight it's world championship wrestling at its best so first of all i love how flair initially says that david isn't ready to wrestle but it just takes a few words from Arn anderson to convince him because clearly Arn knows flair's own son better than he does so yes william david flair will step into the ring for his very first match in two weeks at sold out with his father as his tag team partner. So what were your overall thoughts on this segment where Flair demotes Bischoff to a commentator position, rehires Randy Anderson, and books himself into a match with his own son? This feels like it takes 30 minutes to get through this. There's yep. so much plot. I'm just going to say plot, but you know, so much storyline, they just get through this thing. And, I mean, at the end of it, you're like, oh my God, that's, like, sold out. So that's what we've got so far presumably not maybe not the main event but like a semi-main it's like oh yeah flair and his son against you know two former horsemen okay yeah it has no it has zero heat for me whatsoever. and i just love it. it's like i'm the president you don't want to put myself in a handicap match yeah right I, <laughs> I would have loved to have seen him in a handicap match yeah what was the point of that when you have uh, obviously you know they're setting up david flair jumping in there but also literally chris benoit and dean malenko are standing right next to him right and and, and mongo like you have the three other horsemen right there but flair's like no nah, i want to i want to go it alone yeah i mean this is just like this promo is exhibit one this is why face uh face general manager face administrative roles on wrestling shows suck. Like, they're just the <laughs> worst. There's nothing fun about a face being the on-screen, you know, leader or the, you know, the, the president, general manager, what, commissioner, whatever the title is. It's just not fun because they make stupid decisions and stuff like that. <laughs> and as we find out later, incredibly gullible, terribly gullible. Oh, yeah. And this is just, you know, exhibit one of it kind of. But this was... 
This was long. This was very long. And you know what? It felt like this took the spotlight off of what we were like super excited about with this with this nitro. You know? I, I mean, I, I agree with you. It, it definitely felt very very long. And again, I think this is once again one of the luxuries they have, where you know we're still in the eight o'clock to nine o'clock hour, where RAW hasn't started yet. They can kind of fill the time. Uh, any way that they want to, pretty much, because they're not worried about the head-to-head yet. So I guess they just figure, hey, yeah, Trot Flair out there, he can do a 20-minute promo, and we'll set some things in motion, and uh, yeah, there you go. So, But yeah, I agree, this definitely felt long, and you don't really say that a lot with Ric Flair promos, of all things. He's usually a guy who's out there, you know, maybe five minutes, he says some crazy shit, gets the crowd in the palm of his hand, but Flair, as the authority figure, is just kind of like... Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make Bischoff a commentator. I'm going to rehire Randy Anderson. It's not like an exciting flair promo like we're used to uh, that he was giving as recently as one week prior to this where he was threatening to get naked in the ring if Bischoff didn't fight him. So, yeah, it's, 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 quite, a, it's quite the change of pace there. So, very sad. But after a commercial break, it is now time for our next match, Booker T versus Emery Hale, who gets no entrance whatsoever. And by the way, William, I have to admit, when I first saw Emery Hale, I did think he was Luke Gallows for just a second. He's right around the same height and build, plus he wears plain black trunks like Gallows did when he was Festus, so I had to do a double take for a moment there, but no, it is not him. I had to rewind because I thought it said Henry Hill, and I was like, oh, all my life I wanted to be a jobber on Monday night. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) and he succeeded. Ah, yes. And for those scoring at home, this is actually the period of time when Booker has short hair and he was sporting a Breathe Right strip over his nose, but somehow that look actually kind of works well for him. I don't know how it happens, but he does a pretty good job with it. And also, in a classic sign of the times, when Booker is making his entrance, they cut to the crowd where we can see a bunch of fans raising the roof. So welcome to 1999. Now, the match only lasts for about one minute, but in that short time frame... Emery does manage to somehow botch an Irish whip, as Booker was expecting him to reverse the spot, but instead Emery just stood in place. Not pretty. Mercifully, though, Booker finishes the match shortly thereafter with a top rope missile dropkick and scores the three count. So, William, what did you think of this rather brief match? I mean, it's just a squash, you know. Um, I, and it's mm-hmm. weird because, like, there are a couple of these guys that, like, I have distinct memories of them in 1998, and when I see them in a match like this, I'm like... Where is Booker T going? Like, this is a guy who dominated the TV title picture in 98. Famously, this the best of seven with Benoit, you know? Like, mm-hmm. that was centered around the TV title. And you see him in this, it's like, we're throwing him up against the local jobber? Okay. Yep. But, like, did you notice, like, I mean, listening to it, it's like, okay, even the commentators, are they, are they helping us along? Are they giving us something to hope for with Booker T? Like, oh, he's, you know, he's, you know... I always missed in wrestling where they talked about guys that were looking strong for a particular belt, you know? Right, right. Oh, he's, you know, with the championship committee, quote-unquote, they'd say, oh, you know, he's looking real good in the eyes of the championship committee. He might have that intercontinental title shot, you know, coming up soon or something like that. And it's fine. I mean, you know, the guy, uh, Emery Hale botches, you know, the the Irish whip, but Booker T hits all 12 of his signatures and gets the win. (laughs) It's cool stuff, man. I, Booker T's very enjoyable in this era of WCW, though, as a as a character. Very. Yeah, absolutely. Look, it's always fun to see young Booker, how, how different he looks now um, with the Breathe Right strip and everything. But again, as I said, it's a good look for him. I also never realized that he used a top rope missile dropkick yeah. as a finisher. I, I had no idea he did that as a finisher. 
So obviously I know he like he uses the axe kick. He uses that sort of rock bottom, the bookend. Yeah. I think he, he used to use the Harlem hangover, but that's such a dangerous move. The basically yeah. the, the top rope flipping leg drop. Um, yeah. off the off the top rope. The flipping he, leg drop off the top rope. Yeah. It really was, man. He had like it's at one point like he was using he used a spine buster as a finish. He used uh the axe kick, the Harlem side kick, like you said, the the missile drop kick and the Harlem hangover. Like it was kind of fun because a Booker T match could end a variety of different ways. Not, not a lot of wrestlers do that, you know. Like besides, you know, Disco Inferno, but I don't think we're clamoring <laughs> for that match anytime soon. Yeah, you know. Oh, but, I thought he just used the chart buster that Stone Cold Stunner ripoff. He had a pile driver at another point he, that he would use, like a spike pile driver. Then he had like this reverse figure four that he would use. Wow. And, and it was it was like, all right, well, at least Disco's keeping it fresh here for the first, you know, match on WCW Pro. But, you know, that's the thing. You know, Booker break out that top rope missile dropkick. It was pretty cool. Like, he could really take somebody's head off if he wanted to with that thing. Absolutely. And actually, on that note of finishing the match a dozen different ways, I think the, probably the greatest example of that is Bret Hart, who is unfortunately not even on this show. Oh, my God. But if you yeah. look at some of the classic Bret Hart matches like Bulldog at SummerSlam 92, where they do that reversal... Or if you look at Stone Cold at Survivor Series 96, where they do the um, the Million Dollar Dream finish, he's pretty good at making matches where basically they don't end necessarily with the sharpshooter, right. but they end in sort of these different ways where he gets creative and he kind of finds a way to win. So, I mean, pretty much he only had the sharpshooter as a finisher, but he would have those different ways of, of somehow ending a match and getting it uh, in his favor. So. Yeah. yeah, Just just one thing I note there. It also, again, it kind of pains me to bring that up because, as I said, Bret Hart – Nowhere to be found Not even, on this I mean, show. He's barely mentioned on this show. I mean, he's mentioned with the U.S. title, I think, and that's just crazy. If he's the U.S. champion, why isn't he here? Like, it's a huge show. Fair question. Also, also not on this show, Sting, who is kind of, I think, currently going through his personal demons. But at one point, I think in the in the main event, we do briefly hear a "We Want Sting" chant. No, no Sting as well. He's also not on the show. He, I don't think he actually returns until about March. In WCW, so yeah, he's basically out from October to March at this point. So yeah, a couple a couple guys whose absences probably have spiced up the show a little bit. I mean, just think of that: that you have Bret Hart and Sting on the company. Randy Savage came back last week to interfere in the main event. No Macho Man Randy Savage on this show either. So instead, we get you know fourteen thousand backstage vignettes. But I suppose we'll we'll touch on that in just a little bit as well. So yeah, yeah, quite a few guys who would have uh, would have been nice to have them on the show tonight. So after a commercial break, we get another Nitro Girls routine, and this time they're dancing while sitting in chairs, which just strikes me as being rather lazy. And from there, we go to the commentary table where it should be noted, Eric Bischoff has not said a single word since he replaced Mike Tanay. If only Larry Zbysko would also utilize that strategy. And from there, we segue into our next match, Norman Smiley versus Chavo Guerrero, who is holding his hobby horse, Pepe. Yes, that's right. Due to his uncle Eddie Guerrero treating him so poorly, Chavo went insane and sought solace in a stick horse named Pepe that was indeed an actual angle. On a bit of a down note, though, the aforementioned Eddie Guerrero was unfortunately involved in a severe car accident just three days before this episode of Nitro. Eddie fell asleep at the wheel, his foot pressed on the gas, and the resulting crash tossed him 100 feet from his car. Now, interestingly, Eddie wasn't wearing his seatbelt at the time, and he would actually credit that for saving his life because the car ended up being completely demolished. So let that be a lesson to you, kids. Seatbelts will kill you. Don't wear that shit. 
And sadly, that crash will end up keeping Eddie out of action for another five months at a time when, dare I say, WCW probably could have used him. So anyway, Chavo is facing Norman Smiley tonight, a guy who, just like Hugh Morris, is a lifetime WCW jobber who somehow ends up becoming a trainer for the WWE after his career is over. In fact, Smiley is currently in his 11th year as a trainer with the company, so clearly, if you sucked in WCW, Vince McMahon has big plans for you. So early on in the match with Bischoff still not saying anything on commentary, Shivani starts lecturing him and saying that he may not like the gig, but jobs are hard to come by, to which Zabisco responds by saying, quote, We can give you Klondike bills, to which Shivani laughs and says, I don't know if he wants to do that. Now, William, on that note, are you aware that Klondike Bill's reputation is a recurring joke on Tony Schiavone's podcast? No, I've met I met him. Um, I you met, met Klondike Bill? Yeah, yeah. Um, a buddy of mine and me, we went to a WCW show in North Charleston, and he had picked us out before the show. We were hanging around like by the gate or like by the security thing, and he was like, he he approached us and everything. It was like, hey, you guys, um, you guys like basically, he's like saying like, you know, you want to get like free shirts or free whatever he's like um you can help us take apart the ring afterwards i was like hell yeah this would be great <laughs> um and it was cool like he was he was so cool to be around because like i mean he it wasn't like he was like this taskmaster or anything he just kind of told you what to do and since you were just a fan like you didn't mind doing it and it was fun it's you know you had to take apart the wcw ring it was a house show no big deal but I loved it. He was like, I've been smoking cigarettes since I was in sixth grade. And, and you know, he's just kind of throwing out these weird pearls of wisdom, you know, about life and stuff. Yeah. And then he, he tossed us a couple shirts. We got to meet Nash, you know, Hall, Luger. They were coming out and stuff. And it was oh, cool. wow. He was a cool dude. That's why when he passed, like, not long after that, it was like, he was actually pretty interesting to be around. But I'm not familiar with the Shivani joke. What does that entail? Oh, my goodness. Well, as someone who has met Klondike Bill, I think you'll really appreciate this. So, so okay, so for those of you out there who aren't familiar with the infamous uh, Klondike Bill story that Tony Schiavone tells on his show, here's a quick uh, not-safe-for-work synopsis for you. So apparently your pal Klondike uh, was, a legendary, was legendarily popular with the ladies, and he was also a bit of a uh, sexual deviant. So Schiavone relates a story that Klondike told him where he took a young woman to his hotel room one night, and despite Klondike's skills, she just couldn't... Uh, get across the finish line, shall we say? So Klondike gets the idea to pleasure her with a kielbasa. Now, unfortunately, that also proved to be unsuccessful in getting the job done, so they both went to sleep, and then, according to Shivani, he asked Klondike what he ended up doing with the kielbasa, to which he responded, quote, Oh, we broke it in half the next morning and served it up with some eggs. Klondike Bill, ladies and gentlemen. That's your buddy Klondike Bill. Your uh, your ring crew setting up Klondike Bill guy. So man, if you ever hear you ever see some pictures of him from when like he wrestled, he was this he was a pretty monster looking dude. Like Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that that's uh that's a wild story, man. Yeah, that's that's the whole thing. If you ever hear Tony Schmai talk about Klondike Bill, I think they actually sell shirts for that podcast with like Klondike Bill stuff on it. It basically, the whole recurring joke is that Klondike Bill is a fucking sexual deviant. That's And apparently Shivani has a bunch more stories like that. So, yeah. R.I.P. Klondike Bill. Apparently, apparently he was a legend in more ways than one, just setting up the ring crew. But and actually, on that note, since you talked about the ring crew, uh, I feel that I should also point out next week on Nitro for the January 11th episode, uh, Eric Bischoff is indeed being bossed around by Klondike Bill while he sets up 
uh, the ring. So there you go. If you want a nice little fun time capsule there, one week from tonight, you can get to see Eric Bischoff on Nitro being bossed around by Klondike Bill while he's setting up the ring. So yeah, that, uh, I guess that you had, you had a similar story, except you said he wasn't actually bossing you around. He was just kind of being cool about it. Yeah, man, he was just, he was pretty, like, um, it was funny because my, my buddy was like, my buddy was all excited, and then like he had to take this massive shit, and he bailed for like the rest of the time. I was like, I mean, of course, it's me. I have to bring up a shit story. I'm just that has, <laughs> of course, quite all right, quite all his, right. After a Stan Hansen incident, and <laughs> back. But no, man, like he was just, I don't know, like he was very chill. Like I mean, granted, like at the time, like you know, you're thinking back, like this this old dude just approaches you and is like, why don't you stay after the, for the show? Like probably should have bailed on that, but we didn't <laughs> know any better at the time, and. Right, <laughs> but I mean, it was it was neat because we kind of got this education on like how a wrestling ring came apart. Which you know, when you at, during like this era where like you're completely obsessed with wrestling, but this is that pre-internet like internet boom of wrestling. It's like it's it's really cool to get that kind of that look behind the curtain in a way. Yeah. So he was just neat, man. He was just he was just kind of cool to be around. I don't know what it was like to actually work for him. That probably could be a whole another a whole another thing, but. Yeah, that was pretty cool. Yeah. And then did you all go out for kielbasa after the show? Hell yeah. <laughs> and I ate it too. <laughs> oh, hell yeah. There you go. Uh, so where were we? Oh, yeah, that's right. Chavo Guerrero versus Norman Smiley. Now, actually, well, speaking of being a sexual deviant, at this point in time, Norman Smiley's claim to fame was his dance move called the Big Wiggle, in which he essentially simulates banging a woman from behind and slapping her ass. And somehow, WCW was totally fine with him doing this every week, even though standards and practices were all over Bischoff at this point in time. I guess they're willing to look the other way, since it's pretty hilarious. So at one point, I actually felt bad for Chavo here, because he went for some sort of springboard move from the second rope, but he completely slipped, and you could actually hear the crowd kind of laughing at him. And from there, it got even worse, because he tried to improvise with some strange like cross-body block thing, and it just looked really terrible. And so, so, I mean, that combined with Emery Hale's botch on the Irish whip earlier, it's a rather mistake-filled episode of Nitro so far, and we're not even a third of the way through it. But fortunately for Chavo, though, shortly after that botch, he slid between Norman's legs and simply rolled him up with a sunset flip, and surprisingly, that was enough to actually give him the win. And as soon as the match ends, Chavo grabs Pepe and holds him up in the air in celebration... But then Norman jumps him from behind. He hits Chavo with a suplex and a scoop slam, and he then smacks Chavo with Pepe, which causes the head of the horse to completely fall off. So clearly this intense rivalry must continue. So William, what did you think of this match? And do you also enjoy the big wiggle as much as I do? Oh dude, Norman Norman's about to start ramping up, especially in two, <laughs> especially in two thousand. Norman Smiley is is a real force in WCW, especially the hardcore uh, division. That's some of the best stuff from our first season was going through and watching Norman Smiley matches just to see, you know, what would he come out dressed as, you know, and how would he survive matches against Ming or Terry Funk. It was great. Um, This match isn't that bad. It's all right. It's definitely a step up from the other two. But, um, again, it does feel, again, a bit aimless because I'm like, where are these guys headed? You know, where are they going? What's the what's kind of the next thing for him now? We know Chavo's got the thing with Eddie, kind of that he's got some going on. It looks like Norman's getting a bit of an edge to him. You know that's kind of neat. So you know at the same time, like they, they have those little nuggets to it. So I think this is okay, pretty good. Yeah, yeah, it's okay. But but I mean, the big question is, do you also enjoy the Big Wiggle? Oh, Big Wiggle! I, 
It's entertaining me. I mean, shit, man. We we enjoyed the worm, and that was stupid. We enjoyed that 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 shake round. What whatever whatever Road Dog does is that, yeah. that. I mean, we all mark out for that stuff. So of course, man, it was good. It was fun to watch at the time. Yeah, I'll also note too. This is the point where he's just doing the big wiggle dance, as opposed to later in his career where he kind of puts the guy in a wheelbarrow position, and then he basically, you know, kind of imitates banging a dude up the ass while he's holding him, yep. which I'm pretty sure he actually does to Terry Funk at one point, where it's kind of like, why, why are you doing that? Why are Miss you doing Hancock that to Terry Funk? reverse it and do it to him at one point. It's kind of funny. Oh, God, really? Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's fun to look. Oh, and actually, on that note of Miss Hancock, by the way, in part one, we talked about the Terry Reynolds miscarriage angle. Clearly, Vince Russo doesn't learn from that because he does, I believe it's at the... New Blood Rising pay-per-view, yes. which your show is named for, yes. they do a miscarriage angle with Stacey Keebler as well when Vince Russo was in charge. So it's, it's that's something, obviously, Russo... It was a mud uh, match. It's like a mud wrestling yeah. match, too. It's really yeah. tacky. That's right. She kind of, like, just... I don't think we even knew she was pregnant going in. She's just, like, holding her stomach at some point yes. in the match. Yes. And they totally break character, and, like, David Flair runs out from backstage or something. It's... Yeah. Oh, that that... I just had, a, like, a... A, f- a terrible flashback just come back to me where I was like, oh my god, but the miscarriages again. So, Russo, Russo will not, he's not afraid to go back to the well again at certain points, even if it clearly did not work the first time. Good god. But anyway, yeah, Norman Smiley and Chavo, pretty solid match. Pretty solid match, and I am very much in favor of the big wiggle. So yeah, thumbs up, thumbs up. Now when we come back from commercial, that oh-so-familiar NWO theme music is playing, so you know what that means. It's time for Hogan. Horace Hogan, that is, who comes to the ring for a match with Chris Benoit. Fun fact, if you're watching this match on the WWE Network, it's labeled as Horace Hogan in singles action, which is actually a change of pace because (laughs) I feel like there's usually just like a total gap at the bottom of the screen for Benoit matches, but I guess maybe they've kind of figured out a workaround now. So Horace, by the way, is wearing a black double-strapped singlet with a weight belt over it, which just looks completely idiotic. His uncle, the Hulkster, can totally pull off a weight belt with his long tights, but wearing one over a goddamn double-strapped singlet? Yeesh. And also, it should be noted that your referee for this match is... Randy Anderson, who Ric Flair reinstated at double the pay earlier tonight. I thought they'd ease him back in, but no, you're at the building, so put on that blue shirt and black bow tie and get to work. Now, the highlight of this match for me was when Benoit attempted to suplex Horace back into the ring, but instead, Horace suplexed Benoit outside the ring, where he landed back first against the ring apron before crumpling to the floor. I mean, to let Horace Hogan do that spot to you, Benoit has to be absolutely insane. Oh, yeah, right, well, yeah. And strangely enough, Horace actually followed that up by getting a running start and hitting Benoit with a murder-suicide dive to the floor, which caused the Crippler to hit his back against the steel guardrail. Against all odds, Horace Hogan has apparently put on his working boots tonight. The finish of the match came when Horace attempted to set Benoit up for a suplex, but when he put Benoit's arm over his own shoulder, he quickly transitioned it into a Crippler crossface, and that resulted in a tap-out victory for Chris Benoit. And huge pop for the Benoit victory, by the way. These fans in Atlanta love him, and yet, little do they realize that just eight years later... He will murder his family only about 20 miles away from this very arena. Good times. So, William, what did you think of Benoit versus Horace? Chris Benoit gets a jobber entrance against Horace Hogan. Mm. I was Yikes. like, I was like who's, in the, who's Horace wrestling? I was like, oh, shit, it's Benoit. And I was like, wow, that's how we're doing this. And I was like, okay. But uh, 
you know, it's fine. Benoit pretty much eats him. So, I mean, there's really not much, really not much to it. Again, like, it, yeah. uh, it, it, it's, it's, it's difficult when you're watching old Benoit. It's like, where is he headed here? Like, I mean, I mean, that's, that's, I can't, I hate to keep harping on that, but like, that's sort of the, the fun thing when you watch like wrestling shows as like a serial. It's like, you know, you're trying to figure out like, okay, what's the next adventure? What's the next storyline? What's the next opponent? You know, that's in line for these guys. It's just like this first, are we into the second hour yet? Just about almost there. This first hour is just, you know, it's just, it is just fluff matches. Like it doesn't seem like they're really amounting towards anything uh, really. So, you know, man, but it was, it was fine. Like, I mean, a Benoit match is always like at bare minimum. It's pretty solid. You know, like there, there, there aren't that many really bad ones I can really, you know, name off. I'm sure, if you watch fifty-two weeks of this, you could surely find one. But <laughs> you know, for the most part, Benoit's in a match. It's gonna be pretty solid. This was pretty solid. Yeah, well, if you're asking where Benoit's headed, I'm pretty sure it's sold out. He's facing Mike Enos. So yeah, he's facing fucking uh, Bo Beverly in go. a couple of weeks. It's sold out. Yeah, wow, what a what a wonderful direction he's headed in. And he's a fucking horseman at this point in time, too, and he's got he's basically going nowhere. You mean to tell me they couldn't have done, you know, Benoit and Flair together? No, but no, we got to have, you know, David Flair teaming with Ric Flair because, you know, ugh, the David Flair experiment begins. But yeah, uh, but I, I actually was pretty entertained by this match, surprisingly, because, uh, I mean, for one, it was pretty short. And also it's, you know, as much as I hate to say it, Benoit is pretty solid in the ring, obviously. More than pretty solid. I don't want to give him too much credit, obviously, since that whole since, you know, that whole thing happened. But he's right, he's right. very good at what he does. Yeah. And actually this also reminded me when when he was in WWE, wasn't there a time where they were actually billing Benoit as being from Atlanta? Yes. That's I'm pretty much like I I would I feel like I remember it at WrestleMania when he came out and that and he won the title. So that was mm. 04. I feel like somewhere around that area is where they started it. Right, it was like they had a couple times where they were oh, like no, wait, getting that would make sense, would it? Because he defended it, and I don't know, man. I know it's sometime in that area, the mid two thousands, is when it started. You're right. Yeah, yeah. There was like a time where it was like Jericho was no longer from Winnipeg; he was from uh, New York, right? Like they were changing the Canadian hometowns to American hometowns for whatever reason. I guess maybe because they were baby faces at the time. And it's like, how how can I cheer for someone from Canada? I mean, my God. Right. So I I don't I don't know what the logic behind that was. That was fucking stupid. But I just couldn't help but think of that because we're in Atlanta tonight, and it's a Benoit match, and of course, you know that whole thing. So right. yeah, yeah, great times all around. But from there, we cut backstage where we see that Goldberg has arrived, and he's surrounded by about ten Atlanta police officers. And so let's pick it up from there. Goldberg, we have a a warrant for your arrest. You have a warrant for my arrest? That's correct. You're kidding me. No, I'm not kidding you. Whatever it is, whoever charged me with whatever it is, like I said, you know, Jack knows, everybody in this city knows that I do nothing but positive things for this community. I do all the things for kids. I do things for the fallen cops. So you and you and you... Nobody here can take me in for anything that I didn't do. You got that? I don't care because whatever it is, I'm innocent. Like I said, none of you guys can take me downtown for something I'm not guilty for. Not any one of you guys or collectively all of you. You got that? I don't like being wrongly accused. So whatever it is, it's bogus and it ain't true. Uh, Something in the I don't hear anything else. I have an arrest warrant for you, Mr. Goldberg. 
and you're going to have to go downtown with them, regardless if you like it or not. You are going downtown. First of all, I don't like it. Second of all, whatever it is, like I said, I didn't do it. So every gun you got and every piece of mace you got, it's going to take every single piece of weaponry to take me down there. Okay, so you prepared to do that? I hope you are, because I am. I stand for good in this community, and nobody can tell me otherwise. Listen, go to the precinct. We're going to get the information. Everything's going to be taken care of, okay? Bam. Listen, calm down, Bill. Listen, calm down. Last time I'm going to tell you. All I need you to do is put your hands behind you. Let his hand come behind Put me. your hands behind your back. You know what this makes me look like, Jack? This makes Bill. me look like I'm guilty. Look, I understand. Just put your hands behind you. Let the officers handcuff you. Like We're going to take me. Bill. Put your hands behind your back. Listen, I'm going to tell you oh, one more time. Put your hands behind you. Look. You understand, you know me, okay? Do like I asked you. Let's go to the precinct. We're going to get everything straightened out, okay? All I got right? to say, Jack, is we've been friends for a long time. You do your job, you do what you got to do, and I guarantee you I'll be vindicated because this is wrong. Bill, I understand. You do what I, you got to do. I understand. Let's just go on down there. We'll get the information. All right, fans. Everything's going to come out, okay? This is wrong, Jack. Let's go. This, this is wrong. Let's go. Let's go. This is wrong! This is a breaking story. We're going to follow First of all, I love how Goldberg is talking about being a role model in the community while simultaneously threatening to beat up a bunch of cops. I know. This is awesome, man, because he's like, <laughs> you know I couldn't do this because I donate money to the cops. What? Right. What? Right. <laughs> I mean, that's what a heel would say, you know? Like, I yeah. donate so much money. This is, he, dude, this is some, there's so much to unpack with this stuff, but it's really just <laughs> picking and choosing what you want to go with because it's hilarious, this shit. There's actually, it's actually funny to me because Goldberg is basically saying when the cops surround him, he's like, you're going to have to use all that base to take me in. And then by the end of the segment, he's like, he's like, yeah, just put the cuffs on me. It's like, like, what the hell? But clearly when threatening to beat up the cops, for some reason, Goldberg is not of the opinion that blue lives matter. That's a shame. That's a real shame. Yes. And after a commercial break, so we actually see Goldberg being loaded into a squad car after commercial by a crew of police officers. You know me, Jack. You know me. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I love how, too, like, Goldberg is saying, like, you know, he's talking to the guy, calling him Jack, as though he knows him. We as the audience don't know who the fuck this guy is. But like, You know me. And Jack, I'm sorry, Jack, Jack is terrible. <laughs> Jack is terrible at what yes. he does. And I love the other guys, like, we're going to take you downtown, Goldberg. We are fucking downtown. <laughs> the Georgia Dome is downtown. Yep. Oh, my God. Yeah. Well, apparently, apparently downtown is across the street. Exactly, the too. That's yeah. the other funny part about this is like they literally just go across the street and they can't make it back. Yeah. <laughs> they, they, yeah, that's pretty much it. They make them. Why'd they even have to put him in a car? They could have walked him across right. the street, probably. <laughs> Good God. But yeah, once they take him away in the car, that's the point when your WCW World Heavyweight Champion Kevin Nash shows up on the scene. He protests and says they can't take Goldberg away from the arena because Nash has a match with him tonight, and yet somehow that isn't convincing enough to, to automatically cause them to set him free. But once the cop car drives away, we then see that none other than Hulk 
Hogan has been standing by and watching the festivities. So Nash takes Hogan to task for laughing at Goldberg's misfortune, but Hogan says he's a, quote, law and order politician, and he believes in a man doing his time. We then follow Hogan as he walks into the building, right past Miss Elizabeth, who appears to be talking to two detectives in trench coats. Quite the eventful segment there, huh? So what did you think of all this craziness with Goldberg being arrested and Nash and Hogan and Elizabeth all hanging out? I mean, like, the one thing is, like, it leaves you with a lot of stuff. You're like, okay, what's the Nash thing? What's the Hogan thing? What's Liz doing? Like, I mean, it's, in terms of, like, leaving you kind of wanting to see more, like, it accomplishes that. It's just... You know, the the stuff of the detectives is just hilarious. And it just gets better. It just gets so much better with these with these cops. Because there's nothing better in pro wrestling than when cops have to, you know, act on camera. It's the best. Yeah. It is the yep. best. So <laughs> this, I, I mean, but in all honesty, like, I, it's, it's a pretty good segment in terms of television where it's like, okay, it doesn't go on too long, but it sets up so many little things. So Yeah, it does, yeah. And, I mean, what's... It, yeah, basically going on what you were saying, you get like four main characters in this story in one segment where it starts with Goldberg, transitions to Nash, transitions to Hogan. Hogan's walking in. We see Elizabeth in the background. So it is putting a lot of balls in motion. And I think this is actually right around the time when the nine o'clock hour is starting. So they're basically trying to keep you you know, from switching over to Raw because it's like, what's going to happen with Goldberg? What's all this other stuff going on? So, yeah, to to their credit, they are setting up a lot of things. Whether or not they pay off those things is another story. But, yeah, so there's uh, there's quite a bit going on as we head into the 9 o'clock hour. And from there, we head back to the arena for our next match, Perry Saturn clad in a do-rag and chain mail versus Chris Jericho, who is accompanied by... Ralphus. Now, in case you're wondering who the hell Ralphus is, he's a fat guy with missing teeth who used to be an actual truck driver for WCW, and he would haul their ring equipment from town to town. Now, apparently Jericho thought it would be funny to put him on TV, so he came up with the idea to make Ralphus his personal bodyguard. Pretty funny stuff. But let's talk about the theme songs for a moment here, if we yeah. if we can. So yeah, if you're watching this on the WWE Network, both men's themes are completely dubbed over from their original versions, presumably because Saturn's is a total ripoff of Judas Priest, You Got Another Thing Coming, while Jericho's is a ripoff of Pearl Jam's Even Flow. So instead, we get Saturn entering to a later theme of his, which is pretty much just an air raid siren looped over and over on top of generic rock music, and Scott Steiner's later WWE theme would surely be proud. And as for Jericho... On the WWE Network, he enters to break the walls down. Yes, that's right. They dub in his classic WWE theme instead of making up some generic song, which I think might have actually been the better option. And interestingly, it's actually the original version of his WWE theme they play here, where it sounds like the singer yells something like, You're going down, bitch! Whatever the hell. I don't even know what it is. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. I, I don't know what that is. No, yeah. right, I definitely hear yeah, the word are, bitch. I definitely remember, like, they they did a like a a better produced version of his of his track later on. Absolutely, but but did, did seeing Jericho come out to break the walls down did that weird. throw you for a yeah, loop? Yeah, it's, it's yeah. weird. But I mean, pretty much, like if you watch anything on the network with him, that's what you're going to get. Unfortunately, yeah, I I didn't even realize that actually. To be honest with you, until I was like sitting down and watching some of these nitros, I was like, wow, shit, they actually went ahead and did that. All right, I guess just it's better to put in the old theme than potentially put in an even flow ripoff and, and, and risk a Pearl Jam lawsuit, I guess. I, I don't know. 
So while the Jericho-Saturn match is going on, something you touched on earlier, William, I couldn't help but notice that Shivani and Zabisco were spending a ton of time talking about the Goldberg arrest situation. In fact, Shivani at one point says they'll cut away from the action if they have an update. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you just buried your wrestlers. I I couldn't help but think... You know, no wonder both of these guys are going to be gone from the company a year from now. Spoiler. I mean, they're working their asses off in the ring and the commentary too. Yeah. Really only has a few months, I think. Yeah, you're right. Only about, at this point, eight months, I think. Yeah. Spoiler. But yeah, working their asses off in the ring and the commentary team is just ignoring them. So, WCW, ladies and gentlemen, not one for making new stars. But there are a couple things I'll note from this match, though. Number one, Saturn was throwing some damn fine overhead suplexes all throughout this match. Must have been watching a lot of Taz tapes or something. Number two, the crowd actually popped pretty big for Saturn when he picked Jericho up for a Death Valley driver, which Shivani abbreviated as the DVD, so clearly he was ahead of his time because I was still using VHS in 99. And number three, this was, I kid you not, one of the most confusing endings to a match I've ever seen in my life. So Saturn went for a springboard forearm, to which Jericho responded by grabbing referee Scott Dickinson and throwing him into harm's way instead, And when Dickinson got knocked down, Jericho kicked Saturn in the balls, hit him with a lion salt, and then grabbed Saturn's legs in an attempt to turn him over into the walls of Jericho, or rather the lion tamer as they called it in WCW. And at that point, while Jericho was struggling to put Saturn into the move, Dickinson recovered and called for the bell, and Jericho started celebrating as though he won the match. But I repeat, he never actually turned Saturn over and got him in the Lion Tamer, so why did he react as though he just won by submission? Did Jericho think Saturn had given up purely from him just grabbing him by the legs? And then when we got our official verdict, Dickinson awarded the match to Jericho as a result of a disqualification. What the fuck? So to recap, Jericho clearly grabbed the ref and threw him into harm's way, and the ref gives him the victory. So what makes this more perplexing is the fact that Jericho got the better of Saturn, and then he prematurely celebrated, so it really seemed like they were setting this up for a reversal, where the ref would then award the match to Saturn while Jericho was celebrating. But no, Jericho still won the match, which seemed to make all the stuff afterwards completely pointless. But, William, were you as confused by this as I was? I was. And, I mean, like, dude, that's the thing. Like, 98 Chris Jericho's awesome. 99 Chris Jericho's shit. Like, it's just, (laughs) there's just not, he was the best when he was dominating that cruiserweight division and when he got the TV title. Saturn was awesome when he was fighting Raven's Flock, when he was fighting Raven. And -hmm. I've also gone on record, he's the best revenge player ever. Best WCW, <laughs> you could do everything with Saturn. He was awesome. Nice. But, I mean, like, I was, when these guys came out, I was like, all right, so where's this going to go? Who's going to go over in this? And then you're right. The ending is definitely confusing. I mean, it, it was, it, it really didn't make a whole lot of sense at the time. So, you know, man, like, uh, we'll kind of see where it goes from here for these guys. I mean, like, I don't, I don't really think they have too much more that's really cool to chew on. I mean, I know Saturn later on is there, I mean, they're going to do another stable with him. That's really going to be the end of his run, but there's really not like there's there's not a lot of like great stuff left of these guys in WCW. It just kind of shows in this match. It just isn't like the peak of these guys. This is definitely past the peak in terms of their WCW runs. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned too the the part you said about 1999 Jericho not being as good. If you read his book, he actually touches on that because it's right around this time, I believe, where Bischoff is basically on him to sign an extension and continue with the company. And Jericho's like, yeah, no, I don't think so. He's kind of um, 
basically what he says in the book is he's he's kind of reeling from a couple months ago. It was around, I think it was like late October, early November, where you might remember Jericho was doing the gimmick with Goldberg, where he was calling him out. Yeah. Remember that? And it's Goldberg awesome. wouldn't show up. Yeah, it was fucking awesome. Exactly. And there, there is one payoff where like Goldberg spears him in the ramp. You know, when uh, Jericho's not paying attention, he turns around, Goldberg spears him. But I don't think they ever actually have a payoff to it where like they actually have a match. Or, or maybe they maybe they do. I don't even recall. They don't pay but basically, off backstage, like, but that doesn't count. <laughs> right, exactly. But I think like if you read Jericho's book, one of his books, I forget which one it is. He basically says like this is one of the main factors. That Goldberg feud is one of the main factors in him being like, yeah, you know what? Screw this. I'm I'm like out of here. I'm checked out. I'm done. I'm not signing an extension. I'm going to go to the WWF if I can when my contract's up. So it's not a coincidence when you say 99 Jericho is not that good because at this point it's become pretty apparent that he's not continuing with the company. So I think, you know, Bischoff is obviously not going to have too much for him to do, uh, you know, if he knows that Jericho's actually going to be out the door. So yeah, w- what you're saying is 100% accurate in that regard. So yeah, the the countdown is on. The countdown is on. And also the countdown is on for another guy who's not on the show tonight. How about, uh, how about the Giant, who actually has his final WCW match one week from tonight. So oh, wow, a, lot, right. yeah. a lot of turmoil, a lot of turmoil in WCW right around this time. So yeah, big big things happening, and not necessarily in a, in a good way for them. So we then cut to a local police precinct in Atlanta, which Tony, which Tony Schiavone refers to, as we said, as being right across the street. The police officers take Goldberg into a room, and fortunately for us viewers, the cops apparently have no issue with a cameraman following them into their building while they're booking a suspect. And so, let's pick it up from there and find out what charges have been levied against Goldberg. What's going on, guys? Mr. Goldberg, you're under arrest right now for aggravated stalking. Aggravated stalking? That's correct, Mr. Goldberg. It's a joke. Elizabeth Lebetsky filed charges against you? Elizabeth Le. First of all, I'm not capable of anything like that. Second of all, I don't even know who Elizabeth Lebetsky is. I do. Bill. Miss Elizabeth. You crazy? Miss Elizabeth? Miss Elizabeth. <laughs> Filed the stalking charges against yourself. What we're going to do, we're going to sit here and talk to you. The detectives are, are interviewing her right now and trying to figure out just exactly what the charges are. And they're going to let us know. And we're going to go from there as soon as they get back with the information. All right. Okay. Jack, you know me. I know this ain't not, me. I know you're not capable of it, but we still have to go with the information. Okay. You guys go ahead and do your job. I ain't going to be the one to pay for this. Because right. it was not me. Right. As soon as we get the information, we'll let you know what's going on, okay? They're interviewing her now. All right. So, yes, Miss Elizabeth has accused Goldberg of aggravated stalking, which makes sense since pretty much anything Goldberg does could be considered aggravated. But I had to look this up. Apparently, in the state of Georgia, the punishment for someone who gets convicted of this type of stalking is a fine of up to $10,000 and between 1 and 10 years in prison. Who's next? Apparently, it might be Goldberg's poop shoot. Also, you heard here that Elizabeth's current last name is Lebetsky, which is true. This episode of Nitro takes place in the very brief 16-month window where Elizabeth was married to a lawyer named Carrie Lebetsky. But, spoiler alert, they'll end up getting divorced just three months from now. But don't worry, as we know, she eventually ends up with Lex Luger, and nothing can possibly go wrong there. So, William, what are your thoughts on Liz accusing Goldberg of stalking her? 
My only real note besides the obvious, which I mean is it again, like the best stuff is when Goldberg is trying. It's, it's not Goldberg's strong suit to do these things. Like it's the worst thing you could have him do. And yeah. To, and to have him like respond and play off these detectives who are just, I mean, this isn't even the best stuff from the detectives. It's coming up where they're just explaining, you know, what's going on. So I love when they say Elizabeth Lebetsky and you hear Tony like, I know who that is. Like, yeah, right. It's like, Tony, it's a bit creepy, dude, the way you brought that in there. <laughs> and, <laughs> Maybe Tony's the one stalking Exactly, out. exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I mean, this is just the start of just some real gold here. Some real gold, no pun intended, Goldberg stuff. You know, it's good. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, it's funny because, like, up until I think maybe it was, like, August, I think around August, Goldberg basically didn't even cut a promo until this past August. And now, you know, fast forward a couple months, and he's doing these segments where he's just talking on and on and on for, you know, quite a while. Again, like you said, not his strong suit. He's the ass-kicking guy. Put him in there, spear, jackhammer, you know, all that sort of stuff. It's not really – it's not his forte to be doing these lengthy backstage segments. All he needs to segments. say is who's next. He, that's all that's he, right. That's all he's got to do. Absolutely. Which, by the way, in retrospect, really awesome catchphrase to have. That's I think that's for me. Oh, one dude, of the top and the five. best. Charlie and I have talked about this. The best was when he came back this past, or you know, in 20, uh, 2017 or whatnot, or twenty sixteen, and he did. It's not who's next; it's who's last. And I was like, Oh yes. my god, that's brilliant. Yes, that that was great stuff. Uh, and again, that makes that's like it's a simple two-word catchphrase, but all that it conveys is like, yeah, I just kick your ass, or I just kick your ass. Who's the next guy on the list? It's exactly. that's fucking awesome. It's a great catchphrase, yeah. and it's perfect for a guy like Goldberg who doesn't need to say much to convey anything. So, yeah, definitely awesome top five catchphrase for me. Uh, even though at the time, I have to admit that back in back at this time, I fucking hated Goldberg because I was like, he's a stone cold ripoff. Oh man, like, yeah, I, I, because I, I, I'll admit, man, like. I was rooting hard for DDP at Halloween Havoc to take the belt off him. It's the I mean, yeah. it's, everyone said it. I mean, it's nothing original. To say it's the best match Goldberg's had was against Page at Halloween Havoc. But I was really pulling for Page in that match, big time. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, I know there was a bit of a backlash. This is some of the uh, this is part of the logic Kevin Nash has for why he ended Goldberg's streak was like, oh, the the backlash was starting against Goldberg. You know, the fans were starting to boo him a little bit. So, you know, he always cites that as, like, a reason as to why. He's not wrong. Yeah. He's not wrong. But um, no. at the same time, it's like, you know, dude, you still picked yourself to do it. And, I mean, like, I've heard right. him say he wasn't on the booking committee to decide that at the time. Like, he's actually said it wasn't, you know, his choice. I mean, whatever, man. I don't know. I'm, You know, unfortunately, man, like, I, I, it's been a while since I've read Death of WCW. I'm sure there's some good quotes in there. I don't know if you pulled any from there regarding this show. Maybe you have for later on, but that's just such a mess and you're right like yeah man there's a little bit of a backlash building but it's like are you really the one who needs to do it you know yeah yeah it's funny you mentioned that i didn't pull from death of wcw but i did pull from another source that basically discusses very just what you said if nash was booking at the time right so i'll touch on that a little bit later but i'm i'm glad you brought that up because i i do in fact have a little bit of content related to that so so we shall touch on that just a little bit later but from there after that, we get a commercial for a Nitro Girls calendar. And this is one of those times when I question why they didn't just edit this out on the WWE Network. I guess maybe they think it's like a fun little time capsule. So, yeah, but got, got to leave that Nitro Girl calendar commercial in there, clearly. And from there, this segues us back into the arena where the Nitro Girls are once again performing a dance routine, this time by the entranceway. And it was at this point that we could briefly see the Nitro Girl's newest member taking part in the performance, and that young lady would be Nitro Girl Storm, who we later come to know better as 
Charmel, a.k.a. the future wife of Booker T. Yes, she was hired just a few weeks ago, so she gets to strut her stuff a little bit here. William, did you happen to notice Charmel during this routine? Yes, yes, I did notice Charmel, and I was thinking, I was like, wow, man, there's a real nexus here of uh, wrestling women that are going to become very famous later on. Well, not a ton of them, but, you know, still, like, I was, it's weird, because, like, I kept thinking, I was like, this is 99, like, I mean, DDP's, like, Kimberly should be standing out a lot more by this point, you know, because, like, I mean, it's not like she's an unknown to them, but it was just, you know. But you're right. It's pretty cool to see people like Charmel showing up in this. Yeah, it is funny, too, because I think it, I think it actually coincides with when Russo goes over to WCW, where a lot of the Nitro girls are given on-camera personalities. Yeah. I think Charmel, for one, becomes becomes Paisley. Yeah. And, uh, and Kimberly gets some stuff to do, I think, with DDP. But, uh, yeah, the, the Nitro girls end up having more than just, you know, dance careers. They actually become, a lot of them become on-camera characters. So I think also, if I could be wrong, or I could be wrong, I should say, but I think Stacey Keebler, is she a Nitro girl at one point who yes. transitions into Miss Hancock? She is, okay. Yeah. I wasn't sure if she was just Miss Hancock from the beginning, but uh, I know she had like a dance background, like a cheerleader background. So I figured that she was probably on the Nitro girls at some point. Anywho. So we then cut back to Jimmy Barron in one of the skyboxes with those drunk asshole fans once again. And one guy actually blurts out, free Goldberg, while his friend takes the opposite viewpoint and says they should keep Goldberg in jail. Harsh, but fair. Also, we see we see one dude in the background. Did you notice the guy in the background give a stone-cold stunner to his buddy? Yeah, this is the worst. Like, this is just <laughs> the worst. Uh, to watch, and I'll tell you, man, those Nitro Party things would be entertaining as hell to, when they would show those like at people's houses or whatever. Like those are fairly entertaining to watch because that really was like, in a way, like I wasn't old enough to be having Nitro parties or whatever. But man, that's that's what you kind of wish the life was like on Monday nights, you know, back yeah. then. These guys are the worst, though. No matter what <laughs> year it is, I agree. Definitely agree. Although I did like the fact that, you know, the one guy gives the stunner. So so even though they're WCW fans, I think they clearly know who the big star is, obviously. Right, right. So, unless maybe they were imitating uh, Disco Inferno's chart buster. Or it's the diamond it. cutter. That's usually the way people would also like, oh, oh he's trying yeah. to do the diamond cutter. There you go. <laughs> and from there, we cut to somewhere backstage where Miss Elizabeth is being interviewed by a pair of police officers. She says that Goldberg follows her everywhere, every episode of Nitro, every pay-per-view, even to the gym. She says she constantly felt threatened, and this apparently causes one of the detectives to pull his partner aside and leave the room. And clearly, as we all know from watching her over the past 14 years, Elizabeth's strong suit is her acting. And after that, we cut to a pre-taped segment with the Latino World Order, where they're partying somewhere at someone's house. And holy shit, talk about unfortunate timing. This segment features Eddie Guerrero standing beside a bunch of cars and putting over how awesome they are. And I repeat, Eddie was involved in a horrific car crash three days ago. Clearly, this segment was obviously taped before then, but goddamn, talk about timing. I feel like they probably could have cut that part out. Call me crazy. But from there, we go into the house where a full-on mariachi band is playing, and the LWO members are dancing, partying, playing cards, etc. Of particular note is the fact that La Parca and Psychosis both apparently party with their masks on, because, you know, you gotta keep that gimmick going at all times. However, some of the LWO members are expressing skepticism over Eddie's leadership of the group and saying that he's changed too much, so I guess they're playing up the notion that they're losing faith in their leader. In my opinion, the best part of this segment was the fact that the awesome LWO theme music was playing all throughout it, but I guess that's just me. So, William, what did you think of this LWO party segment? 
This is long. Yeah, yeah. You needed this needed to be broken up and shown throughout the night. To and but here's the other thing: when WWF does this, they, they build. They're building towards something. Like take take old Dennis Knight. You know, backstage. Oh. Like, you know, like each thing built towards eventually them taking him away, right? Like, right. And so that was done fairly well because, like, it was creepy and it's. I mean, it's laughable now, but like at the time, it's like, okay, maybe a little bit laughable at the moment too. But like, it's like they, if they had done that whole thing as one segment, I don't know if it works as well in terms of like this kind of weird, this weird just kind of thing that's going to come in and out of your senses. Mm-hmm. If they had done this here a little bit, now granted. I don't know if any of this is really funny at all. Like, I don't know if any of this is really entertaining at all. But it just goes on too long. If they just chop this up a little bit or even just condense it a little bit, it would have been better. But, Agreed. I mean, dude, we get the point early on what they're trying to sell with the, what you just said. They, 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 And then they just kind of keep going back to it. And this is like one of those things where you just, you just needed an editor to tell you, like, okay, you're being redundant at this point. Yeah. The funny thing too is they probably could have just cut. Honestly, they probably could have cut the whole thing out because you know it's they're playing up a little bit the tension of Eddie Guerrero. You know the the LWO is getting to his head, but because of the real life car crash, you know basically Eddie. I think they completely shortly after this they kind of drop the LWO almost entirely. So this whole thing about like oh the I, the fame is going to Eddie's head it it gets dropped because they don't do it anymore. No, see, the, and this was I mean this is why the Wolfpack the Wolfpack had like a fun period of like a month it felt like I felt like the Wolfpack was fun for like a month in '98 when they did it maybe less <laughs> the, then they did this LWO and now we're and you know in the in the future there's gonna be all these other kind of small little splinter groups of the NWO and it's just like. It, it just kind of sucks. You know, it just doesn't really do anything for anybody. Like, does this thing, does the LWO really elevate anybody? Like, I, I'm asking honestly because I don't really remember very well. Like, is it really elevate? It doesn't feel like it does. No. Like, Eddie Guerrero seems like the same guy who's bossing around Chavo, you know? It's the same right. dude. So I don't even know if this is really helping to elevate his character. So, I, I mean, it's for the best that they dropped it because it just, it just seemed like, yeah, oh, maybe we're giving the, we're giving the, we're giving the Mexican guys a little bit more time. Yeah, maybe, but do I care anymore about El Dandy? No, I don't. I don't yeah. care about him until Bret Hart brings him up. <laughs> that's right, yeah. Who are you to doubt El Dandy? Yeah, that's a good point, though. I, I think basically the, the whole formation of the LWO was like the Mexican wrestlers are being held down. But like all they're really doing is just putting them all together in one group. It's like, do, does anyone give a shit about Viano 4? No, not really. Does anybody give a shit about, like you said, El Dandy or La Parca? Not really. They pretty much just kind of stay stagnant. They're not really like getting above the level where they are. It's just that they're now, you know, they're, they've kind of coalesced into one group, but they're not really advancing anywhere. So anyway, but I guess this kind of provides a fitting segue into our next match because it features LWO members Juventud Guerrera and Psychosis versus WCW Cruiserweight Champion Billy Kidman and Rey Mysterio. And interestingly, we're told that Mysterio is actually part of the LWO, and we did briefly see him during that party scene, but he's matched up against his fellow LWO members tonight, so go figure. But also, there is one very important thing to note during this match. Bobby the Brain Heenan has now replaced Larry Zabisco on commentary, so it will be him and Shivani doing the play-by-play. And yes, Eric Bischoff is still at the commentary table, and he still has not said a single word. And right off the bat, Heenan pops me because he asks if Ernest Miller, a.k.a. the cat, has been out here yet tonight. And when Shivani says no, Heenan responds, then I wonder who's got Eric's tongue. 
cheesy joke, cheesy joke from the brain, but goddammit, I love it. And we also got another quality Heenan joke a few minutes later. So when Shivani informs him of the Goldberg situation, the brain says, quote, I got a heck of a lawyer. If you want him, he'll be out in two months. <laughs> so so already, like like 10 seconds in, I've already gotten more enjoyment out of Heenan tonight than Shivani, Tanay, Zabisco, and Bischoff on commentary combined. Such a breath of fresh air. However, I don't want to take too much away from the match itself because I thought it was a really fun match. Some of the noteworthy spots included Ray jumping off the top rope, landing on Hooventude, and hitting him with a Hurricane Rana. Ray tossing Hooventude into the air, followed by Kidman catching him and hitting him with a spine buster. Psychosis leaping over the top rope and hitting a leg drop onto Ray on the floor. And by the way, as a quick side note, I did kind of cringe when I saw that spot because about a year and a half from now, Johnny the Bull does that same spot in a WCW match and it results in a rather infamous injury. Do you know the one I'm talking yes, about, William? Yes, yes. He tears his ass up. He tears his urethra. That's it, the urethra. That's it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, we do remember. I remember us. Because I remember I read about it, and I kept waiting each show for it to happen, and it didn't. It's sort of like when you watch uh, the Hot Tub Time Machine, you're waiting for for George McFly to get his arm taken off. Right. You're just waiting and waiting. So, yeah, it's the same thing with Johnny the Bull. Yeah, that's, uh, oh, although in retrospect, maybe you should be glad you didn't see that, but not not that you can see it on camera anyway, but I mean, Jesus Christ, that's that's got to be one of the most horrendous injuries I've ever heard of. But getting back to the list of really cool spots, there was one where Kidman, uh, basically, so he kind of grabbed Hooventude in a headlock, and then he jumped up and wrapped his legs around Psychosis, and then he went to the ground. So essentially, he hit Hooventude with a diving headlock and Psychosis with a Hurricane Rana at the exact same time. And I can't say I've ever seen that before, but it looked pretty cool. And then Kidman and Mysterio actually combined to do, of all things, the Doomsday device on Psychosis with Ray hitting the clothesline and Psychosis selling it like a goddamn boss. So Kidman and Ray worked very well together as a team, at least until the finish, so Hooventude was holding Ray in position for a German suplex, so Kidman went to the top rope. Now Kidman was going to drop kick Hoovy, but Ray quickly did a standing switch, which resulted in Kidman accidentally drop kicking his own partner in the back of the head. Hoovy then clotheslined Kidman out of the ring, and Psychosis hit a top rope leg drop on Ray, and that was enough for the one, the two, and the three. Your winners, LWO members, Psychosis and Juventud Guerrera. So, William, what did you think of this match? Awesome. This is a great match. This is a lot yes. of fun to watch. This is like playing WWNWO Revenge with your friends. Right. You could do all the crazy, like, springboards, like like you said, the Doomsday Device type of move they do. It's it's fun. I mean, like, you're getting, you're getting these guys just going balls out, and they really deliver. Once again, dude, another guy who becomes a trainer or an agent in this match. Oh, yeah, that's right, Kidman. Yeah, I completely forgot about that. Good call. But, yeah, totally fun match. I mean, again, it's the cruiserweights for the most part. I think, I don't know if you call Kidman a cruiserweight necessarily. I'd kind of call him a cruiserweight. He was. But no, he was. You're right. Yeah, yeah, he was the cruiserweight champ. That's right. And was he the cruiserweight champ going in? Yeah, he was. Yeah, he's was, the cruiserweight yeah. champ going in. Yep. So, yeah, definitely, it's four cruiserweights. And as you know, I mean, Kidman, Mysterio, great. I mean, they're just top-notch. They're phenomenal. And at the same time, you know, Psychosis and Hooventude are both pretty solid as well. 
So yeah, no no complaints whatsoever. This was a fun match. Again, as I said, you know, Heenan coming in was a breath of fresh air combined with the cruiserweights. That that match basically kind of spicing things up. Uh, definitely a contrast from the matches where you have you know Hugh Morris versus Glacier. So yeah, this was this was a, a welcome a welcome breath of fresh air in the middle of the broadcast. So yeah, absolutely thumbs up. I'd say go check it out if you get a chance to because it's probably I'd say it's probably the best match on the card tonight by Hands far. Down. Would you agree? Hands yeah, down. absolutely. So from there, we go back to Goldberg being interviewed by the cops, and they tell him about Elizabeth's claims. He says that he and Liz are always in the same place because WCW puts all the wrestlers and valets in the same arenas and hotels. And one cop says that Elizabeth always sees him at the Obaki Gym, and Goldberg's reason for that is because he owns it. Now, I assume that's a real gym, but I actually can't find any record of one with that name attached to it. Uh, Goldberg does indeed own a gym called Extreme Power Gym, but I can't find any info on whatever the hell Obaki is. Kind of sounds like a distant cousin of Bukaki, but that's a whole other story. Or Cousin Balki. <laughs> yeah, oh, there you go. <laughs> Straight out of Meepos. And after commercial break, we cut back to the arena where we see mean Gene Okerlund standing in the aisleway. And creepily, the very first image we see is a close-up of him licking his lips. I think he thought he might have had like an extra second before they came back on the air, but yikes, that, that image is probably going to haunt me for a little while. So Mean Gene calls for WCW World Heavyweight Champion Kevin Nash to join him, and so he does. So let's listen to what Nash has to say. You have asked for time to respond to what we've seen over the past few minutes. Kevin Nash, this is your forum, my friend. Yeah, at Starcade, a lot of people say that Kevin Nash beat Bill Goldberg. As far as I'm concerned, at Starcade, Bill Goldberg got screwed. I've been sitting back there in the locker room getting ready for a match with Goldberg, and I watched the turn of events that's happened tonight with Liz coming up with some trumped-up charges, but it doesn't take Clouseau to figure out that I know who's behind this, and that's you, Hogan. So it's real simple. Since the Nature Boys seems to be righting all the wrongs, Nature, I'm asking you, let me have Hogan tonight. I know for a fact, I know for a fact that you've had eight days to go over contracts. I know Hogan's still under contract. I want Hogan tonight. Call it a warm-up, because I know at the end of the night, Goldberg and me will be in the ring for the world title. Wow. I think that's what these folks wanted to hear tonight, Kevin Nash. So, Hogan, if you're out there, and I know you are in the back, it's real simple. You and I hook it up tonight. Whoa, 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 wait a minute. President of World Championship Wrestling, Ric Flair, you've had to be dialing in on all of this conversation. You hear the request of Kevin Nash? First of all, regardless of whether I agree with how he got it, he is the world heavyweight champion of the greatest wrestling organization in the world. I don't know what's happened to Goldberg, but I know this for a fact. If Liz is involved, Hogan's pulling the strings. And if Hogan's pulling the strings and thinks he's going to dance off to Hollywood, make a movie, and make a mockery of this company, he's wrong. Tonight, Hogan, you're under contract. If Goldberg can't make the match, 
you, my friend, in front of 40,000 and the world are going to wrestle Big Sexy, buddy. Yeah! Woo. How about that? Tony Schiavone, I think that match has been made. We've got a new president, and we've got a whole new attitude. Kevin Nash, I thank you. So there you have it. Kevin Nash has challenged Hollywood Hulk Hogan to a match tonight, and your new WCW president, Ric Flair, has made it official. Now, I think the key point here is that Nash specifically refers to the Hogan match as a, quote, warm-up, and he says that he will indeed still be facing Goldberg tonight in the match, which WCW advertised on Nitro one week ago. So I will repeat once again, WCW was selling tickets for this show based on the promise of a Kevin Nash-Goldberg rematch from Starcade. so it's pretty heartening to hear that not only is Nash telling us we're going to get that Goldberg match tonight, but we're also going to get Nash versus Hulk Hogan tonight as well. The leader of the NWO Wolfpack versus the leader of the NWO Black and White. At long last, they're going to finally hook it up. Truly a very exciting turn of events if you're a WCW fan. And to further drive home the point that we're definitely getting Nash versus Goldberg tonight, they actually re-show that montage from the beginning of Nitro, which recapped how Nash won the title at Starcade. So, William, what did you think of Kevin Nash calling out Hulk Hogan and promising to face Goldberg tonight? Yeah, it's this weird wrinkle. Like, it's this weird thing. You're like, okay, so... You're going to do that. And what and what time are we at at the show at this point? Like, we're I at... Think coming up on 10. So it's like, okay, when are they going to do this? Because it felt like this would have been something done last hour or something like that. It's, or they're going to do it right now. So it's sort of right. like, it's curious. It's like, okay, where are they going with this? Because, I mean, feasibly, like, you're anticipating, what, it's going to be a 10-minute match or something like that? And it's like... I mean, it's not like Nash's like steamboat flare here can go an hour. <laughs> yeah, so right. It, it's logistically you're just having a hard time wrapping your mind around it. But at the same time, you're like, okay, you know, it's it it's intriguing, but it's it's definitely it, it's a little bit you know confusing thinking about how they're going to work this out. But Flair says they're going to do it, you know, and when a babyface authority figure says they are, man, <laughs> that's what's going to happen. Oh, clearly, yes. Yeah, I feel like if I was in the Dome that night, I would have been excited because I would have been like, okay, we're saying we're getting Goldberg against Nash, but Nash is also saying he's going to take on Hogan. So, like, he's pulling double duty. Like, this is – it's like two – potentially after this announcement, it basically goes from being like one marquee matchup to now we have two marquee matches on the card, right? Because, I mean, they're saying, Nash flat out says that both of them are going to happen. Right. So, again, again, you're saying it's a matter of timing, like, they don't know when it's going to be, but, like, based on what he's saying and what Flair is saying, we're going to have, like, two marquee matches on free TV. So, I feel like if I was in the Dome that night, I would be expecting some pretty big things. Yeah, because, I mean, the other thing, too, is, remember, like, after the Wolfpack thing happens... Hogan goes and does, like, two celebrity matches in the summer, and then the Goldberg match in July. His <laughs> summer is, like, like if whenever they should have been building towards a payoff of NWO Hollywood versus NWO Wolfpack, there's no real clear, I, I mean, in my, I, I don't remember, like, a clear blow-off win for one faction for the other. No, they there wasn't one. They just kind of hover around. So at the same time, to build on what you're saying, like, you'd be like, okay, maybe we're finally going to get a little bit more proper resolution with this since you have the leader of one versus the leader of the other. Yeah, so, which is huge. That's yeah. absolutely huge because the NWO flat out, it's splintered into those two separate groups, I think back in like maybe like April or May or something like that. So you could say this has been, you know, eight, nine months in the making 
where you know Nash formed his own group, Hogan kept his own group. Hogan himself hasn't wrestled since Halloween Havoc, that wonderful match against against the Warrior, yeah. and he retired right, right around Thanksgiving time. But I mean, yeah, you could say that like this is this is a pretty big match. They're all of a sudden now teasing out of nowhere where we're getting Nash versus Hogan because yeah, there there has been no resolution on the NWO storyline whatsoever. So this is. This is pretty big stuff here tonight on Nitro. So if I were a fan as of this point in time, I would be very, very excited if I was in the Georgia Dome. But from there, we cut back to the locker room where Elizabeth is once again being questioned by the detectives. So let's take a listen to what she has to say. Hey, Miss Elizabeth, can you tell me exactly where this happened? Uh, you know, I've already told your partner everything, and, uh, you know, I don't think... Do I have to repeat this again? Why do yes, I ma'am, to... you do. I need to hear it for myself. Kind of a bad speller. I need to write it all down. Now, where did exactly this happen now? The last incident that you were trying to explain earlier. Um, I was at the Coke machine, and I was just getting myself a Diet Pepsi. I turn around, and there he is, okay? He's... What was he wearing? Um, red tights. Red tights. Okay, now you said he followed you all over the place. Went to the Marriott, I understand. Yes. Where else? Uh, he's followed me uh, to the arenas. He's followed me to the gym. He's followed me... To Any the... particular gym? It's the, uh, the Obaki gym. Obaki yes. gym. Yes. Okay, now when you say followed you, did he confront you, touch you or anything? Did you see him face to face, ma'am? Yes. Face to face. He's always there. Does he ever say anything, ma'am? Of course he does. I, it, why am I defending myself here? Like, this is not fair, okay? And we're just asking routine questions here. We just want to understand what happened. You know, every time the phone rings, I pick it up, and he hangs up, okay? I mean, I, I don't think I should have to keep defending myself. Oh, I'm not asking you to defend yourself. We're just yes, trying you to are. understand. And that when you, he doesn't say anything, but he always hangs up on you. Yes. I'm the victim here. Do you understand that? Yes, ma'am. We understand it. Tell you what, you're getting upset. Why don't yeah. you just, just rest one moment here, okay? Just take your... I want him locked up. Yes, this, I'm tired of this, okay? I've filed all these reports. You people are doing nothing. Yes, ma'am. Just take a breath. Just take, take a, a minute. breath. Thank you. Okay? Hmm, so it appears that Liz's story is beginning to fall apart a little bit. First it was a water cooler, then it was a Coke machine, but she was somehow getting a Diet Pepsi from a Coke machine, and also she said that Goldberg was wearing red tights, to which I must ask, has she ever actually watched a goddamn Goldberg match? I don't think we've ever seen him wear anything other than black trunks. So let's just say that her statements are a bit suspicious, to say the least. And by the way, also, leave it to WCW to do a storyline where the woman who is accusing someone of misconduct is quite clearly a liar. I'm guessing Bill Cosby probably played this scene during his trial a few months ago. But after a commercial break, we go back into the arena where Mean Gene is now standing in the middle of the ring. And from there, he proceeds to bring out the man who is now booked to face Kevin Nash tonight on Nitro... Hollywood Hulk Hogan. He's very subtly rocking an outfit which is almost entirely the same color, a black suit coat over a black t-shirt, black pants, black do-rag, black dye in his beard, but a pair of white sunglasses, so I guess he decided to mix it up a little bit at the end there. 
Now, Hogan's theme, by the way, is also dubbed over on the WWE Network, as he originally answered to the Jimi Hendrix song Voodoo Child, but they don't have the rights to that one, so they dub in the classic NWO theme instead. Unlike Jericho's theme, though, I think this one actually makes a lot of sense. So, what does Hogan have to say? Well, let's take a listen. First of all, all of those political aspirations, where do they stand tonight? Well, you know something, Mean Gene? It's quite obvious that the world of professional wrestling still revolves around Hollywood, brother. Check it out. And you know something? I was going to take this time tonight because on the Jay Leno Show, I promised my fans that have stuck with me through thick and thin that I was going to formally say goodbye to them tonight. And I couldn't think of a better place to do it than right here in Atlanta, Georgia, the very home of World Championship Wrestling. I was also going to take this time tonight to formally announce my vice presidential running mate for the upcoming election. But, brother, when there's positive momentum, there's positive momentum. But when there's negative momentum, there is really negative momentum. And when I came in this building tonight, and when I witnessed this so-called phony hero, this sexual deviant, Bill Goldberg, being escorted out of the building, it just made me sick to my stomach. But the thing that I've heard all around the building tonight that makes me just as sick is the fact that that lucky big tall spoon the new heavyweight champion of the world kevin nash has been bragging and starting rumors by saying that the only reason hollywood hogan retired was because he's afraid to fight me in the center of the ring that just made me sicker than anything mean gene all right i think the jury is out on all of this because as you know rick blair is now the president of world championship wrestling he says it's a done deal it's signed if you come out of retirement tonight you've got kevin ash and a shot at the wcw world heavyweight title well you know they say wolf packs in the house well, brother, I've watched the Wolfpack puff, and I've watched them puff, brother. And Ric Flair, he's running things around here. And if he says Hollywood is going to wrestle, well then, brother, after all the huffing and puffing, I guess I owe my fans one last retirement match. Oh! And to the Wolfpack out there that's been huffing and puffing after tonight when I beat Kevin Nash, when I retire with the World Heavyweight title, you can just call me Hollywood, the big, bad wolf. So there you go. Hogan was planning on retiring from wrestling tonight and announcing who his vice presidential candidate will be. But instead, he will indeed step into the ring one final time to take on Kevin Nash for the WCW World Heavyweight Championship. So, William, what did you think of what will clearly end up being Hulk Hogan's last ever promo in a wrestling ring? (laughs) Um, 
you know, man, like I loved, I loved the Hollywood Hogan thing. The thing that ne- I never believed once was that he was a badass and he could really like beat somebody up really bad. Right. It just never came across that way in the Hollywood thing. What was so good about it was it was like you just wanted the babyface to get their hands on him because there was a good chance they could wreck him until the NWO would spoil everything. So that's always the part that it's like, you know, he's going to – he keeps just kind of threatening what he's going to do to Nash in the ring. I'm just like, no, you're not. Like, right. your moves in revenge are like a back rake. What are you going to do, man? Right. Kevin Nash, the, the seven-foot former bouncer, is going to get beaten up by Hulk Hogan. Exactly. Like, it's it just shows you how far we've come since we were kids, and we were just ready for Hulk Hogan just to destroy anybody. You know, and it's just like now in this age of wrestling, it's like I don't buy it for one second. But, you know, I mean, it's, it's still high profile. Like, I mean, Hogan does do his – what does he call himself? The Big Bad Hollywood Wolf? Yeah, yeah, because of the wolf pack, he's, yeah. he calls himself the wolf, yeah. Whatever. But, I mean, like, you know, it's it's still a Hogan promo. It still has that charisma to it that is just undeniable. I mean, you look at all this time. I mean, like, I don't know how much time passes from when Mean Gene first starts with the Nash part of the interview all the way to Hogan, but it feels like another half hour has gone by. <laughs> yeah, I would agree with you. And, yeah, again, I don't know I don't know when the last time Hogan had a match on Nitro was, but I think also the fact that he comes out, he does this promo, obviously, like you said, it t- takes quite a while. Like, the whole segment feels like it takes forever because, again, we're not getting matches. We're just getting promos straight on through and commercial breaks in between and Elizabeth with the detectives and all that shit. But I feel like it should also be a big deal that Hulk Hogan is actually wrestling on Nitro because that's something that doesn't happen very often either. And I, I'd have to go back and look it up. I don't know when the last time he wrestled on Nitro was. I'm tempted to say it probably wasn't the um, that episode in July where Goldberg took the title from him. I'm sure he must have wrestled more recently than that. But this is not a time when Hogan is wrestling on Nitro. He'll show up and he'll cut a promo. But tonight we're actually getting a Hogan match on free TV. So again, really big things in the air, it seems like. So yeah, big stuff happening on, on Nitro tonight, clearly. And it will absolutely be a wonderful payoff. But now, William... As Hulk Hogan is leaving the ring and walking back to the locker room, we get that moment, a soundbite that ultimately comes to define Tony Schiavone's career and help swing the fates of the Monday Night War. If you're a fan of wrestling at this time, I'm sure you know exactly what I'm talking about. But of course, I have to play the clip for you anyway. So let's take a listen to what Tony Schiavone has to say. We understand that Mick Foley, who wrestled here one time as Cactus Jack, is going to win their world title. Oh, that's going to put some butts in seats. Peh. Now, to be somewhat fair to Shivani, he and Eric Bischoff are both on record as saying that it was actually Bischoff who told Shivani to completely bury Mick Foley here, which, by the way, makes this a tad more amusing in retrospect since Bischoff is literally sitting next to Shivani on commentary right now and saying nothing during the actual broadcast. But yes, it was Bischoff's demand to do that. So I guess we shouldn't hate Shivani for just following orders, but I have to admit I still kind of resent him for it. Still leaves, leaves a bad taste in my mouth. Now, in retrospect... 
I really do have to question the decision to blatantly call attention to the fact that your rival company is doing a world title switch on free television, and especially when it's Mick Foley. Because if I'm a wrestling fan who knows anything about Mick, if Shivani tells me he's going to win the title, my first thought would likely be, you mean Mick Foley, the guy who has sacrificed his body more than any other wrestler, the lovable everyman, the consummate underdog, the guy who threw himself off the top of a cell, takes bumps in thumbtacks, and takes chair shots to the skull in pretty much all of his matches just to create a moment for us, the fans? Um, yeah, fuck yeah, I want to see that guy win the belt. But a little later on, we're going to discuss as to whether or not this strategy actually worked for WCW on this night. But in the meantime, William, I have to ask what you thought of Tony Schiavone's infamous burial of Mick Foley. So it's weird. It's it's weird to give a fair judgment of this because I didn't see it at the time because I was watching the Raw. Like I watched, I, I mean honestly, man. Like I remember the time watching Raw on this night. And occasionally, like maybe when it was a commercial, go over to Nitro, and it just really wasn't that interesting to to hang around. You you wanted to stay kind of abreast of what the Goldberg thing was was where that was going or whatever, but I mean for the most part, it was sticking with Raw. So it's unfair sometimes to look at this without having seen it in the moment, because you know what happens at the end. So I think it's best to kind of save the the any kind of commentary on it once we get to the wrap up of it. I think. But it is like I mean, what you said is true. This is this is one of those moments. Like it's like, sadly, like one of the moments that defines like, not only like this era, but like it really does define Tony Schiavone as a commentator, and that sucks. But it is yeah. it it is what ultimately defines him. And it's been weird to listen to him over the years. Where like it felt like it really. I think it got to him. I think it did just because yeah. there was this time period where you would hear him. And they would have him on a podcast. He just didn't seem that positive about wrestling. And yeah. I don't know what happened, but he seems to have really come around because he's doing a podcast. He does commentary for what MLW is what he does. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So yep. it's cool to see him kind of like coming to grips with not only that, but just like whatever his, his gripes were with the wrestling business. But again, I think it's best to touch on it once we get through it because I feel like in playing devil's advocate, there was at least some type of a, a very, very thin strategy here. There was something they were, they were going for something. And of course we can be the, I mean, it's pretty obvious whether or not it panned out or not. So on that note, I do actually have a, a brief excerpt from Mick Foley's other autobiography a little bit later about sort of the aftermath of this. Sure. So I'll, I'll read that a little bit later on too. But yeah, I mean, I, again, I know Shivani was just following orders in this. It's still, I, I, I have this irrational, sort of thing where like for me back at this time I was so pro WWF and so anti WCW at this point that like when I, I obviously was watching Raw at the time I didn't even know Shivani said this but like it was all over the internet the next day and I was really just kind of like pissed off about it I was like what the fuck like that just seemed it seemed like another low blow because obviously Eric Bischoff you know in the early days of Nitro when he was a commentator he would do that sort of shit where he's like well here are the results of Raw you know blah 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 like right at the top of the show so it seemed like a sort of you know similar thing to that but, I mean, there's a difference between, you know, spoiling a 1996 you know, Jake Roberts match and spoiling, you know, Mick Foley winning the world title. So I think they were kind of going for that sort of thing where it's like, well, we, well I'm going to tell you what's going to happen and you're not going to need to watch the other show. But, I mean, in terms of, you know, a major event like that, 
clearly clearly a bad idea i think to to call blatant attention to your rival and obviously it's not even the, it's not even the only time they do it on the show they do it a couple more times which we'll get to in just a bit but yeah i just remember like really you know thinking that that was it was just another thing of like WCW were always kind of antagonistic toward the WWF, which I hated as a WWF fan. And then when I heard about this, like the next day, I was just like, oh fuck WCW, you know? Because yeah. I yeah. mean, even I, even I, I, I'll admit, you know, I when they did the NWO story, I definitely channel surfed over to Nitro in the early days of the NWO story because how could you not? I mean, Hulk Hogan is a bad guy, but like at this point in time, I was just kind of like fuck WCW, you know? I I couldn't stand them, you know? And again, that's just. It, it, it's a different sort of thing where you're like in it at the time and you're so loyal to one company. So, you know, I, I just, it just pissed me off. But again, in retrospect, I can, like you said, I can appreciate what they were going for, but I still, I, I was still kind of like, man, Tony Schiavone, what? Oh yeah, what, absolutely. Yeah, no, it's tasteless. Yeah. It's pretty tasteless. So how do you follow up one of the most infamous sound bites in wrestling history? With an ad for the WCW MasterCard, of course, and yet again, I can't believe they didn't cut this out on the WWE Network broadcast, almost as much as I can't believe that someone would actually want a credit card with Lex Luger's face on it, but that's a whole other story, I suppose. So from there, we then get footage from earlier today, where Chris Jericho is talking to referee Scott Dickinson about how he can't let wrestlers like Perry Saturn boss him around, and he flat out tells Dickinson that he needs to disqualify Saturn if he puts his hands on him. So there you go, I guess that kinda helps explain that screwball finish from earlier tonight, but I still think it was pretty stupid. And also, by the way, this was not hidden camera footage. This was literally Jericho talking to Dickinson with a camera a few feet away from him. So I guess it plays into that old wrestling logic that we just have to assume the talent can't see a camera, even though it's standing right next to them. And you know what I call that, William? Hmm. Camouflage. You're welcome, folks. You're welcome. <laughs> So after that, we kick into our next match, WCW World Television Champion Scott Steiner, accompanied by Buff Bagwell, versus Conan, who for some reason gets a graphic saying that he is the World Television Champion. Whoopsie. Now before the match, we get a lovely Scott Steiner promo where he invents, excuse me, where he invites the ladies to get with him if they're tired of being with their, quote, fat, out-of-shape, gas-pumping redneck, and things then get even better when he says... Take my hand, and I'll take you to Loveland, which kind of sounds like it could be an R. Kelly lyric. And from there, Buff Bagwell goes for the cheap heat as he starts doing the Dirty Bird, which was the signature dance for the hometown Atlanta Falcons. However, he quickly stops and clutches his chest, saying that he shouldn't be doing that so soon after his triple bypass surgery. And this was actually a reference to Falcons coach Dan Reeves, who did indeed have to undergo that surgery back in December. Fun fact... In his autobiography, Ric Flair says that Dan Reeves' heart attack was actually what gave Bischoff the idea to do the Flair heart attack angle on Nitro, so now we know who to blame. Thankfully, Conan does not get any mic time before the match, and I say thankfully because this is right around the time when he debuts an interesting catchphrase where he would tell his opponent that he will make him, quote, toss his salad and peel his potatoes. And somehow that never made it onto a t-shirt. Can't imagine why. Also, for the record, Steiner and Buff are representing the NWO Black and White, whereas Conan is representing the Black and Red NWO Wolfpack. I feel the need to point this out because guys were changing their allegiances so often, sometimes it was hard to keep up. So, oh, and uh, yeah, more on that later, by the way. So early on in the match, Conan nails Steiner with a clothesline, and that causes Big Papa Pump to roll out to the floor, and it is at this point that we get yet another reminder from Tony Schiavone as to what's going on 
over on the other channel. Fans, I want to reiterate something that I talked about before the commercial break. If you're thinking about changing channels to our competition, we want to let you know that unlike us, they've got their show in the can. Their show's been taped later tonight. Mick Foley, who once wrestled here as Cactus Jack, is going to win their world title. I mean, that's going to be their world title. Honestly, I think that little ha-ha he puts at the end there might even piss me off more than the first time he buried Foley. Or, to put it in terminology that he might understand, Tony Schiavone is the biggest douche in the history of our sport. I don't know, did that one bother you as much as it did me, William? It's it's one that's not, like, the, the first one is the famous one, the one that you hear all the time. This one, it's definitely just, oh, man, he doubled down on it. Yeah. It's like he went in even harder. And that's, yep. yeah, it it's very grating. Yeah, there's another one too. I think actually, it, I think it's when the main event's starting where he's like, "Reminder that we're live right now, and they're they're taped." You know, it, he yeah. calls to it several times. I think like, these are the first, these are the only two overt mentions where he flat out says, "Oh, Mick Foley's going to win the title over on the other show." But there are other little things like that where he's like, uh, "You know, we're live, they're not." Blah blah blah. So yeah, there, there are quite a few things like this. But this was the one where I was just like, "Jesus Christ, man!" Like. Really digging it in. I'm sure, you know, Bischoff isn't telling him exactly what to say. He's probably just giving him, like, a, a broad outline, like, just, just bury Foley, bury the title run. And, you know, Shivani basically comes out with that little, you know, like, ha-ha. I'm like, oh, Jesus, you know, just whatever. I, I shouldn't harbor a grudge against Tony Shivani 19 years later, but, uh, you know, I'm going to. So there. <laughs> so, anyway, back to the match. We then got yet another terrible-looking botch as Conan kicked Steiner in the stomach, and Steiner then took a step back, which I think threw off their timing a little bit, and from there, Conan went for an X-factor, but because the timing was completely off, Conan went to his knees first, followed by Steiner then dropping face-first to the ground. It, it looked pretty terrible, I gotta say. But from there, Conan then tried to put Steiner into his arm-trap single-leg Boston Crab submission called the Tequila Sunrise, so Buff Bagwell entered the ring. Conan knocked Buff to the ground, and strangely, that was enough to get referee Charles Robinson to call for the bell, even though Buff never actually managed to successfully interfere in the match. So Conan wins the match by DQ, but Steiner gets to keep his television title. As soon as the match ends, however, Steiner and Buff start beating the crap out of Conan. Steiner throws referee Charles Robinson over the top rope and puts Conan in his camel clutch move called the Steiner Recliner, from there, NWO referee Slick Johnson comes out from backstage and calls for the bell, signaling that Conan gave up. And to make things even worse for K-Dog, Steiner then grabs a chair and starts smacking him with it until we finally cut to a commercial. So, William, what did you think of Scott Steiner versus Conan? This isn't very good. I, mean, it, I enjoy yeah. Scott Steiner. I love, we all love Scott Steiner, but <laughs> not really for his, his, his late 90s wrestling abilities. That's no. That's not what we're watching for. But yeah, this just this isn't that great of a match, and it's supposed to be like you know this feels like this should be a little bit you know this should be a little bit better, but it's just not. But I think it's Steiner start. I think Steiner's starting to figure out where he's going to be, like right around that WCW two thousand period where he's just killing it. I mean, he is just oh yeah yeah. <laughs> but yeah, the match itself just not a winner. No, not at all. 
Uh, this whole thing with uh, Steiner and Bagwell forming this alliance, I, I kind of forgot they had this little um, this little pairing going on for a while. And pretty much uh, every show at this point, you can hear the crowd doing a steroid chant because, I mean, with, with Steiner and Buff together... I mean, you can't help but blurting oh, that yeah. out. I'm sure you know oh, yeah. they are they are two pretty jacked gentlemen, shall we say? But yeah, the Steiner promos. Uh, once he kind of gets into that thing where he's doing the big bad booty daddy, holler if you hear me, uh, and doing these little rhymes. It, this is basically you know the beginning of what's what will become every Scott Steiner promo. And uh, yeah, this this one was not as uneventful. The old take my hand and I'll take you to Loveland. And of course, the match was <laughs> was not very good either. But, uh, yeah, there'll, there'll be more good stuff from Steiner coming. There'll be some better stuff coming in uh, in the coming weeks and months, for sure, when he ultimately ends up getting to that uh, that main event title picture. So, yeah, again, we are, like you said, we are Scott Steiner fans. But at this point, he's he's got a little bit of ways to go before he gets to, you know, what he will ultimately become. And after a commercial break, it is now time for our next match, Wrath versus a mystery opponent. Now, one particular thing to note here is that when Shivani and Heenan are discussing the Goldberg situation, at long last, Eric Bischoff actually speaks and provides us with a few words, Goldberg's jailbait. And it is at this point that the world realizes that Eric Bischoff has no idea what the term jailbait yeah, means. Exactly. That's yeah. what I thought, too. <laughs> Feel free to Google that if you'd like, but, but don't do it at work. So Wrath basically grabs a microphone and proceeds to issue an open challenge. And William, I had to single out one particular part of his promo here. He says, quote, I know you people paid your money tonight to see Wrath drop the thermonuclear meltdown on the dome. Now, the character of Wrath is played by Brian Clark, who was formerly given the gimmick of Adam Bomb in the WWF. So here he is in WCW all these years later. And he's still making nuclear weapon puns. And I'm kind of confused by that because the Wrath character has absolutely nothing to do with radiation or nukes or anything to that extent. So maybe the dude just loved the old atom bomb gimmick, I guess. I don't know. But anyway, when he issues the open challenge, the man who accepts is none other than Bam Bam Bigelow. And frankly, I'm not sure if Wrath's nuclear capabilities can do anything to Bam Bam here since his head is already covered in flames. But we get a pretty funny moment early on, and William, you'll have to let me know if you notice this too. So Bam Bam bounces off the ropes and collides with Wrath, and neither man budges. So Wrath then responds by doing that gesture, which I call, I'm flipping you off without actually flipping you off, where you kind of put one fist up in the air in the direction of your opponent. However, because they're in close proximity when Wrath does it, Bam Bam actually jerks his head back like he was selling a punch, oh, even though Wrath's yes, fist... Right. Yeah. I was thinking, I was like, what's he referring to? I was like, oh, that's the punch. Yeah, that... Yeah. 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 Basically, Wrath's fist was not at all close to his face, but he kind of... I think he thought a punch was coming when it was just like you know, the flip-off gesture. So they're off to a great start, basically, is what I'm saying. So the match pretty much consisted of Wrath and Bam Bam brawling with each other outside the ring, occasionally re-entering the ring, and then going right back to brawling on the floor. At one point, referee Mickey J tried to get them to head back in, and Bam Bam responded by shoving him, which resulted in what I assume was a disqualification, but there's never actually an official announcement. So both men then continued brawling all the way up the ramp and to the backstage area, and that is how we wrap this puppy up. So William, what did you think of Wrath? Versus Bam Bam Bigelow. Eh, I mean, like, it's cool to see two big guys just hammering away at each other. But, I mean, there's just, there's really no resolution to this. So, you know, 
nothing spectacular here. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm, it's interesting to see that you know they, they gave Wrath promo time. I don't know when I've heard Wrath cut a promo. So, yeah, for good reason. Right, right. So, you know, it's interesting. It's interesting from the aspect of like, oh, is it man? Were they thinking about doing some of this guy? But probably not. So, no, he he had a bit of like an undefeated streak going in the um in uh around like Novemberish. Yeah, like basically they're playing up like Wrath had a bit of like a not a, not a Goldberg type streak, obviously, but Nash of all people to to build him up for Goldberg at Starcade, Nash ended Wrath's undefeated streak. So. Yeah, oh, is it you because know, you know how the fans goes. starting to turn on Wrath? <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> Clearly, that must that must have been it. My my main thought on it is also if Wrath is going to keep doing nuclear puns, he could at least have the decency to throw in some so throw some footballs into the crowd that look like nuclear weapons, like he did in the WWF, because those right. are pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, side note: I I had one of those nuclear footballs, by the way. Actually, did. That's Maybe still cool, in my man. room back home. Yeah, yeah, it was. So from there, we then cut to Miss Elizabeth and the detectives for the 14,000th time tonight. They proceed to poke holes in all the inconsistencies in her story, and they tell her that falsifying a police report is a felony. So this then causes Liz to recant her story and say she was actually mistaken, and it wasn't Goldberg who was stalking her. Her defense is that, quote, There's a lot of these bald-headed wrestlers running around. So clearly it was easy to confuse him for someone else. Hey, maybe it was Stone Cold Steve exactly. Austin. They kind of look like, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, so Wiz does tell the officers to let Goldberg know that she feels bad for costing him his world title shot. But has she, though? I guess we'll see. And after commercial break, we get yet another Nitro Girls performance. And I have to say, since this one was well into the 10 o'clock hour, it got a little bit risque this time around. I mean, come on now. Keep it PG, Charmel. Standards and practices is watching. Come on now. And from there, we cut to the commentary table where we get a look at Bischoff, Shivani, and Heenan, or if you go by the on-screen graphic underneath the brain, Larry Zabisco. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly an, an error-filled episode of Nitro tonight. I think someone needs to alert Matthew from Botchamania. But I assume you noticed that too? Yeah, because I just kept thinking, I was like, the living legend Bobby Heenan and the Larry the Brain Zabisco. I was like, yeah, that, that, <laughs> that would be, that'd be fun. Yes, I would say Bobby Heenan was, well, I mean, at the time he was a living legend, oh, yeah. not living anymore, but sadly. But yes, so we then segue into our next match, NWO black and white member Brian Adams, accompanied by Vincent versus Diamond Dallas Page. And yes, once again, we get a badly dubbed over theme on the WWE Network, as DDP's song has been replaced with crappy generic music, because his original WCW theme song was, shall we say, Way too reminiscent of Nirvana's Smells Like Teen Spirit. Perhaps one might even say blatantly stolen. One might say. And frankly, I'm surprised Brian Adams didn't enter to a song that was a ripoff from the singer Brian Adams, but I guess maybe that just wouldn't fit the character. <laughs> so early on, this was looking like yet another sloppy match. Less than a minute in, both men messed up their timing on an Irish whip but it would actually get worse from there, because when Adams ducked out and went to the floor, DDP clearly wanted to slingshot himself over the Boy, top Well, he wanted to do this move, man. He wanted to do yes. this. He was dying really to did. do this, this plancha. Yes. So much so that you could see him attempt it, like he went to grab the ropes, literally on three separate occasions, he went to launch himself, and Brian Adams wasn't in position, so DDP literally had to abandon the spot three times, before Adams was finally ready. Incredibly awkward. I feel, I feel like that really had to piss off DDP. Oh, yeah, that was so bad. He's one of those dudes who planned out everything 100% beforehand. Right. So you know he's just wanting to stick to his script. And, yeah, it's hilarious. Yeah. It's just funny watching DDP go like, Oop, 
Oh, nope, not. Oh, okay, not yet. Jesus. Now, mercifully, we got a commercial break in the middle of the match, and it would be over a few minutes later. So Adams whipped DDP into the corner, but Page put an elbow up to stun him. From there, DDP went to the second rope, but Vincent grabbed his foot to try and prevent him from jumping, which was completely ineffective because <laughs> Page just, just smacked him in the face and knocked the former Virgil right back down to the floor. From there, DDP leapt off the second rope and hit Adams with a diamond cutter, or if you're a fan of modern wrestling, an RKO. And for the record, this was actually a pretty crappy-looking diamond cutter because Brian Adams landed on his knees while DDP actually put his left foot on the ground before he landed. It actually almost looked closer to a stone-cold stunner from the second rope. Definitely not one of these smooth-looking diamond cutters we're used to seeing. However, with that being said, the crowd did pop huge for it. As soon as DDP hits it, if you look at the fans on the hard camera side, almost all of them are making the diamond symbol with their hands. It's pretty awesome. And of course, from there, the newly reinstated referee, Randy Anderson, counts the one, the two, and the three. Your winner of the match, Diamond Dallas Page. So, William, what did you think of this one? Uh, matches isn't spectacular. I, you're such a huge Page fan. This would have been, you know, if I was, I would have definitely stayed on if Page was coming out. Because he was, he was so much fun to watch. This era, this 98, kind of early 99 era for him is really, really cool. And it's just such a bummer that it took so long for him to get to the world title because he really felt like in 98 he could have gotten there. Uh, yeah. That he could be involved in this. Instead, it's like, oh, yeah, I think they mentioned he dropped the U.S. belt to Bret Hart. And it's just sort of like, okay, well, maybe he is being positioned for a world title. But it's like, man, would you? does it feel like a match with Brian Adams is really propelling you upward? <laughs> right. And, dude, this is setting up the main. Like, yeah. Or one of them, quink, quink, that we're supposed to get. One of the main events we're supposed to get, and it's like, oh, man. Yeah, like you said, man, that diamond cutter's weak. That just doesn't work. Yeah. And it's not really Paige's fault. It's just Brian Adams is a big clusty, a big, a big, uh, it's a big clumsy fuck, you know? I couldn't help but think, like, it's Diamond Dallas Page versus, it's versus Crush, and he has Virgil in his corner. Yeah. It's like, this is, reminds me of, like, early 90s WWF. It's just, I don't know. But they're still hanging around, still getting paychecks nine years later in 1999. So I guess, I guess good for them. But yeah, Brian Adams, not really, not really much of a workhorse. And yeah, this was a sloppy match. Not the best of Diamond Dallas Page. But like you said, a couple months ago when he had that match with Goldberg, you saw what, what Page is capable of because that match against Goldberg was, you know, nobody had taken Goldberg past, I think, 10 minutes at that point. And that one, I think, ends up going close to 20. Yeah. And the fans were just in the palm of their hand the entire time. They were up for it. They were up for Page winning the title that night. Oh, and yeah. you could argue it might not have been a bad idea to have him win it, especially considering, you know, what they ultimately end up doing with the streak as we saw at Starcade. But, yeah, Page, a great wrestler. And I think he didn't even start until he was like 35 or something Correct. like that. So. Something like that, yeah. Yeah, so it's really fun to see how over he's getting here. And again, like you said, at some point he's going to get to that world title level, uh, sometime very soon, as a matter of fact. But yeah, it's, it's a great story that he was able to do that after starting so late in his career. But from there, we cut back to the police station, where Goldberg is still handcuffed in a chair. And amusingly, he starts banging the back of his head against the wall as though he was a five-year-old trying to get his parents' attention. And it works because one of the cops tells him to stop doing it. But from there... Another police officer enters and tells Goldberg that Miss Elizabeth is dropping the charges. So he proceeds to uncuff him, and Goldberg demands, quote, 
Take me to the dome. <laughs> oh, shit. So good. <laughs> oh, shit, folks. I know it is. Because it's like, oh, my God, Goldberg's on his way. And just in the nick of time, it looks like we're going to get our rematch after all, huh? Right? Yeah? Yeah. I mean, and he's only across the street, too, clearly. So, And after commercial break, we go straight to the arena where Michael Buffer is standing in the ring. Now, in case you need a reminder as to who Buffer is, he's the ring announcer who's famous for the catchphrase, let's get ready to rumble, which, of course, Triple H would go on to mock with his let's get ready to suck it routine. And at this point in time, Buffer was signed to an exclusive contract with WCW, where he would mainly work pay-per-views and nitros, usually just announcing the main events and collecting a hefty appearance fee. So, William, were you a fan of Michael Buffer? I mean, it always felt big time. I mean, like, the problem is when you do it every week, it loses the appeal a little bit. Right. But And some of his things, if you listen to season one, there are some, his, sometimes his announcements are hilarious. Like, yes. Like, uh, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> he is the chosen one. Or, like, he'll just come up, I, I was trying to remember some today. Well, there's one. It seemed like every time he announced Hulk Hogan, he would call him the King of Hulk Mania. <laughs> <laughs> and we're actually we're actually only about a month away from one of his most famous botches, where he says Brett the Hitman Clark. <laughs> so that's that's coming up pretty soon. It's it's kind of funny because he gets paid so much money, and he like basically is like, yeah, I don't give a shit about the product. I I don't want to have to learn anybody's names. <laughs> It's it's in my contract. I don't have to learn anyone's name. Just, right. yeah. just collect that money. Just collect that fucking money, Buffer. But yes, in my opinion, I do like Buffer being used for the big events. Like this one, the crowd is getting amped for yeah, this. They really with are. Him doing, yeah. yeah. That, that Are You Ready works really well to get the crowd going. And, of course, finishing off with Let's Get Ready to Rumble. Great stuff. Great stuff, Michael Buffer. I guess, you know, it's <laughs> it's not so good when he messes up, the, uh, messes up his lines. But uh, in this case, yeah, good good job all around. But as promised, we are indeed getting a tune-up match before Goldberg arrives, and it is WCW World Heavyweight Champion Kevin Nash who gets an absurd amount of pyro, putting his belt on the line against Hollywood Hulk Hogan. Now, the Hulkster is accompanied to the ring by Scott Steiner, and surprisingly, when Nash is walking down the ramp, he does that trademark sideways pointing of the fingers— and his former Outsiders tag team partner, Scott Hall, emerges from backstage to back him up. Hall has been calling himself the Lone Wolf for the past few months, but he did, of course, help Nash win the title by zapping Goldberg with a cattle prod at Starcade, so it appears that Big Sexy must have appreciated the gesture. Now, before the match begins, Hogan does some stalling outside the ring, and we can hear a very clear chant coming from the crowd. Goldberg! so apparently the Atlanta fans would prefer to see their native son instead of this. And then, once the referee calls for the bell, we get quite a bit more stalling as Hogan walks around the ring and Nash mockingly tears his Wolfpack t-shirt in the manner which Hogan is famous for. Eventually, they come close together, and Nash responds by shoving Hogan into one of the corners. And from there, well, let's take a listen to one of the most infamous moments in professional wrestling history. Nash trying to get him to hook up at least by shoving the man in the corner. Let's see if that gets a reaction from Hollywood here. And he's been in so many big matches. Well, he has. What's that about? What's going on here? 
face. The winner. God. A new heavyweight champion of the world. From NWO Hollywood. It is unbelievable. A new world heavyweight champion. Hollywood Hulk Hogan. So what you heard there was Hulk Hogan walking toward Kevin Nash taking his index finger, literally poking him in the chest, and, amusingly, Kevin Nash takes pretty much the most convincing bump of his career, and he falls to the ground as though he just tore both of his quads. From there, Hogan pins Nash, the referee counts to three, and that means that your winner and the new WCW heavyweight champion of the world is Hulk Hogan. So yes, you heard that correctly. Eight days after pinning Goldberg, taking his title, and ending his undefeated streak, Kevin Nash just laid down voluntarily and handed the belt over to Hulk Hogan. What a wonderful payoff. And as many of you probably know by now, this is the infamous moment which comes to be known as the finger poke of doom, a term which I believe was first coined by wrestling recapper Scott Keith. So once the three count is made, Hogan stands up holding his stomach as though he's doubled over in laughter, and all four men, Hogan, Nash, Hall, and Steiner, embrace in the ring. Yes, it appears that we have a new, unified version of the New World Order two and a half years into the faction's run with the company. Quite the fresh change of pace. And speaking of the NWO, at the end of that clip, you could also hear Eric Bischoff break his commentary silence, so we can also assume that he was in on this plan the whole time, too. However, the silver lining here is that, while the new NWO is celebrating in the ring, we see a car pull up backstage, and Goldberg emerges from it. We then get a tracking shot as Goldberg runs into the ring, and he proceeds to take out Steiner, Hall, and Nash. Hogan manages to turn the tide a bit by hitting Goldberg with his newly won title belt, and by the way, these are some of the weakest-looking belt shots ever seen in the history of professional wrestling, but Goldberg quickly kills that momentum and hits Hogan with a spear. Now, at this point, the crowd is popping huge because I think they're assuming that a Goldberg-Hogan title match is now underway. And with Hogan on the canvas, Scott Hall attempts to re-enter the ring, but Lex Luger runs out from backstage and chases him off. Luger then encourages Goldberg to pick up Hogan for a jackhammer, but before Goldberg can lift him up, Luger swerves Goldberg and hits him with a double axe handle to the back. Yes, that's right, Lex Luger has now joined this new NWO as well. All five members of the new faction then proceed to start beating up Goldberg, and I should also point out the fact that the pissed-off fans are now absolutely pelting the ring with trash. And the most amusing example of this can be seen on Scott Steiner, as you can tell that some incredibly accurate fan clearly hit him in the back with an egg. Now, how a fan snuck an egg into Nitro, I do not know, but I can't say I disagree with that criticism. So Luger puts Goldberg in his torture rack submission, and then Buff Bagwell and Miss Elizabeth also head to the ring, so clearly they're part of the new group as well. And then, this is the part that confuses me. So while Luger is racking Goldberg, we can see that the police officers left the handcuffs on Goldberg's right wrist, which enables the new NWO to cuff him to the bottom rope. So the cops let Goldberg go, but they also didn't fully uncuff him. Frankly, I'd say some of this blood is on their hands here. And from there, Scott Hall once again pulls out his trusty cattle prod and electrocutes Goldberg a few times, just as he did at Starcade. Nash tears off Goldberg's shirt, and yes, as is customary for the NWO, Hulk Hogan pulls out the spray paint 
and sprays NWO for life on the unconscious Goldberg's back. And I will point out that Hogan is actually using red spray paint here, and I believe the real-life reasoning for that is that the NWO Red and Black's merchandise had been selling much better than the black and whites at this point, so they decide to run with that color for the new group. Although, for the record, they do also bust out black spray paint in order to paint fake hair onto Goldberg's bald head, which appears to legitimately piss Goldberg off. Oh, yeah, he because gets he's, pissed. Yeah. Yes, yeah, he you basically, are right. He does. He stops selling and, like, starts kicking at Lex Luger, but then Hogg, like, zaps him with the cattle prod, so he basically has to go back to selling. So we then go off the air with Hogan spray-painting the red letters NWO on the WCW World Heavyweight Championship, which still has Goldberg's nameplate on it, by the way. So Nash then looks into the camera, says, Can you say deja vu? And proceeds to laugh his ass off. So yes, he actually calls it deja vu, meaning by his own admission, Nash is telling us that they're just rehashing the same old NWO storyline. At least he's honest, I suppose. So William, what were your thoughts on the finger poke of doom, the formation of the new NWO, and the subsequent humiliation of Goldberg? Well, just in terms of just this night... I don't need to get into the, the bigger scope quite yet, but just looking at just this night, this is the worst. This is the yeah. absolute worst. I mean, if you actually slogged through this Nitron that night, you were vehemently not a Raw person, or you were just checking in briefly because you were a bigger Nitro fan, and you passed up watching Mick Foley win the title, as you were told it was going to happen, for this, dude... I'd be so pissed, man. I'd be Absolutely. so angry at this. And I think people were. You know, of course they were. And seeing this NWO come back is just sort of like, do we really need to do this again? Like, this just stinks of people just wanting to keep themselves in the main event picture. And right. you look at this group and you're just like, well, what are we going to do? And I mean, like, the thing is, like, because I was going to talk to you about the ratings here because we were talking about, like, this goes back to Tony's thing and what they were what they were you know trying to do by throwing that comment out there but it's sort of like we're getting into this desperation period for them where it's like okay well we've got to go back to what exactly worked well dude that was 96 like yeah things have changed dramatically and just to throw this out there this kind of you know this this reforming of the nwo it's and then with i guess what makes it worse is just knowing that it it fails quickly like it's gone very soon i mean like what is it by like March? You've got, you've got Hogan and Flair in like a heel, a heel face swap, yeah, at uncensored. Yep. So it's like it's worse when you think about out of just thinking about this night. You're like, this thing doesn't even last. And they use this main event as a way to kind of, you know, start it up. It's like, it's just, it's just such a bummer, man. And then the crowd's chanting for Sting. They want Sting to come out, but that's not going to happen unfortunately nope. and it's it is funny that nobody comes out to help goldberg nobody I know. well actually i will say one thing after the show goes off the air something like i think like 12 members of the atlanta falcons come to the ring to help out but it's kind of like yeah, that's that's the after show it's also like why didn't you do that when they needed you you know I, i'm sure it was just for like the hometown crowd yeah, but I'm at sure the same Chris time Chandler like, was getting no. eager to get in there and mix it up with uh, <laughs> the nwo Fucking 44-year-old Steve DeBerg right. jumping in there. Yeah. <laughs> My God. Yeah. If looking back on this, it's basically uh, – the word that comes to my mind is appalling that they would think this was okay, where they're literally 
you know, seven days in advance saying the Georgia Dome show, if you haven't bought a ticket yet, fucking buy a ticket because it's going to be Nash versus Goldberg. It's a Starcade rematch. It's in Atlanta. This is WCW's home base. So you probably think, you know, it's a safe bet that they're going to deliver in front of these fans, their most loyal fans, the fans who, you know, are are basically the ones who are, you know, quote unquote, in their in WCW's hometown. They do a big arena show like this. And appalling really is the word that comes to mind because they sell these tickets, they get this revenue from it, they completely fuck the fans. And this isn't like a card subject to change thing like UFC where, you know, somebody gets injured, they have to put in a different show on. This is wrestling. You know, you can you can you know what the match is gonna be. If you book it a week in advance, you can be like, Yeah, this is what it's gonna be. It's not like, you know, in between Goldberg or Nash got injured. It's basically, we're going to advertise this with the express purpose that it's not going to happen, and we're going to kind of fuck the fans out of a finish. I mean, not, and not only that, but to also advertise Nash versus Hogan to basically, if you're there that night, tease two matches, two huge marquee matches, and not deliver on either one of them is really just, it's it's mind-boggling to me that they would think that this was okay. This is hubris. I mean, I, this is complete hubris, thinking that... It's okay, because like, they're going to want to come back and see Goldberg take on the NWO. He's already killed all of you once. Like, he's <laughs> destroyed all of you. Like, yeah. there, there's there's no... Uh, like That's why, even when they would redo Austin vs. McMahon, Austin vs. McMahon really works 98-99. <clears throat> Every other time they tried to do it, like, was it still fun? A little bit. But it, it definitely doesn't have the magic of that particular era. But it's the same thing, like, when you do this, you know, okay, we're going to... We're gonna have the mega faction with the mega heel, and we're gonna have the one baby face as it go through them. If they see, this is why you can't do this with Daniel Bryan again. You know, no. you can't do this again where it's like, oh, he's he's getting screwed. Nah, man, there ain't no time for that. People don't have time for that. They're not gonna like that. If you just right. if you just set that guy up to lose a ton of matches, I mean, you can say all day long, oh, it's all about building him back up. He doesn't need to be built back up. All right, right. He's super over, even when he's on total bellas. Or the other, yeah. whatever. He's he's over no matter what. So it's just, it's it's really hubris thinking that, oh, everyone's just going to come right back. They loved this before. They're going to love it again. No, sir. Not after what you just described. You 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 set up this. You bait and switched me. But then you said you're going to deliver anyway. And then you delivered nothing. So Yeah. It's, it's like uh, Brock Lesnar versus Roman Reigns. People love it so much. You have to keep giving it to them is what you're saying. No. But, uh, <laughs> But yeah, no, it's it's just I, I'm it's baffling to me. I know Eric Bischoff at this point. He just, I mean, he's kind of like just fiddling while Rome is burning. You know, he's just kind of like, yeah, you know, whatever. We can keep doing whatever the fuck we want. You know, the ratings aren't high, but obviously they're packing forty thousand fans into the Georgia I mean, Dome, and they've been doing a lot of dome shows over the past month too. They did Houston and they did St. Louis. So I guess he's thinking, you know, hey, business is fine. We can keep you know doing whatever the fuck we want. So I looked this up, man, because I was curious because this is what I was thinking they were. When Tony does that, does the line, he does the butts and seats line, it is sort of like, all right, it's fourth down, we're, we're going to run a trick play. We're going to run a trick play, and it's either going to be touchdown or it's going to be pick six the other way. Like, it's one of those, like, it's either going to make us or break us. And if you look at the ratings, because, like, remember you said Austin kind of goes off camera somewhere in early December, right, of 98? Yes. So, like, the December 7th, it was night, uh, Raw 515 versus 4-2. Then the next week, five two to four two. Then twelve twenty one four seven to four. The week before was four nine to four six. So they're mm-hmm. not that far off. Even though I know like 
point three is still that's a fairly large number, but still like they're not out of it and they're hanging right. in there with the absence of Austin. So it's like okay, if they throw that thing out there, they're just counting on people are still like so they're thinking people want Austin. He's not on that show. They're gonna hang out. They're gonna come back over here. They're think they must be thinking that people in, that watch WWF are not as invested in anything else except Steve Austin. And that's the and that's why they're gonna come back over here. And they are completely misjudging their audience because Absolutely. yeah, based on the raw we've we've just talked about, based on the last couple of raws you've done, they are firing on all cylinders right now. They're killing mm-hmm. it with the way they're interweaving upper mid card and main event feuds, storylines, characters in and out of different matches. Like the the car wreck, the the, the nonstop car wreck that Vince Russo is doing, it's it's working perfectly for that brief period of time. So yeah. it's just such a grave miscalculation thinking that, all right, this is a Hail Mary type of thing we're going to do. And it does fail. I mean, it fails catastrophically because this is the end. This is the end of, yep. of WCW at this point. Cause you look at the, you look at the ratings after tonight and it's just, it just starts to get wider and wider and wider, especially when we get into WrestleMania season of 99 and you'll get into the specific numbers with your shows going up, but it definitely like it starts to it definitely starts to widen more and more. Exactly, that's a great point too, because a lot of people point to this as like, you know, this is the night WCW died. Well, no, not really, but this is definitely a, a big factor in um, essentially the finishing of WCW in the Monday Night Wars, because it's like th- when you keep doing stuff like this, doing these little stunts where uh, so many times they've been doing this where they promise a main event and they don't deliver. They've done it a couple times now over the past month in these big dome shows. It, it There's only, it's not going to be overnight where, you know, 2 million people automatically switch over to the WWF and, you know, Nitro's rating goes from a 5.0 down to a 3.0 or whatever it is. It's not like that. It's gradual. But like you said, it's these things, it's these week-to-week decisions where by the time WrestleMania rolls around, it's like, it's game over because, just gradually that fan base is eroding from WCW for decisions like this. And this is one where you can flat out point to it and be like, yeah, these guys don't give a shit about their fans. They just want to get, you know, as many people in the, in the building. They want to get as many eyeballs on the product as they can, but they're willing to fuck over their fans to do it. And that is pretty messed up. So yeah, it's, it's really just like, it's still inconceivable to this day. And you would think no one would be able to rationalize that, but as fate would have it, just about a month and a half ago, Eric Bischoff actually dedicated an episode of his podcast to the finger poke of doom. So, William, if you'll indulge me for a moment, would you like me to give you his take on these events? Sure. Fantastic. Now, now by the way, I emphasize that this is Bischoff's take, which means you might want to take this with a very large grain of salt, but here are some things he says on his show. He says it is, quote, Mostly true that Kevin Nash was booking at the time that he went over Goldberg at Starcade, which, of course, I'm sure was purely coincidental. You know, who who could possibly end the streak? Oh, I know. How about me? Funny how that works, right? Uh, so, by the way, when Bischoff says mostly true, I'm going to just take that to mean true because, you know, what what is he? Is he half pregnant? It's mostly true. Right. What the fuck? Exactly. So regarding the lengthy segment where the cops take Goldberg in, Bischoff refers to it as, quote, fucking horrible. So at least he can be objective there. He says the police officers in that scene were, in fact, real cops, and that's why the acting was so bad. Now, a popular internet rumor is that instead of accusing Goldberg of stalking, Elizabeth was initially going to accuse him of rape, but Bischoff shoots that down as false, thank Christ. 
Bischoff says he thought that Elizabeth did a, quote, phenomenal job on her acting on this show. Bischoff wanted to, basically with the finger poke, his intention was to bring the original NWO, Hogan, Holland, Nash, back together, and Kevin Nash was the driving force in that angle. Bischoff reinforces that the final say was ultimately his, and his vision was that the NWO, and this is one that blew my mind, his vision for the angle was that the NWO would take Nitro, while WCW and Ric Flair would take Thunder, and I actually feel like they needed to, that Conrad needed to press him a little bit more on this, because I was thinking, like, like what the fuck? So he kind of, like, tosses this off as though it's, like, a completely normal thing, but I was like, what the fuck? So the NWO would just have Nitro, and WCW would have Thunder. That strikes me as incredibly bizarre. I, I don't even know how that would work. I guess NWO had their own pay-per-views. They had sold out, but, like, apparently, apparently that was Bischoff's vision, is he wanted to split them off into basically two separate companies on two separate nights. And if you thought the ratings would go down then, I mean, geez, if you only have NWO Nitro, I feel like they would have plummeted even worse. Yeah. So Bischoff confirms that he did, in fact, tell Shivani to shit-talk the McFoley title victory, and he says that he cannot defend doing it. He also admits that it was a bad idea to keep mentioning the title switch on Raw when Nitro was obviously not going to deliver on their promised main event title match. He says the intention of reforming the new NWO was to have a string of bad guys for Goldberg to plow his way through before ultimately getting back to Hogan and recapturing the title. He says that the trash that was thrown in the ring was not from go-away heat, but rather because the angle was so effective and the fans were mad that they were fooled. He says the quote-unquote smart marks who claim it was go-away heat don't know what they're talking about. Now, okay, on this one, I have to vehemently disagree, but and here's my evidence for this. I have some evidence. They did an episode of Nitro one month prior on December 7th, and it was also, as I said, a big show live from a dome, and in this case, this was the one from the Houston Astrodome. Now, throughout the night, they hyped up a Goldberg Bam Bam Bigelow main event, and the night finished with Goldberg Bam Bam and Kevin Nash brawling in the ring as security tried to separate them, and of course, what did the fans do? They pelted the ring with trash. And it wasn't some WCW genius angle they were doing there. It was the fans being pissed off that they got fucked out of the promised main event, which is exactly what happened on tonight's Georgia Dome show as well. So I'm sorry, Eric. I may just be a smart mark, but on this one, I think you're full of shit. I'm pretty sure the fans were throwing trash because they were legitimately pissed off about being screwed. Do you, do you agree with me oh, on yeah, that yeah, one, Yeah, 100%. Because, I mean, if you've, the majority of Nitros in this era... Trash is hitting the ring because the main event is usually just some convolute. Like, it's not even necessarily convolute. It's just a bunch of dudes running in. There's no finish at all. Sometimes there's no match at all. Yeah. For these main events after these three-hour Raws and I'm, or Nitros. And you're just like, yeah. I mean, it's you can. It's easy to write it off as, as this heat. But, I mean, like, the only time where I felt like that would be legitimate is Bash of the Beach 96. That is legit. Right. Like, right. That is, like wrestling anger like wrestling heat kayfabe heat that you're getting like that's 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 one where like that argument would make sense on this night it'd be like fuck you dude because for one thing like yeah it's not like those tickets are cheap they're not right and it's you put us through three hours of and i don't know if i don't know if they could see the the goldberg stuff at the, the with the detectives i have no idea because it's not like because you know with wwf at least you have the titantron you could you you could see occasionally what they were showing in the arena mm-hmm. and what they weren't but i mean yeah i mean that that argument is just flawed yeah i think there's when you watch that angle at the end 
it doesn't come across as fans being like, oh, you you got me with that angle. I'm going to toss my soda at you. It came across as like, we're really pissed off about this. Like, we were screwed out of what was promised to us. So uh, Bischoff still, to this day, sticking by the fact that they, they throw the shit because, oh, they were just, they were mad because they were fooled so much. It's like, no, dude, come on. Like, don't, you're only kidding yourself or you're just full of shit or, or some combination of the two. Uh, one thing I will give Bischoff credit for, uh, this is the only episode of his podcast I've listened to, but he is actually pretty willing for the most part to be like, yeah, I messed that up. We made a mistake, blah, blah, blah. So uh, I'll give him that over Pritchard, who's completely full of shit. But um, basically, you know, Bischoff, for the most part, is willing to be a little introspective. But for some reason, he's still sticking by this bullshit like the fans were pissed off because we fooled them. Nah, dude. Sorry. Not not the case. So Bischoff also says the company's business going down in 1999 was more of a factor of the WWF wisely doing edgier storylines, whereas WCW had standards and practices up their ass, asking for a more PG-friendly product. And, in perhaps the most unsurprising portion of the podcast, Bischoff goes on to say when he's asked if he would do it all over again, William, what do you think? Do you think he would do it all over again? Absolutely not. He would change and, you know, plot out a, a better course based on what he knows now. Of course, right? Right? Oh, yeah, that's, yeah, of course. That's exactly what he said. No, of course, he would do it all over the exact same way. He claims he would do it the exact same way. Given, given all the circumstances, he would do it the exact same way that he did before. Now, the funny thing about this is seconds later, Conrad asks him if the finger poke hurt the credibility of the title, to which Bischoff responds, probably. So try not to have an aneurysm thinking about that one for too long. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I'd do it all over again, and yeah, I'd hurt the credibility of the title, yeah. So there you have it, straight from the horse's mouth, on the finger poke of doom. Uh, would you say those answers satisfy you, William? Interesting. I mean, it's interesting to, you know, to hear him talk about it. I mean, I've he, he seems to have some degree of, like, uh, humility, you know, and, and, time, and acceptance about what, like, what didn't work and knowing that it didn't work, but he's always got to get his heat back, man. He's got to get that That's heat right. back. That's right. All right, so we've certainly covered quite a bit on this episode, but guess what? We're not done yet, so with that in mind, let's take it to the wrap-up. Yo, I slayed them seeds back in the rec room era. My style broke motherfucking backs like him with terror. A freak beat slamming like Iron Sheik. We dedicated to cast that's been thugging. Vinny Paz got more hoes than Jim Duggan. I'm bananas, out of my fucking mind. They won't let me back in. Cause I was down before the heights like Dusty Rhodes and Bob Backlund. Bruno San Martino, Stan Stasiak. Now the rockin' Stone Cold on my favorite maniac. The top rooster pluckin'. Chickens when they cluckin'. The WWF stands for women where we fuckin'. The Ratings Recap So going into tonight, it was clear that WCW was definitely, quote-unquote, going for it by doing a live Georgia Dome show and hyping a Nash-Goldberg rematch from Starcade only eight days later. Meanwhile, Monday Night Raw was pre-taped, but they obviously felt the need to counterpunch with something huge in order to maintain their nine-week ratings winning streak. And WCW really went for the jugular by having Tony Schiavone flat out spoil the fact that Mankind would be winning the WWF title, and because of that, the viewers should remain glued to Nitro. I mean, Christ, Mankind winning a world title? Would any wrestling fans want to watch that instead of Kevin Nash versus Goldberg or Kevin Nash versus Hulk Hogan? Well, as it turns out... The fans flocked in droves over to the USA Network to see Mick Foley win the title. WCW's gamble backfired spectacularly because once Shivani announced that Mankind was going to win the belt, it's estimated that roughly 
five to six hundred thousand people switched over to Raw immediately to see Mick Foley live out his dream. Your final ratings on this night, Raw 5.76, Nitro 4.96. And that 5.76 rating, by the way, is the highest rating Raw had ever done up to that point while going head-to-head against Nitro. And at this point, I would now like to turn to Mick Foley's second autobiography, the modestly named Foley is Good from 2001. So, William, will you indulge me again as I read from Mick Foley's writings? Great. The World Wrestling Federation continued to gain viewers throughout their program, and on a night that many felt would turn the tide back to WCW, we ended up blowing them away. WCW did win the five-minute time period following my title victory, which was actually even worse news for them. And by the way, Mick's actually right about this. So Nitro actually crushed Raw in the 11 p.m. overrun 6.5 to 5.1, which I think is pretty interesting. It meant that people were, in fact, interested in their title rematch, but had been driven away by their own announcer's foolish remarks. So now, with the ratings on my side, I decided to give Mr. Shivani a call. I had known Tony for quite a while, and had always gotten along with him, and even though I didn't think he was in Jim Ross's league, I always respected him as an announcer. During my time in WCW, I had physically sacrificed a great deal, always put the company's interests ahead of my own, and had been about as productive as a person can be when he's constantly having the rug pulled out from under him by some of the WCW people who are more concerned with retaining their top spots with the company than making that company successful. Deep down, I sensed that Tony's words were not derived from feelings of his own, but were probably ordered upon him by one of his superiors. I got Tony's answering machine and resisted the urge to yell. Instead, I very calmly said, Tony, this is Mick Foley, and I just wanted to say that I heard your comments and they made me sick. Why you would insult someone who works so hard for your company is beyond me. I have a feeling that the words you were saying weren't your own, but either way, I felt that it was low class and uncalled for, and in truth, it just caused more people to watch our show. Then I left my number and hung up. A few hours later, the phone rang. Colette, Mick Foley's wife, came to me and said, Mick, it's Tony Schiavone. He sounds so sad. Hello, Tony. This is Cactus. When Tony spoke, he did indeed sound sad. As I had thought, the feelings were not his own, but had been forced on him by his superior. Right, Eric? Shivani's words not only haunted him that night, but for weeks, months, and even years after. Signs started popping up in every arena we went to that disproved WCW's theory. Mick Foley put my ass in this seat. So, William, when it comes to the ratings on January 4th, 1999, much like Mick Foley... Do you also take quite a bit of satisfaction in knowing that WCW's taking the low road ultimately contributed to their downfall on this night? Absolutely. I mean, you reap what you you reap what you sow. You know, I mean, that's Correct. that's exactly what ends up happening here. Is that you know you 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 by taking that low road. I mean, and they had done this so many times in the past. They had done it so many times. This was the one where it was just like this is the one time you probably shouldn't have. Because I can man, in, in hindsight. If they don't do that, they deliver Goldberg versus Nash, and you put Goldberg over in the dome, I think they can hang around for a little longer. Yeah. I think they've got something. They may even win the ratings that night. I think they definitely would, for sure. If they had actually delivered on that promise, and, and if Shivani had kept his mouth shut, yeah, I think up seeing a Goldberg, basically seeing the rematch from your biggest pay-per-view of the year eight days later, I would agree. I think that would be would have been absolutely huge. And like McFoley said in that in that uh, little excerpt that I read there, WCW, they won that overrun. Like, when McFoley wins the title, there is a little bit of time before Raw goes off the air. So a lot of people did switch over to Nitro. Even 
presumably WWF fans who had watched the title switch, they also wanted to see WCW, you know, if they would actually pay off that angle. Because, like I said, the over one was 6.5 to 5.1 in favor of WCW. So they captured a lot of interest here. And I also think Mick Foley mentioned it in his uh, excerpt there as well. I didn't mention it too much, but this was a night going in where I remember this was one of those nights where it's like, oh, shit, this is going to be a really big head-to-head matchup. You know, I, not knowing what WWF had planned because I was avoiding the spoilers, but knowing that WCW was doing that big Georgia Dome show, as a WWF fan, I was actually kind of nervous that WCW was going to retake the ratings. Yeah. You know, they were going to you know end the rating streak because I was like, oh, shit. I mean, this is – they're advertising the Starcade rematch in Atlanta in their home base in a huge dome. I mean, I figured that was going to be, you know, something where they would potentially, you know, maybe like mount some sort of comeback like they did over the summer when, you know, WWF was winning the ratings up until, funny enough, the summer of 98 where WCW seized that momentum back for something like five straight weeks. So I was thinking it was going to be a similar scenario where WCW might, you know, retake that momentum. And ultimately, WWF, like they said, they they just blew them away and did the highest rating they had ever done against Nitro. So... Yeah, and a lot of that can be thanks to Tony Schiavone and, and WCW's uh, obliviousness, basically. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so I guess to put this all together, number one, maybe this is a bit of an easy question, but William, of the of the two episodes we saw on this night, Raw and Nitro, did you have a uh, a show you preferred to watch of the two? I mean, it's obvious, man. We know which one we're going to pick here. I mean, that, that Raw is spectacular. <laughs> it is a spectacular Raw to watch. It has a, a ton of memorable moments. Some for not the best reasons, but as ultimately one of the most memorable moments on Raw, and it may be, I mean, maybe the is it too much to say it's the best Raw, or at least in the conversation of the best Raw of all time? I think it's up there. Yeah, it's up there, absolutely yeah, for sure. So, Especially yeah. uh, like I said, it's my favorite. Mick Foley winning the title is literally my favorite moment in the history of Monday Night Raw because, thankfully, as I said, I had avoided the spoilers, but also the fact that it's just this guy who is the lovable underdog who you never really expect to win the title. And he friggin' does it in a pre-tape show in Worcester, Massachusetts. Not not like WCW, not in a big dome. He wins in this small arena, kind of out of nowhere, where they don't even tease that there's a title match until like a half hour into the show. So yeah, it was just like incredibly surprising. The Stone Cold appearance obviously was fantastic too. Uh, it, it is my all-time favorite Monday Night Raw moment, not just in the Attitude Era, but all time uh, on Monday Night Raw. Maybe sometime there'll be a moment that dethrones it. Probably not because I don't really watch much Raw anymore. But yeah, this is it's my all time favorite Raw moment. And um, as a follow up question, I guess, do you agree with the sentiment that in terms of in terms of the impact of this night, that this was one of the most impactful nights in the history of the Monday Night Wars? this, This sews up the war. I mean, this is it. Because it's yep. it's not even it's really not there's there's nothing as memorable on on Nitro that will overtake even the weakest Raw, really, and not from like '99 through '01. It's just this was the moment it changed, and it really went all in on one side, and the other side really doesn't have a shot of getting back into it anymore. I guess here's my question also: If you had been in the George Dome that night, do you think you would have felt? Ripped off by not getting the Nash Goldberg rematch. Yeah, man, I would have been pissed. Yeah, man, I would have so, been really pissed. I don't. I mean, I I'd even go as far as say like, man, I'm going. I'm I'm watching. I'm watching WWF, man. I'm not doing this shit anymore. The other, actually, the other thing I'll note that as I said at the top of the show, it's about or at the top of the Nitro segment, it was about thirty-eight thousand fans in the Georgia Dome. Now, a lot of times WCW, they'd be you know they had a reputation for comping 
tickets. They comped about 4,000, but that's still 34,000 paying fans who show up yeah. expecting to see Nash and Goldberg. That's, you know, that's a lot of money they're bringing in and a lot of people they're fucking over. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, I, I feel like, you know, there's only so much wrestling fans. I, I think um, somebody makes this point. I think it's actually Kevin Sullivan who makes the point in one of the uh, Monday Night War documentaries where their wrestling fans are basically, you know, the most loyal fans you can find until you start to piss them off and insult their intelligence. And something like this, where you're basically, you know, doing like about a solid month of these main event finishes where you're not delivering the promised finish, you're ending the show with fans pelting the ring with trash because they're pissed off at your product. I mean, if you're a WCW fan, how much longer can you realistically watch before you're like, Jesus Christ, I'm getting suckered every week? And they don't care. They just, you know, they just are after my money. And after a while, you stop giving it to them. I mean, it's just kind of common sense, right? Exactly. Exactly, yeah. man. I mean, I mean you're... that's that's exactly how – I mean, I, I'd be like, yeah, I'm done. I would be like, I'm, I'm, I'm done with this. I'm moving on. Yeah, it, it's, it doesn't actually surprise me too that Eric Bischoff seems to have like a bit, a little bit of um, not disdain for the fan base, but he's not really. He's ultimately concerned about just making that money, getting as many fans in as possible. As long as they get in the arena, hey, we've already got their money. We don't have to deliver on the on the main event we promised, right? So, you know, at the time, I'm sure he he thought he could do no wrong when you're seeing these big arena shows, these big dome shows. But, you know, ultimately, when you see where WCW ends up. Uh, like I said, it's not an overnight change where they lose all their fans, but it is a gradual thing where if you keep dicking over the audience, you're ultimately gonna gonna start to lose a sizable portion of the audience, and you know clearly that's exactly what happens with WCW. So, no, I mean tonight is not the moment that killed WCW, obviously, but it's definitely a big factor in eroding the company's trust in its audience. I don't think I'm going out on a limb to say that. So. On that note, do you have anything else you'd like to add about uh, this Monday Night Raw and or the finger poke of Doom? Nah, man, I mean, I don't know how much more content we need to put out for this. We're, what, up to like hour five or something? <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> I think th- I think we can say this is the definitive podcast guide to July 4th, 1999. July. I think we can put man. this on a pedestal. Oh, July, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> God dang, man, we that's how long we went. We went from January to July. Straight to the 4th of July, right to Independence that's Day. Right. Yeah, maybe I'm thinking of that moment uh, from July when Goldberg won the title against Hogan. That's what it was, yeah, yeah. yeah. But yeah, as far as January 4th, January 4th, 1999 goes, uh, I think we can put this on a pedestal. I don't think anybody else, I'll challenge any other podcast to go as in-depth as we went today. So uh, it's not going to work, but uh, good luck trying. So on that note, I think we can wrap this episode up. As always, thank you for listening to the Raw Attitude Podcast. I am Henry Hugepex, the suplex-throwing human duplex, and I will remind you once again, feel free to subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Send us an email at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com or tweet us at rawattitudepod. Or more importantly, write us a five-star review on iTunes because that helps us find an even wider audience. Of course, if you do that, I'll be sure to read the review on this very podcast and give you full credit for doing so. And don't forget, patreon.com slash rawattitudepodcast where you can get all sorts of bonus content. I mean, come on, people. After all, we just provided for you. I think it's time you kick in a donation, right? Come on now. And before we go... William, would you care to remind the fans of the Raw Attitude Podcast where they can find you outside of this fine show? On Twitter, the New Blood Rising Podcast is at New Blood Pod. We're on Facebook, New Blood Rising Podcast. And I myself, I am at William Rinkin 83. 
Fantastic. And the rumors of my demise as well. That's yep. available in a couple different capacities. It's on my. It's my pinned tweet. If you look at it, you can see the link to the online or the uh, digital version as well as the paperback version. Fantastic. So, all right. Now, of course, before we go, I have to ask you, as is the custom, whenever a guest host joins the show, is there a particular audio clip you would like me to play at the end of this show? Because I'm going to end with a soundbite from the WWE's 2004 DVD, The Monday Night Wars, where Mick Foley discusses what happened on this particular night. But I can also add another clip if you would like me to do so. Okay. I'm pretty sure why Austin wasn't on TV is he was filming Nash Bridges, right? Mm-hmm. The best part of the Steve Austin Nash Bridges episode is when his, he makes his entrance because they're playing his theme music on the show and he what? and he busts into this guy's apartment and he has one of the greatest lines ever where he just throws this dude around and he puts him up to like the he puts him up to the stove and he flips a gas on he pulls out a cigarette lighter and he's like you want to die son I'll help you but first you're gonna give me the name it's one of the <laughs> so good so if you can find the Nash Bridges with Austin it's his first scene. Awesome. Well, n- not with Austin, you mean with, I think it's uh, Detective Jake Cage, right. I think was his name on the show. I apologize. Yeah. yeah, you gotta get hot about it now, Henry. Well, damn. Well, yes, if you know what, I'll put that one in. If I can find that, if not, I'll try to find a different Nash Bridges, Steve Austin clip for you. Hopefully that'll be, uh, we'll see if I can uh, download that without getting sued by CBS. But from there, once again, of course, huge thank you to William for contributing to this massive project. And perhaps we can have you on again at another point in time as well. Absolutely, man. Up for it anytime. Beautiful. So enjoy those clips, and I will catch you next time. Nash. Hey, Nash, man. We hit pay dirt on Mackey's pager. His last five calls were to a small-time dealer named uh, Daryl Foley. He just got out of Folsom on a nickel. Local guy? Yeah, yeah. He's at 3862 Wilmot, apartment number 15. We'll take it. Product. Now tell me what I need to know. What's that smell? Yeah. The oven. Gonna burn. I can't take it anymore, man. I can't take it, man. You can kill yourself later, man. I know you're supplying steroids to Bart Mackey, and I want to know who's supplying you. You don't get it, man. I'm done. I'm over. I'm gonna kill myself, and I'll kill you. If you want to die, man, I'll help you. Now give me a name. Give me the name. Put the lighter down. Put it down. Uh huh. Now turn around. Nash Bridges. Jake? I watched our show when it aired. My kids could not have been happier. They were dancing around the living room with the belt. I really felt good about it. You know, it was a very emotional moment. Then I watched the WCW show, which they showed later on in a delay, and I'm kind of reading the paper, and I did not think they were putting on a very good show. I did not think that they were showcasing Goldberg in the way that he should have been. Uh, they were putting him in a situation that made him look silly. I remember thinking it was a, it was a poorly executed show. And then I hear Tony Schiavone say, the WWE show, which is a taped show, will have Mankind, who wrestled here as Cactus Jack, winning the world title from The Rock. 
And then he very sarcastically said, wow, that'll put a lot of butts in seats. We understand that Mick Foley, who wrestled here one time as, as Cactus Jack, is going to win their world title. Oh, going to put some butts in the seat. <laughs> that line single-handedly took the special night from me. It made it a lousy night. It really just knotted up my stomach. And I remember thinking, you know, how, how could they take a guy who worked so hard for that company, who had sacrificed his body to such a degree, never been really appreciated, how could he go and take my moment away from me? I waited for the ratings to come in. And they showed something very surprising. They showed that almost to the moment that Tony Schiavone said, wow, that'll put a lot of butts in seats, that WCW had been winning the show and the moment he said that stupid comment something like 300,000 homes which maybe meant half a million people turned turned immediately WCW had a main event that people wanted to see because once I won the title people switched back to their show there were still five minutes left in hours it was like okay we saw the title change let's see what WCW has which showed me that they had something people wanted to watch, and had they not opened up their mouths and not chosen to take the low road, which, by the way, was was directed to Shivani from Eric Bischoff. In all in all fairness to uh, to Shivani, it was Bischoff who took the low road. Uh, if they had if they had not taken that road, they probably would have won the night, and I think it may have uh, it may have shifted the momentum to their side, and instead. Uh, uh, that night turned out to be a huge victory, not just for me, which it certainly was, but for the entire company.